Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. Our main topic will be the Twin Peaks The Return finale, parts yes. 17 and 18, which were a profoundly spiritual experience. Yeah, no, it's a hell of a way to end a hell of a TV show. <laughs> Absolutely. I did write a little piece on JonathanLack.com if you want to read some of my written thoughts, which was basically just... I could not go to bed until I wrote like three to four pages on that. Mm-hmm. So I did, and then I was able to sleep, and that was yeah. nice. I'm looking forward to having my Sunday nights back and being able to sleep on Sunday night again because yeah. it's been a rough. It's been a rough one. Yeah, no, uh, I'm looking forward to having the last like two hours of our podcast back. That's true. Yeah. But I wouldn't trade talking about Twin Peaks for the world. So that will be our main. This will be a Twin Peaks heavy episode. So if you don't watch the show, yeah, you know. I, I keep listening because we're going to have a couple other things. We're going to yeah. talk about some video games. I've played Mario plus Rabbids. You... I've played a lot of Yakuza Kiwami. Yes. So we're going to talk about both of those. We're going to talk about some news, some Star Wars news, some video game news. But let's go ahead and get into the housekeeping really quick, Sean. All right. Which is we have so much stuff coming out right now. It's uh-huh. insane. So uh, Halo Part 9 came out on Monday. And so that's the penultimate episode of Halo. That's the keys level, which includes a lot of bad puns. And I put in an extended excerpt from the book Halo the Flood that made me laugh very hard. So there's a lot of good stuff in that one. And part 10 on the the final level of Halo will be coming out Friday. Yes, and if you want to get the end of our discussion about William C. Deitz's, you know, seminal novel, (laughs) Halo the Flood, that's where you're going to get it. So the last bit. Yep, so those are going public on YouTube this week. If you are a Patreon or you would like to become a Patreon, we have two exclusive videos up for you this week. Those are our Hitman Let's Plays, parts one and two. You did one um, in Hitman. I did one in Hitman. Um, I mean, we're both there for both of them, but one of us is in the driver's seat for each of those. And I cut those. They're up on, again, they're up for Patreon right now. They will be public starting Monday and uh, Monday and Friday. And I think they are a blast. They are very funny. Uh, Did you get to look at either of them? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. They turned out there. I'll say this. There is a murder montage in my episode that I did not realize how graphic Hitman is until I edited that. Because when you're playing the game, you kind of get tunnel vision around it because it's like, you know, you're stabbing someone in the throat with a katana and, like, you're not really paying attention to that anymore because you're thinking about, okay, shit, I'm going to have to, like, go over here and climb over this thing and kill this guy. But, yeah, when you're sitting there and watching it, it's like, there's just blood spraying all over the place. And editing is watching something, like, 50 times. Uh And I have to say, I got nauseated at a certain point editing that and I have a strong stomach where I think this stuff is funny. But, like, it affected me editing it. So, I think you guys will enjoy it. Yeah, there was a lot of death in both of our playthroughs. Oh, yeah. Maybe yours a bit more than mine A bit mine more. Was. Anyway, so those are really fun. And then our Mario 64 series will begin Monday, September 11th on Patreon. And then they will start public on September 18th. But if you subscribe to Patreon, you will get at least four episodes of that on September 11th. Maybe more, but but that's what we have ready to go right now. Yeah, I and think those... people are... You can anticipate just flawless, masterful Super Mario 64 um, gameplay by Jonathan here. Because this is your... Because I controlled Halo, you're controlling Mario. And I think it's really great. I, yeah. I definitely have my Assault on the Control Room moments. Yeah, I was taken aback by your just, you know, unbelievable mastery of the controls of that video game. <laughs> anyway, and then one other thing to pimp is that next week... I have scheduled at least. Um, I think we're going to be doing the second Doctor Who uh, bonus episode. So that should be out with next week's podcast for Patreon and in two weeks for the public. And that one will be, again, if you haven't watched it yet, Tomb of the Cybermen, the most famous of the Patrick Troughton stories. Yes. So that'll be fun. 
It's a, it's a great one. All it's right. really good. So that's all that we... We have so much stuff coming right now. It's awesome. Yeah. And uh, But let's get into the episode itself. Stuff... Uh, we're going to save the video game discussion for later. Sean, do you have any stuff you wanted to go over really quick? Um, so I did finish my, uh, I did finish Breaking Bad. I oh, did nice. that. I actually, I finished it, um, like Sunday afternoon. Oh, in, nice. In anticipation of then watching Twin Peaks. So it was a big TV day for me. That's good. Yeah. Well, good TV. Yes, yes, very good. I really like the last, like, half of season five, I think is really phenomenal of that show. That's the best. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the yeah. last eight are kind of perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good TV show. Yep, and you get fucking Robert Forster in there. That's true. Yeah, I was very pleased when I saw him yep. pop up. He's very good. Just he's between... only in there a little bit, but he's great when he's there. Oh, because they've also teased in Breaking Bad. They teased that character for like four seasons. Yeah. And then you get him, and it's fucking Robert Forster. And just, I love between that and Twin Peaks, he's becoming something of a TV character actor staple. Yeah. And he should be on more shows. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, if you've never seen Jackie Brown, go watch Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Because, holy crap, he's good in that. Yeah. And a lot of other people are, too. I think it's Quentin Tarantino's best movie. All right. Um, Let's see. My stuff is a couple of little things. I got to go see the Close Encounters of the Third Kind re-release this weekend. Oh, cool. And one, I love that they did that because, like, we've gotten some re-releases in recent years, but only for, like, 3D movies where, like, James Cameron took Titanic and made it 3D and put it into theaters. And that's neat. It's neat to get movies like that that are re-released, but... They tend to not be that old. Like, the oldest was maybe, you know, The Lion King or something. And the 3D doesn't always add all that much. Mm -hmm. But Close Encounters, I loved this because this was just a straight re-release. They had done a 4K restoration for the new Blu-ray. And they said, we're going to put it in theaters for a week. It played as, like, the big release in theaters this weekend. And you could go see it anywhere. And I just want to say, that should be a thing studios do more. Because re-releases used to be way more common, yeah. and it's such a cool thing to be able to get to see a movie like Close Encounters on the big screen. And I have to admit, I had never seen this movie, oh, okay, which is yeah. a big hole in like my film knowledge and my Spielberg love. But you know, you got to save some for later. And I saved Close Encounters, and I was lucky enough I got to see it on the big screen for my first time. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind is one of the greatest movies ever made. Sure, yeah, and it's definitely it's up. There. I mean, it's been I haven't seen it since high school, but I yeah. remember feeling like it was my favorite Spielberg movie at the time. It's to me, it would be Raiders and then this easy one and two yeah. for me. But yeah, I mean, Close Encounters. It's kind of funny because I saw it with my family, and none of them really reacted to it, which I kind of get because it's not at all. What we would even call, I feel like, a mainstream movie these days. Sure. Yeah. It is very slow. It is very methodical. It is not particularly narrative heavy. It is so much about emotional states and reacting to things bigger than oneself. And I feel like it. what I was most impressed with is I think it broaches some topics that were subversive for the time and are subversive now. Particularly in the Richard Dreyfus character, Roy, and its presentation of a very fragile and emotional form of masculinity which would have been very subversive in 1977 right but i think even today like you know this is a character who cries at things he can't understand it's not a man crying at a sports match it's not a man crying at the death of his father right it's at i'm confused about life and you know his kids are mocking him for being a crybaby and things like that and this is a guy who i'm okay spoiling close encounters because it's the 40th anniversary right leaves his family at the end of the movie to go into space and, you know, these are complicated ideas that I don't think the movie has simple answers to, but it is such a visual piece of filmmaking and a visual piece of storytelling, and it is just Spielberg. There are some movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one, this is one, 
where Steven Spielberg feels like a man possessed. Like mm-hmm. that he has some kind of divine presence in him where every shot just turns out perfect. Every edit, every cut. And, you know, he has his collaborators like Michael Kahn on editing and fucking John Williams and the score. And this is the same year as Star Wars, which is crazy uh-huh. that John Williams did both of those in one year. But, like... There's just things like there's a little sequence near the end where Roy and um, the girl he's with are trying to just get up Devil's Tower so they can get to where they're going. And just the way he cuts this little suspense sequence where they're trying to get up and escape a helicopter and just the shot choices, it's all so simple and so powerful. And I just, the whole movie really took me aback. And I think the last 30 minutes where you see the mothership and you see the alien ships over Devil's Tower and things like that, there's no image that has ever been created with CGI that is as awe-inducing to me as any of those what they did with practical photography and effects back then i it, it, utterly mind-blowing and you know on an effects level i think every bit the equal of like star wars just in a very different direction you know sure. yeah. this is so much about mixing the mundane and the fantastical whereas star wars is all fantasy which is what's wonderful but yeah i i love that movie to death i'm so glad i got to see it this way and just a reminder that like Steven Spielberg is, is Steven fucking Spielberg. Yeah. And we take him for granted sometimes. Absolutely. But boy, and, and you know, Raiders and, and Close Encounters are probably my two favorites. A lot of my other favorite Spielbergs are from the last 10 years. Like Lincoln, yeah. or Catch Me If You Can, or The Adventures of Tintin. He's just a fucking beast, and he's never stopped being that. So it's insane. Yeah, and a movie like Close Encounters, I think, like really makes you appreciate his versatility. Oh as yeah, a filmmaker as well because I think like there's a like people like to put him in a box as a director sometimes with like some of his stylistic choices that that like repeat in certain kinds of movies. But when you look at like his the full scope of what he made, like it's incredibly diverse. It is, and Close Encounters you can put that on the spectrum of he has that and ET and War of the Worlds and like his sci-fi movies. But they're so they're all so different. Yeah. Like War of the Worlds is a horror film, and I think it's really actually very good at what it does. And Close Encounters is. Not overly sentimental. It's not mocking or any of those things. It is very down to earth and grounded in its emotional presentation of things. And then E.T. is a tremendously sentimental movie, but we don't mind that because it's very good at it, you know? And so they're all, like, as, as you said, very diverse movies. And I say, you know, if I'm saying my number one is Raiders and number two is Close Encounters, those are very different movies. Yeah. Exactly. You know? He he really could bounce around and do anything. And he still does, you know? He had yeah, his last movie was Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks, which I think if that had come out 20 years earlier would have been like the second biggest hit of its year, but that's not how we watch movies anymore. That's a great film. And his next movie is Ready Player One, which I have no interest in, but yeah. I, whatever. It's probably going to be good, because or well-made at least. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's interesting. And I would urge you, it's still in the theaters for a couple days. I think it's so cool that they did this. Yeah. Cool. Um, other couple of things really quick. I wanted to mention, you and I actually both bought this book today. Uh-huh. And it's such a good book. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels by Jason Schreier. He's a writer for Kotaku. So if you ever go to that site, you've probably read his work. Yeah, He has come up on this podcast, I think, a lot. Just because he breaks so many stories in games. If we've ever talked about anything about like video game delays... He announced it. Yeah, like, probably. Like, he broke those stories like, like nine times out of ten. Well, he has by far, in the entire game's press... He has the deepest connections with yeah. developers and stuff, and he writes such good stories. And he wrote this book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, which I have to pimp for a second because it is kind of one of the first of its kind, which is, is a series of ten chapters about stories of development of uh, mostly recent, like last five to ten years, video games. 
that had in some way a troubled production, although in his kind of thesis early on he says this is, this is every game. Yeah, every game has a troubled production because, yeah. you know, spoilers, games are fucking hard to make. Right, and so it's games like Uncharted 4 and The Witcher 3 and Dragon Age Inquisition, you know, on the big side of things, but then you also have Stardew Valley and Shovel Knight and, like, much smaller games, uh... The, the, one of the only games in the book I haven't played is Pillars of Eternity by Obsidian. That's one of those kind of in-between ones yeah. that was fascinating. But I've read three of the ten chapters so far, and it is a ter- terrific book. Jason Schreer is a great storyteller, very well-researched, very well-told. I think he finds a thematic through-line to every story, particularly at the Uncharted 4 chapter is really good at that, in kind of comparing the work to the studio and letting you understand Naughty Dog you know, as this group of people. But... It's also, so it's a rush as its own book, but also like, we never get these stories. Yeah. Once in a while, a writer like a Jason Schreier or some of the people at Waypoint with like that oral history of Halo will get you some of this stuff in bits and pieces. Yeah. But to go this deep with development of games, which is really secretive for whatever reason, it's great yeah. because we've, we, you can get a million books like this about movies, but this is like the only one about games and it's been so cool to start reading it. Yeah, so yeah, if you want that, like, peek behind the weird iron curtain of video game development that, like you said, is secretive for reasons I don't think anybody is ever going to understand why the fuck you can never find out anything about the development of a game or, like, game sales or anything like that, video game companies are weird about that shit, but yeah, this book seems like an awesome way of being able to find out about how some of these games are made, which then helps inform being able to talk about them critically. Yeah, and I I think we'll talk about this book more next week, because I'd love to just share some of the stories we find in it, because I think it's cool. And one last thing. Uh, By the time this podcast comes out, Destiny 2 will already be out. Yes, it's coming out on a Wednesday, which is... Why? I think it's because of Labor Day. Sure. If it was, if it came out Tuesday, then they would launch Monday night, and they'd have to have people at work Monday night. So, which they probably already do, but bigger staff. So I understand why it's Wednesday, just because you have to launch an online. Technically, it's launching tonight as we're recording this. Like by the time we're done recording, you could go over to your PS4 right there and play some Destiny Two. Yes. And um, yeah, so I'm excited to play it. We will. That will be our topic next week, obviously. But I did want to briefly mention, my brother has a 4K gaming PC rig, you know, with the 4K yeah. monitor and the super, like, you know, liquid-cooled PC bullshit, all right. that stuff. Yeah. And so he's a really powerful PC, and he was playing the Destiny 2 beta on PC, which was last week, and he let me play, I played the first level. And I, I did, he would have let me play more, but I didn't want to because I felt like I was getting spoiled. Right. Destiny 2 on PC in 4K, um, his monitor only goes up to 60 frames per second, but I've heard people getting this game easily up to 120 frames, was like one of the most eye-popping things I've ever seen in mm-hmm. gaming. And it just made me sad and jealous. And him too, because he's playing it on Xbox with me. Right, yeah. That's and that's the biggest curse of all is that, yeah, if you don't have your like connections and your friend group on yeah. PC... Well, it's also not launching on PC for two months, That's so... True. Yeah, and I wish Bungie would do something like some kind of character crossover, like just cross over your profile. Right. Because that would get around... Obviously, you don't want PC and Xbox like playing against each other because you'd have frame rate issues and all that frame stuff. Frame rate and then like mouse is a lot right. more accurate than an analog stick. Right, but you could at least have people carry their profile over. I don't think that would be hard. But because um, a lot of people like my brother would buy the game twice. Yeah. You would, but now that you're reading the Blood, Sweat, and Pixels thing, maybe that statement, I don't think that would be hard. It's something oh. you could rethink. No, no, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I, I only mean that on the sense that they do keep everything on the Bungie server sure, side. Yeah. So some of that architecture has to be in place. But you're right. There, there's probably – you should never just say it, it wouldn't be hard. Yeah. Unlike like producing the SNES Classic in a good amount of numbers. That right. we can say that probably isn't that hard. Yeah. But anyway um, – yeah, but Destiny 2 on PC, like, just the color 
and the clarity of everything and just how good it feels to play. Like there's something about the higher frame rate and just how well it all comes together. And you can completely on the fly go between controller and keyboard mouse. It's I've never seen something quite that seamless. Sure. I don't PC game a lot, but I watch my brother do it sometimes. And anyway, I just it blew my fucking socks off. If you're waiting for the Destiny 2 PC version and like didn't look at the the beta, I can just say it was incredible. This is clearly a 100% high-quality PC port of the game. Yeah. If it ran that well in its beta form. Like, the only thing my brother noticed was matchmaking took longer. But it's the beta. It hasn't been on PC before. Yeah. I expect by the time it comes out. And it's also, that's that's the time for matchmaking to be slow. Exactly, is, yeah. Is in the beta period. Um, you know, I think the fact that they're working with Blizzard and Battle.net on this, it feels like right. a Blizzard-quality PC game. And it was cool. Like, my brother was showing me... You go into Battle.net, it's just part of Battle.net now. Yeah, it's and such a weird, weird thing, because Battle.net has been only Blizzard since, like, we were three years old. Right. And now, now Activision is finally like, yeah, fuck it, we have this online, like, this complex, well-developed online platform. Let's just put our other games on it, too. But that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, because Blizzard is so good at this, and like my brother was saying, it's, it's really easy to get it all going, you know, better than a Steam or something like that. And it just it keeps it all running smoothly. So I'm glad that for the people who want to play Destiny 2 on PC, you will have the best experience. It right. looks amazing. So, But I am perfectly happy to play it on my Xbox or PS4. So that'll be next week. Yeah. Let's do a couple quick pieces of news, Sean. Okay, what's happening in the news? Well, um, one of the last holdouts of video games we were waiting for a date on finally got a date. And that's Sonic Forces, which is coming out November 7th. Yeah. So... You know, I almost wish this was in, like, December or something. Get it a little away from October. But November 7th is fine. We'll make sure. it work. I am excited to play this game. Uh, it's coming out November 7th. It's only a $40 game, which is yeah. interesting. And the Day 1 edition includes a controller skin for the console of your choice. But more importantly, it has outfits for your uh, avatar, which is a cool yes. thing in Sonic you, Forces. You can make an original Sonic character, basically, and play yeah. as them. Yep, which is awesome. And it has outfits from six different Sega franchises, including Jet Set Radio, Super Monkey Ball, Puyo Puyo, Knights, and most importantly, Persona 5. Yes, because, you it's tech because Atlas is owned by Sega now, so I guess yep. Persona is technically a Sega franchise. So you, does that feels. You can play a Sonic game as Joker from Persona 5. Yeah. Sean, this is game of the year, right? It's I don't like it's it feels wrong in a weird way. It feels like <laughs> incestuous. It's like it's because again it's something where like it, as I know logically that Sega owns Atlas and has for several years now, but in my heart I have like I haven't put those two things together. So I see that and it's like did someone Photoshop this in there? Is that that's just what the fuck? It's cool, but it's weird. As stupid day one DLC goes, this this is a good one, I have yeah. to say. That looks fun. I also want to talk about, I think it's interesting, because I, I think everyone was surprised that Sonic Forces is coming out at the $40 price point. Yeah. And it's one of several games that are doing this. You know, Uncharted The Lost Legacy we played, that could have been a $60 game a oh, few usually, years ago. Yeah. I but, mean, you know, <clears throat> Microsoft sold Halo 3 ODST for 60 bucks. Yes. So, but it was forty. Knack Two is coming out today, and that's yeah. a forty dollar game. Even though Knack One, people forget, was a full sixty dollar game on launch day, um, to the chagrin of everyone who bought it. Yeah. And you know, this is just something I'm seeing happening more and more. You know, Hellblade, yeah. which we talked about, is a thirty dollar game. Again, I think it could have been sixty a few years ago. Yeah, because Kiwami is thirty bucks. But yeah. Like that would easily you could justify that being a sixty dollar game, especially as so, you know we've played games for a long time. And I don't. I think none of these games would phase us if we had to pay sixty dollars for. No. It. 
And but I do think it's really smart, not just because we get to pay less for games, yeah. but I think these publishers putting out games at varying price points is so smart because Sonic Forces is coming out November seventh. After you know October twenty seventh, you can buy one or all of Super Mario Odyssey, Assassin's Creed Origins, and Wolfenstein two, right? And that's right. just October twenty seventh. That's not the rest yeah. of October. And then if you see Sonic Forces and that's a full sixty, a lot of people are going to look at that and say it's too much. Right, but if you see yeah. it at forty, it tells you two things: one, twenty dollars less; two, it's not the same like scale of game. Yeah, and I think part of that is that, especially in this generation, the games that sell at sixty dollars, we have come to expect such a size and scale from them. And I, I think sometimes to the detriment of everyone. There's, there's sometimes where I look at like an Uncharted: The Lost Legacy, and I'm like, oh, thank God, it's seven hours, you know? Exactly. Yeah, but. We do expect, like, when we buy a $60 game, this is going to be, like, 20 hours minimum or something like that. And so I think it's interesting that people are kind of being forced to rethink price points. But I think it's good for the industry as a whole. Because, you know, we easily could have gone into this generation raising games up to 70 or 80 bucks or something. But we've kept prices at 60 for, like, three generations now. Yeah. And, like, I think actually experimenting with that allows people to make games, you know, at different lengths, at different sizes. You know, a game like Hellblade doesn't have to force in, like, a, you know experience system and a multiplayer mode and all this shit it can just be a game sell it for 30 more people are going to buy it i think it's an interesting trend going on right now because it's just something where that like 30 to 40 dollar price point has been vacant for so long where it used to be like you would have games that would launch at that price point before like and they would be like weird budget titles like sometimes licensed games would be like that like sega back i think on like the dreamcast i want to say like very famously undercut Madden with their NFL game before then Madden just sort of like monopolized the NFL franchise and just killed Sega that way even though the Sega game was better but like there were there have been times where there that price point was filled and for a while now it has been this sort of like you can get games for like a dollar on your phone you can get games for like five bucks on Steam they're like 10 15 and 20 dollar priced indie games that are available on all the marketplaces but then like anything between that kind of like 20 dollar price point and that 60 dollar price point there's kind of nothing there other than like portable games on vita and 3ds sure like yeah yeah, sometimes those would would fill that role but yeah now having the like what are effectively like fully featured games they're just not necessarily of the incredible bulk of something like a witcher 3 or destiny 2 or those kinds of games or in a full uncharted 4 compared to uncharted the lost legacy like like have being able to sort of get those games at that more manageable length and more manageable team sizes and put them out at a price point that then like is you know, more sort of palatable for the consumer, I think is a great idea. And it's something I think it's something that the industry needs to find a way to do because I think it's really clear that that like triple A level development is unsustainable at certain paces and certain rates based on something like, you know, Mass Effect Andromeda and, and what can happen for those games of having such huge production cycles, such massive budgets and such like monstrously, colossally huge teams if one of those games fails, it's going to fail really fucking hard, and you're and the publisher and the developer is going to feel that hit real bad. And having a more expanded and sort of like nuanced portfolio of titles, to me, is a much better solution than like cramming microtransactions into every game, which it feels like that was like that's the other fork in the road that that some developers go down, like the Shadow of War, the the Middle Earth two game has, like, every fucking trailer for that game has been like, oh, there's going to be microtransactions and 500 pre-order bonuses and blah, 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 blah. That makes me, every time I look at it, just want to, like, 
puke and go like, fuck off, stay away from me. The way you're marketing this is so gross. And the way you're like already prepping me to pay like weird extra money on your single player only game. Fuck off. Like instead having being like, we have a bunch of other teams making smaller games with lower risk at different price points. That's a much healthier business model to me. Yeah. The Shadow of War feels like a game two or three years out of time. Right. And tone deaf. And I think it's probably going to flop, but we'll see. Um, but I just I wanted to mention this with Sonic Forces because when I went to pre-order this game, it was just striking to me because six years ago, Sonic Generations paid a full sixty bucks for it, and I doubt Sonic Forces will be shorter than that. Yeah. Sonic Generations is a tiny game, like in comparison to a lot of modern video yeah. games for sure. So it's very interesting to me. Uh, all right, one other piece of news which broke just before we recorded this, which yep. is that Star Wars uh, Lucasfilm has parted ways with Colin Trevorrow who was, since 2015, on board to direct Episode Nine, the conclusion to this new trilogy. And since his, his hiring had baffled pretty much anyone who saw Jurassic World and saw how... But it know. didn't baffle anybody who saw the box office returns of Jurassic World. It baffles even that. No, it does. Because this is an important movie for Disney right. and Lucasfilm. This is the end of your trilogy. This is capping this new era of Star Wars. Not probably not ending it. I just mean it's putting a punctuation point on something yeah. here. No, it's never going no, to end. No, it's never no, going to end. Till we all die and, and burn in the expanded sun. But this is the third film in your trilogy. It's the end of this trilogy, at least. And you go from J.J. Abrams, who is tested and was ready to direct a Star Wars movie. And Ryan Johnson, tested, ready to direct. You saw Ozymandias in yeah. Breaking Bad. Ryan Johnson directed that. Yeah. And... That, that is qualification enough, Sure, that yeah. episode. Uh, but he's done other things, you know, like, these are guys ready to do it. And then it's like, all right, who you get for episode nine? Uh, he made a really bad dinosaur movie. I know it grossed $1.5 billion. That had nothing to do with the movie itself, yeah. obviously. It probably could have grossed more if it were, you know, good. Like, it was just always baffling. And, like, just because he had done one indie movie that I do, I'll admit, I like. It's called Safety Not Guaranteed with Aubrey Plaza. It's a good movie. But somehow that qualified him for Jurassic World. He made Jurassic World. It's terrible. Then he made a movie called The Book of Henry that sat on the shelf for two years then came out this year and was savaged. And all the while, we're sitting here waiting like, Lucasfilm has to replace this guy, right? And get, like, a real filmmaker on board. And finally they have. We don't know who they're replacing him with. They have parted ways. I like to imagine someone at Lucasfilm finally sat down and watched Jurassic World and then went, oh, god damn it. Oh, God, the dinosaurs look so fake. How does CGI look that bad in 2017? That had to be the question. And then they're like, no, we can't do this. But yeah, more more probably predictably is that I think they saw everything that happened with the Han Solo thing and with Rogue One and with the Josh Trank movie that never got made. And and Book of Henry. Yes. And and it's like tragic reception. And I think just the realization that and I think a lot of areas of the industry need to realize this, taking young, untested white dudes who have never set foot on a big film set and trusting them to make your giant blockbuster is stupid. That doesn't Uh mean they're untalented filmmakers. I would like to see more from Colin Trevorrow in the indie space where he started and probably needed to cut his teeth a little more or on TV or something, which is not a put-down. TV is wonderful. But like... That does not qualify you for this. And meanwhile, you know, Patty Jenkins over here for Wonder Woman had to spend 10 years in movie jail after Monster, which won multiple Oscars because it, I don't know, it wasn't a superhero movie. And then finally gets to direct Wonder Woman. And oh, guess what? She was really good at it. You know, like there's just, there's so much of this that is so weird and baffling. And 
yeah, I, I am happy they've done this. I was very worried about Episode Nine. I had no faith in him to direct a Star Wars movie. Jurassic World is terrible. Yada, yada, yada. Hopefully they get a good person to do this. Uh, as I, I, I um, Matt Zoller cites, the, the critic on Twitter said this. Get, get, you know, one, you should look at women because no woman has been hired to do a Star Wars movie yet. They're yeah. making a lot of Star Wars movies. And start with TV. You got Michelle McLaren, for instance, who has not gotten a big action movie yet, but she deserves it. Also a Breaking yeah, Bad Breaking director. Bad, yeah. And many other things. X-Files. Yep, she'd be perfect for it. Mimi Leader is someone in that same chain was suggested who did a lot of the leftovers, but has had like a 30-year career in TV, including directing a lot of ER. And if you've ever seen that, that's an action movie just on TV. Sure. So... Yeah. You know, there's tons of, of women in TV and I mean, film you can get. My get. big pick, like, is something near and dear to this show is Rachel Talley from Doctor Who. Absolutely. Like, like she has, if you've seen Heaven Sent or or the season finale for season 10. Oh, like, she'd be perfect yeah, for a Star Wars movie. utterly perfect for a Star Wars movie. And Rachel Talley and Mimi Leader are both interesting because they briefly had, like, uh, big budget film careers in the 90s. Rachel yeah. Talley did Tank Girl. Yeah. Um, I think Mimi Leader did Deep Impact. I might be wrong on that. One of the giant asteroid movies, there were a lot in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> but anyway. We had a weird anxiety about that before, you know, we had real anxieties about things in the 2000s. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, yeah, so, but, but like, obviously those were not optimal projects for anybody. So, like, it would be great to see them, after decades doing great TV work, come do a Star Wars movie or something. Like, yeah. if you want to think outside the box, because I understand the thinking that. You know, this is a Star Wars thing. It is going to ultimately be kind of producer-controlled. We don't necessarily want to get a Steven Spielberg who would completely do his own thing with it. Which, and he'd be great for it, but that's not going to happen. One, he's just too expensive. Look to, like, TV and people who have these careers and are professionals. And you know they step on set, they're going to do a good job. The three women we just named are, like, guarantees for that, you know? Um, and then there are other people. Uh, my joke tweet, which I was sad, no one responded to this, but I thought it was good. David Lynch almost directed Star Wars Return of the Jedi. It is true. David Lynch is free. Twin Peaks is done. They just fired Colin Trevorrow. Let's make this happen. Yes. Let's just let... And if it needs to be an 18-hour Showtime movie, I'm okay with that. Like, just... I also... I Kyle McLaughlin should be in Star Wars also. Oh, that'd That's be just, great. That also would need to be a thing there. Absolutely, he could be Luke's long-lost twin. Sure. Fraternal twin. Okay, yeah. I guess he already had one with Leia, but, you know, whatever. Triplets, then. Yeah, absolutely. There's always the weird secret hidden twin. It's very rare that you see the secret hidden triplet. He'd be a There were already twins, but there was another one, and so they were actually triplets the whole time. I'm just saying, Sean, look me in the eyes and tell me Kyle MacLachlan as the lost Skywalker triplet would not be the greatest thing to ever happen to Star Wars. It would be amazing, yeah. Yes. No, uh, joking about that, but there are lots of good choices out there. I hope they make a good choice, and I hope Lucasfilm can kind of get the ship back on track yeah. after firing a really, like, a DC level of directors. Yeah, because it is something where, I mean, you know, I haven't seen Jurassic World, but so I just take it on faith that it's a terrible movie, because basically everybody whose opinion I respect says it's a terrible movie. But so, but so it's, like, easy to look at the Colin Trevorrow stuff and be like... Thank God they fucking got this dude off the movie and going to find someone better. But it is, if you remove the specific quality of the person um, out of the equation, it is troubling to see, like, basically every single Star Wars movie that they've made, other than, I guess, like, Episode 7 and Episode 8 have not had much turmoil. But all the other ones, which is, like, three movies now, have had, like, pretty significant behind-the-scenes turmoil to the point of having something that's nearly unprecedented in firing the directors halfway through the movie. Yes. 
And, you know, my one worry is that they're going to go forward with things like getting Ron Howard to come in and get kind of boring studio directors to do these. That's not what I want. You know, like the names we were suggesting earlier, those are exciting. Like they're known quantities, but they do very exciting work. uh, And I think would have a vision for it. Um, You want someone in that line. You know, J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson are really good choices. I think we can all see that. Um, the Han Solo thing is weird because they hired comedy directors and then the comedy directors thought they were making a comedy and then Kathleen Kennedy was like, why is this funny? And, and Lawrence Kasson was like, why is this funny? And then they fired them. At least that's the Hollywood Reporter story. Right, yeah. So who knows? But yeah, I, I want Star Wars to be good. That's all. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Episode 8 looks good. Yeah. You know, we just had Force Friday. People looking at all the Snoke toys. I'm kidding. I don't know what all that is about. Stop. Yeah, just stop, John. I mean, do you, I, I'm so out of the loop on all that stuff with the Force Friday. Yeah. I don't really even understand. So it's the day you can buy the toys, is that right? I don't fucking know. Why are you okay. looking at me like I, I don't know, know this shit? You're bigger into Star Wars than I am. Yeah, but I'm not into bullshit. Okay. Really what we all want is them to just make animated movies with the Star Wars Rebels. Yeah, no, that is, I, right? absolutely. Yeah, just like keep those those people together. Just keep on making those. That's all That's all I kind of need at some point. All right. Let's talk about some video games. Yes. All right. You guys heard me talk about Mario plus Rabbids a little bit last week. So I'm going to pass over to Sean. Sean, talk about Yakuza Kiwami. Yes. So Yakuza Kiwami um, is the full remake like uh, like complete ground like like tip to toe remake of the original Yakuza game which released um in the on the PlayStation 2 in 2005 it uses the Yakuza 0 engine Yakuza 0 which came out over here earlier this year one of my favorite games easily of this year um and and was my first Yakuza game so and and Yakuza 0 being a prequel obviously given the 0 in the title so this was sort of like part of a big project that that the Yakuza team is doing of kind of like revamping some of their original stuff because they also have announced um, Yakuza Kiwami 2, which is a remake of Yakuza 2, is going to come out in Japan in December. And, and like, sort of doing that as the Yakuza franchise is moving forward in new games with a new protagonist and everything. So they're kind of, like, finishing up and sort of, like, you know, tightening up the Kazuma Kiryu story, who's the, the Kiryu's the main character for the Yakuza series thus far. And so, yeah, um, Yakuza Kiwami, like I said earlier, it's only $30, which is fucking crazy to me because you could so easily sell this for 60 bucks this is not an hd update this is not they took the ps2 game and and like you know made it widescreen and everything which would have been fine there's a lot of good things like that yeah no that's you know it's like uncharted the nathan drake collection or something like that there have been or like the last of us remastered there have been lots of very good like you know nice high resolution texture like updates of games that have come out and i'm fine with those like i that's a good way to go back and enjoy older games but, like, they decided... Because the Yakuza team, as far as I can tell, are, like, utter fucking masochists. Because they put out, like, one to two games every single year in this franchise. And they are huge games. And they are masters at, like, taking, making use of the limited resources they have. And getting the utmost, like, 120% out of them. So, instead of just doing that, like, nice sort of, like, HD update of this, like, good but aged PS2 game... And, and, like, get it out on a modern console for a, like, a new audience, particularly for the West, which Yakuza 0 and Yakuza Kiwami have sold really well in the West for this franchise. Instead of just doing that, they've decided, let's completely remake the game. Let's add in a huge amount of new content. Um, like, like, and, like, the amount of content you would expect from a modern Yakuza game. So it's, like, as far as I can determine, I've watched a lot of the, um, like, a big playthrough of Yakuza 1 
on the PS2 on YouTube just as like a reference point for myself. Obviously, like not going to where I haven't seen story stuff. But I kind of check in on it every now and again to sort of like get a sense of how the original game was. And it's like there's a huge amount of new stuff, both of like added new content into the main story, a huge amount of new sub story stuff, like all new mini games. The game obviously, you know, Yakuza Zero was originally, and that engine is designed for the PlayStation 3. So it doesn't look like a nice modern PS4 game, but it looks much better than the PS2 game. It has, you know, the the combat system from Yakuza Zero, which has four different combat styles as opposed to the one combat style for the original game. And that like system is updated from Yakuza Zero to be even better. It's just, it is a new game, effectively. And if and if your starting point for this franchise was Yakuza 0, like myself, you could almost, it's almost seamless. Like, there are a couple of places in, like, a bit of, like, the pacing of the story in some of those things that you can tell that this was originally a story from 2005, that, like, the core of the story, there are some, like, rough edges that don't exist in Yakuza 0, um, that you can tell, like, how much that team has learned. But they have done so much in sanding over those things and, like, finding the heart of that story and bringing and updating the heart of that story out with some like extra scenes that they have added in that you can basically think of Yakuza 0 as being Yakuza 1 and this being Yakuza 2 and you don't really bat an eye. And in fact, I would recommend if you're sort of like thinking about getting into this series to play Yakuza 0 first because this Kiwami is very conscious of the fact that Yakuza 0 has come out and it, it heavily references um, specific events and characters. And they're actually like basically side quests that are sequels to side quests from Yakuza 0 in Kiwami that are pretty fucking amazing to find. Um, so in, in such a way that I think even more than Zero being a prequel, um, you benefit from having that background as opposed to, you know, you can go into Zero without the knowledge of where the franchise goes. And that game is designed and that story is designed to be totally palatable in that way. Kiwami, I think there's a huge amount of benefit from having the background of Zero and the, the characters from that setting up what happens in Kiwami. So that's sort of like the basic of what the game is. But then just in terms of the quality, I'm having such an unbelievably good time playing this game. It has been the right stretch. Like having about six to eight months between now and, and having played um, Yakuza 0 is the right amount of time to sort of have like let that sit in my memory. And then coming back up and starting this game... And it's just, the Yakuza games are such a special thing. Um, for those who haven't played it, like, it is kind of, it, it's, I feel like there are two things. There's a little bit of Shinmu in there. There's a little bit of that, like, contained open world and that kind of, like, methodical, slow storytelling style. And there's just a really great sense of pace and, and sort of, like, sitting with the characters in Yakuza that's something so rare to have a story like that in video games that is set in a contemporary setting that has like heightened elements with the crime drama stuff but there's also a lot of storytelling that just involves like characters sitting in a room and talking about stuff and like you know like dealing with their emotional issues in a way that you never fucking get in an action game ever and so it has that side of it but then also the the other half of Yakuza that I love is that it feels like this franchise dropped out of an alternative timeline where the like side scrolling beat em up games like Streets of Rage and Final Fight from the like arcade days or Double Dragon got their like Super Mario 64 or Ocarina of Time style or like Metal Gear Solid style total revamp in the three in the third dimension. Okay, now you fucking sold me cuz Streets of Rage is one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, because so. like what it does is it, it takes what to me feels like the heart of those games, which is this sort of like power fantasy and this like really great sense of setting and style that those games had 
but the gameplay style of those games has aged really poorly because it's just you know walking from left to right and using a very limited move set to fight a series of very repetitive enemies and it's something that back in the like the arcade days that worked fine for what they were because you were only playing them in short settings and stuff like that but when you you know i remember when they put out the turtles in time game on xbox live arcade and i got that because i remembered playing that in like chuck e cheeses or whatever when i was a kid and loving it and then playing it on the Xbox 360, even having some friends over and being like, this game does not play that well anymore. Like, it doesn't have a hook. Yakuza feels like it takes those ideas of, like, that kind of power fantasy, that kind of style, and then, like, reimagines it and revises it for this, like, third dimension where there's so much more possible and really fleshes it out with, like, you know, much more, like, detailed and thicker storytelling. But then also just the power fantasy of Yakuza of going and just... Just fucking people up in this game. And the boss fights are incredible. I had a boss fight um, just the other day. Or like this whole series of, of events. of Like this long fight sequence that led up to a boss fight. That reminded me of how good the action set pieces in Yakuza are. When they really fucking go for it. And, it only, and it, one of the things that helps it work is that they don't go for it all the time. They have a lot of restraint for most of the missions. That there's like small little action set pieces. And then you have a big one where... Um, basically two pretty major story characters have been injured and are bleeding and are fleeing. And so you have to go, and this is about halfway, maybe like two thirds of the way through the story probably, because I haven't finished it yet. But you have to you follow them and are trying to sort of track down where they're going. And you keep on getting phone calls from one of them who's telling you like where they're at. And you're following this like blood trail trying to get them because they're being chased by this, you know, sort of like rival Yakuza gang. And eventually they end up holding up on the rooftop of this apartment complex and so you go into like a nearby apartment complex and to go to the roof and then get to them. But then all the other Yakuza guys are there. So you have to fight and you're like fight your way up this, this apartment building. Just like probably fight your way through like 50 guys at some point. But they're a bunch of really, really weak enemies. So you're just going and you're making use of all like the, because this is pretty deep into the game. So all the skills you have unlocked to just do the worst shit to these people. Just like hit them in the face with baseball bats, slam their fucking heads into walls. There's one move that's so good on the rush style that is basically, it's this kind of counterattack you can do if you have a meter charged up. That's this really elaborate animation of the guy coming to like do an uppercut on Kiryu and Kiryu elbows his hand in and like breaks his hand and then just beats the shit out of him. It's just, it's really good, really violent shit. I love the gap between like the Yakuza media genre in Japan and the reality of the Yakuza in Japan. Right, yeah. Because like a a real world Yakuza game would basically be you're like a slightly sleazy accountant, like Uh a loan shark, right? Because like they don't actually use guns. Because it's really dangerous in yeah. Japan. And they don't kill people that much because they have deals with the police. But, like, I love in movies, it's just like, we're going to kill all of them. But, well, Kitty doesn't kill them. He just, just beats slaps, the shit out of them. Right. I mean, literally, with one of the moves you can unlock, slaps the ever-living shit out of a dude, which is pretty great. <laughs> it's like the sumo slap takedown that you can do from a distance. And he just rushes in on dude, shoves his palm in his face, and then just slaps him across the face five or six times, and then slaps his head into the ground. That is wonderful. But anyways, you fight your way to the top of this big apartment complex, just, like, mow through just, like, reams of dudes, and it's basically, you know, like, the the hallway fight scene from Old Boy, 
only it's about like twice as long and you're controlling it. And then you get to the top of the apartment complex and then there are guys on the rooftop and now you're like jumping from rooftop to rooftop, beating the crap out of people along the way. Like like after you finish each um, fight encounter, there's a nice like animated transition that goes into the next one. You're like throwing people off of roofs and shit like that. And you're jumping, you're jumping, and you're jumping. And eventually you catch up to the people who have been um, hurt that you're trying to go rescue. And then a very huge, big, dramatic you know, a scene, cutscene plays out that then like sets up this boss really well who's this fucking asshole and now you have to fight this fucking asshole who you really hate and it's this really great boss fight with this dude who's um, this is one of the best boss fights I have to have had in the game so far where he's this very nimble character who has two pistols and so he's jumping around all over the place and and how I fought him was I used my like really agile fighting style as well and I had upgraded it to the point that I could do five like basically dodge steps in a row and we were on a small rooftop so I could kind of if I changed my chained my dodges together I could cover the whole span of the rooftop in one chain of dodges and so it was this dude jumping and running away from me trying to shoot me and me basically literally dodging bullets and dashing around this roof and getting up close and beating the shit out of him with brass knuckles and it was just, it's one of the most satisfying things you can do in a video game is participate in those action sequences that culminate in what are, for me, the most fun boss fights I've had in any game is the boss fights in Yakuza 0, now Yakuza Kiwami, because they set up the characters so well in the stories, and then the mechanics of the boss fights are so good at just making you, you hate these people, and you want to hurt these people, and you can hurt these people in interesting, creative ways and express that through your game mechanics because the the fighting system is so you know rich in all the different styles you can use and all the different um, types of moves you unlock for the four different styles that you can really tackle the encounters in a number of different ways and i think the right way to play the combat in this game is to like like imagine like what would be the coolest way i can do this and try to enact that really cool way and use a large variety of moves and like make sure you're like doing all this like really crazy cool shit and using all the weapons and stuff like that and so yeah, all that stuff that like all the stuff you loved from Yakuza Zero, if you played that game, or all the stuff I loved from Yakuza Zero, is represented 100% in Kiwami. Um, the story is great, even if there are a couple of like weird pacing issues where there are like they maybe kind of introduce a bit too many like new villains and new characters and kind of deal with them very quickly, which feels like a very you know like like 2005 thing of like like GTA Vice City San Andreas kind of thing of just like not for some of the characters it feels like you should maybe have like cut half of these characters out and then set up the other characters stronger so that they reoccur across the story instead of setting them up and then dealing with them and setting them up and dealing with them. It kind of has that issue. But other than that, what they do to flesh out um, the relationship between Kiryu and Nishikiyama, who Nishikiyama is the main villain of the game, who's a major character in Yakuza 0 because he's Kiryu's friend. But in... Um, Kiwami is basically the plot setup is Kiryu, the main character, is a high-ranked lieutenant in the Dojima Yakuza family, which is a subsidiary of the Tojo family. And um, early on in the game, like it's the, the game starts in the mid-90s, and Kiryu's like really high up, and he's about at the point where he's going to probably be able to get his own family because he's done such a great job. And kind of Yakuza Zero is the story of how he gets to the point of being that good at being like this like kind of honorable but very effective Yakuza guy. 
And so he's about to get his own family. And then a whole series of events sort of kicks off that relates around um, your two childhood friends, Nishiyama and then Yumi, who Yumi is, is this woman who grew up in the orphanage with you that, that Kiryu grew up at. And she's sort of sexually assaulted by the Dojima, uh, the head of the clan. And Nishikiyama is there when it's happening and he kills Dojima. This is, again, this is all that happens in like the first hour of the game. And Kiryu decides to take the rap. And so Kiryu goes in um, and... Uh, goes to jail for basically 10 years and comes out of jail in 2005 when the game is fully set. And when he gets out, Nishikiyama has turned bad. And Yakuza 1, it's just kind of that, and Nishikiyama's just bad, and you never kind of get, from what I've seen of the story, at least from watching the YouTube videos so far, they never kind of get deeper into that. The big thing that Kiwami has added in terms of the main story is that at the beginning of each chapter, there's a really nice like three to five minute cutscene that plays that um, follows up on what happened to Nishikiyama. Like the first one happens immediately after Kiryu is arrested. And then at the beginning of each chapter, you kind of like jump further in time and see how he goes from being Kiryu's best friend at the beginning of the game and how the guilt of what happened to Kiryu and what he's let happen to Kiryu and other things that happens to him slowly leads him to this point where he becomes corrupted and, and sort of decides to take become like this incredibly bloodthirsty Yakuza leader who has accrued a huge amount of power. And that building of tension of seeing how he goes from being the nice guy you know from Yakuza 0 in the beginning of the game to being the villain you're encountering and, and ratcheting, ratcheting up that tension every time you revisit that scene you see him go a little bit deeper, like make a one more like bad choice at another crossroads and see that like it's building up the tension to their confrontation at the end of the game so well. And I'm so excited to see where it's going to go because it is, for, for me who started with Yakuza 0, it's a confrontation that has been building you know, for in game terms for like 60 hours or something for me. And so having the, I think the ways that they have fleshed out that side of the story are really strong and make it that if you're someone who has played Yakuza 1 um, already on the PS2, I think this would be a, also a really strong game to revisit, even if you have experience with it. Awesome. I, I want to play these games so badly. Yeah, they're really fucking good. There's too many fucking games, but I want to play these so badly. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm playing games with talking rabbits and this whole thing. Do the talking rabbits, you know, throw people off of rooftops and beat people with, like, spiked knuckles and, like, break people's legs with bowling balls? No, but to transition to Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle. Okay. I mean, it's... The guns are very cartoony. Mario shoots, like, honey and ink and stuff. But there is something perennially surreal playing Mario plus Rabbids when you've got Luigi, who is your long-range, basically your sniper in this game... And he'll just duck out from behind cover, raise his gun, and shoot someone with like this bounce ability that will just wipe them off the map from across the map. And you're like, damn, Luigi, you're brutal. And it is, you know, it's not quite them like breaking yeah. someone's thumbs. But I it's mean, brutal. there's there's a move in Yakuza where you literally pick a man up, spin him around in midair, jump into the air, and slam him headfirst into the ground. So... <laughs> It's maybe. It sounds like Mario Rabbids Kingdom Battle is not quite at that level. No, no, no. But compared to most Mario games, it's, oh, yes. it's approaching that. Yes, absolutely. Mario caps some motherfuckers. Good. Anyway, it's about damn time. So let's talk Mario. Um, we're going to talk about some really weird shit later in this episode of Twin <laughs> yeah. Peaks. Yeah, we are. And still, one of the weirdest things that I think I've thought, experienced in this last week is realizing that Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle, a game that we thought probably would never exist, let alone that we would want, is absolutely and without question one of the best games I've played this year. 
like, mm. easily is going to be in my top ten, unless, like, there's a bunch of shit that pushes it out, which I don't know. It's phenomenal. So I finished this game yesterday, which is to say I beat, you know, like, the last boss and saw the credits and all that. There is still a lot. This game has a ton of replay value. A lot is in it that you can go back and do. If you were looking at this and saying, why is this a $60 game? It's totally worth it. It's a, it's a long campaign, and there's a lot you can go back and do. It is totally worth the price. But it is just, it's so good in every way. The, the battle system and level design is so addicting and fun. All the stuff you do in between that is great. Um, the story and the presentation, I think they do a beautiful, very fun job with. And just, I had a smile on my face whenever I wasn't like, you know, had my head in my hands like, oh my god, how am I going to beat this? Because this game, a game called Mario Plus Rabbids, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. You know, mm -hmm. um, it is a really, really great game and just a wonderful early title for the Switch where like I look at this and obviously it's got Mario characters in it. So Nintendo was heavily involved, but this is technically a third party game. It's an Ubisoft game. How many consoles get this good a third party game this close to launch? Mm -hmm. It's nuts. Like what was Ubisoft's big title on the Wii U? Zombie U or a shitty port of Assassin's Creed 3. Right, yeah. And this time we get this, which is this wonderful, warm, loving embrace of all things Nintendo and a great game on its own. That's just awesome, you know? So I want to talk about the game a little bit. I have some notes so I can kind of focus my thoughts. I'm going to go through a couple of points of why this game is so good. The first and foremost thing is that, you know, if you haven't seen yet, this game is a tactical RPG a la Fire Emblem, more a la XCOM, kind of in that vein, yeah. where it's more 3D and has, like, a, a, a map where movement is a little more important. And, like, cover systems and stuff Cover like systems, yeah, exactly. Um, but the battle system and the level design in general is just absurdly good. And this is the part where it's just, like, clearly people who are very, very good at just the basics of, like, game design and strategy made this game... And that underlying everything is what makes this more than a novelty because I think this game would still be worth it if it were just this loving letter to Nintendo and it was really funny, but it was kind of light and fluffy, you know? That's how I view a lot of the Mario RPG games to a certain degree. You know, there are definitely pockets where I think they've gone deeper and gotten better, like a Paper Mario, but generally it's more just about kind of laying back and having fun. Right. This game is deep and smart and it will kick your fucking ass to the degree where... There is a reason why you can easily select easy mode at the start of every fight, because otherwise, kids would, like, cry themselves to death playing this game, <laughs> you know? And this is a game, at least somewhat for kids, it's called sure. Mario Plus Rabbids, right? Um, but I have been playing this kind of game for a while, and it still kicked my ass. But, like, every level, every combat encounter you do feels so creative, so thoughtful, and especially by the time you get to Worlds 3 and 4... Just extremely challenging, but never to me in a way that's unfair. One of the things that I think it does that's so innovative to me is it uses a, a much smaller set of tools than other tactical RPGs. Like we talked last week that like XCOM has a really complicated cover system, yeah. from what I understand. This is very simple. It's either half cover, full cover, no cover, and that's either a 0% chance, a 50% chance, or a 100% chance. And that uh, pertains to the enemy, and that pertains to you. And in every battle, you will have three units and three units only, and you will always have Mario, and then you can choose two others. One of them has to be a rabid. Um, you can have two rabbits with you if you want, but you can also have one Mushroom Kingdom character. And there's eight units overall. There's not a ton. There's no permadeath. All these other systems, like, there's not, there is a skill tree, but you don't, there's not a, an associated, like, experience point thing where, like, you level up and you have to go through all this. And, you know, there's, there's a pretty, all of it is very streamlined and focused. And yet, I think it's kind of a breakthrough for me with this kind of game because, because the developers know exactly what tools you have to work with. And they can plan for like all possible contingencies much easier. 
I think they're able to make the game so hard in such creative ways. Where like whenever the game was challenging me, it wasn't just because oh, they put a lot of high-level enemies here, or the map is really big and hard to navigate. It's like there's a specific kind of combat puzzle going on here that I have to figure out, and I have to make use of all the strategy available to me. And at some points, the strategy, the way it all chains together and stacks up, is really complicated and really makes you think. And I think because they've whittled down the tool set so much, it, it really does feel like, you know, it's easy to compare a tactical RPG to chess, this is something that I actually would say feels more like something like that, where it's not so complex, there's so many contingencies going on. And I love that kind of thing. You guys know how much I love Fire Emblem, for instance. But I do think that simplification allows them to do so much with it. Like, And I have such good stories from this, because the best tactical RPGs, this is a genre that is at its best when it is at its most challenging. And you yeah. can't say that about all games. Like... We love Uncharted. I do. I would never want to play Uncharted on like the crushing difficulty. That's yeah. just no fun. Or like Yakuza is like yeah. you, you want to be powerful enough to be able right. to like smash fools, not necessarily to have to like block for ninety percent of the fight. Right. Exactly. So like, but this kind of game, you want it to be ass kicking, challenging. You're going to have to do each fight a couple of times to get it under your feet because that's when it's at its most fun. And this game has that, and it leads to you have to make the tough decisions. It's not permadeath. You're not, like, murdering Luigi. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But there is so much to it where you have to make the tough calls sometimes. And, like, I think, to me, the best story in the whole game that I had from out of this was in the final battle against uh, Mega Dragon Bowser, which is your final enemy, which is great. And they do this thing in that fight that um, it's an escalation of, like, each boss battle does something like this, where Mega Dragon Bowser has a shit ton of health points. He has 1,600 HP. For reference, your the biggest enemy will have, like, 450 HP. Okay. So he's got a lot of HP. And when you get it down to zero, he will revive that twice. So there's th- you have to do him all the way to zero three times. Okay. And on each wave, he will spawn with him a cadre of enemies. And they're all, like, for each of those three waves, it's a different, like, set of enemies, but they're all very challenging enemies to work with, and they all have different movement abilities and stuff. And so I had to knock my head against this fight for a good hour, hour and a half before I could start to figure out really, like, what is the best strategy for each individual part of this? Because my first time through, I only barely got to the end of the second wave with Mario, the only one left alive with 10 HP, and then I realized, oh, I have to do this all a third time. Mm -hmm. Um, So... On the, on the run that actually won me this fight, one of my strategies was I had my main crew, which was always Mario, not always, but uh, my, the characters I like to use most, was Mario, Luigi, and Rabid Mario, who is fucking awesome. And I, just, I liked that as like the two bros sure. and then Rabid version. And then this guy cosplaying is one of the bros. Right, exactly. But nobody cosplays as Luigi, because... There is a rabid Luigi. I mean, but he's not on the team. No, he's come on. Like, who cosplays as Luigi? Anyway, but like, because Luigi is a great. Luigi is so badass in this game. If you're a Luigi fan, he is a powerhouse in this game. I always liked having Luigi. If you're a Luigi fan, you're a beleaguered person. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you like Luigi's Mansion and Luigi's Mansion 2 because they're not making any more. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. But you get a great Luigi in this. So I would have Luigi, you know, who is this ranged fighter, and I'd have Mario, who's good at everything, because he always is, and then Rabid Mario, who is like this close-up brawler. But anyway, in the second wave, you get these four enemies who spawn, who are these big rabbits who have like 500 HP, and they have big shields, so you cannot hit them from the front, and they have a gun that's pretty powerful. So you have to be careful with them. And I... With each of these, like, what you want to do is get rid of as many of, like, the, the relatively small fry as you can so you can just spam the boss, right? And that's what you want to get to because the boss, you can figure out ways where the boss really can't hurt you. It's all the other stuff going on on the map. 
So Rabid Mario has an ability where he can magnetize enemies into him. So you put him in a spot, and within a range, all enemies near him will come within like one block of him, right? Yeah. So that's an ability. And I had used this at several points in the fight where I would use that, and then Mario and Luigi both have an ability where when an enemy moves, they will automatically, during the enemy's turn, fire a shot at them. And I had upgraded that by the final fight that Mario and Luigi each had two of these hits when I activated that. So how I got through the first wave of little enemies was I would just have Rabid Mario placed in a certain spot, use the Magnesis, and then Mario and Luigi would just get each two shots off on these guys and kill at least a couple of them. And then Rabid Mario has a big hammer where he can do like area of effect damage, right? Yeah. So, but for the second wave, this was getting considerably harder because again, you basically have to get up close with these guys because of the shield issue. So, and I didn't have the hero shot thing, which is where Mario and Luigi can shoot on the other person's turn at this point, just because I had, it was on uh, cooldown at the moment. So I sent Rabbit Mario right into the middle of the fray, and I had him magnetize all four of the big guys right to him. And then they would all be in one spot, and I had a couple of ways I could take them out. I knew in the back of my head, though, this, this posed a risk to, to Rabbit Mario. So I had him call them all in. Rabbit Mario used his hammer, got a lot of their health down, but they're not dead yet. Now, I could have Mario go in and use his hammer, and he could take a lot of those guys out. It would probably take out Rabbit Mario too, but then Mario would be left exposed. That's the problem. Luigi, however, all of his stuff is ranged, and he has a move where it's a sentry, which is a little car that will go out, and it will blow up, and it will do a huge amount of area of effect damage. And I saw it, and I just saw the like X icons over characters of like how many of the enemies I would kill. One of those Xs was over Rabbit Mario, though. So it's like Rabbit Mario called them in, he got them down far enough, and Luigi could send in this little car and kill three of the four big guys. It would sadly, it would bomb Rabbit Mario to hell. But I was like, and I looked, luckily it was Rabbit Mario. Mario. Yeah, so it's like you can make more of them. You know, they're not real; they're clones. Probably, I don't know what the backstory is for the Rabbit. I don't either. But, like, it was, like, a tough choice because, more so because I wouldn't have Rabbit Mario for the rest of the fight. But I'm like, if I get rid of these guys, second wave, and then Mario and Luigi have a lot of health, I can probably, Mario and Luigi together, can take care of the rest of this because we'll be clean. And, like, Mario could take out the last guy from behind. It would be fine. So I sent it in and blew Rabbit Mario to hell and, and threw the enemies. It's just moments like that where it's like, this is a good game. Because those are strategies you have to think through and, like, tough calls you have to make. And then you just have to, like, think through the psychology of Rabid Mario in that last moment. Like, what does, does he feel betrayed or does he accept what's happened as, like, well, a necessary cost for the mission, for the greater good? There's a great Did little, Rabid Mario give his life? There's a great it. little character animation. When you hover over him with, like, the icon, he'll go, like, and it, it, it says he's going to die if you do this. He'll go, like, what? What? And he's, like, really freaked out. So it's like... So he didn't... He no, didn't he was not in on this. his understanding of, like, the sacrifice he was committing. It was more like... He, we just we have to waste him. Like there's yeah. no other option here. Yes, I know that he doesn't accept this. He doesn't understand this. He does not want this. But it's going to happen. Yeah. So anyway, all of that is so great. And then there's these in between sections where you like ex- there's four worlds in the game. Worlds one, two, three, four, and like the the levels are scattered throughout. There's there's eight chapters plus the final boss chapter, and each of those has at least like two fights. So there's a lot of combat stuff. And in between all those sections, you just explore that world. And you've seen this in the trailers where all the characters are walking around together. And you're exploring the world. You have to solve puzzles to move around and, like, to find little chests with items and stuff in them. And those parts are really wonderful. Like, in fact, I actually think they're a very clever way to work with the pacing issues that these games can sometimes hit. Because in most tactical RPGs, the only significant gameplay thing is the battles themselves, right? Sure. 
And what you get between those levels is, in a lot of other games, mostly story. And maybe you'll have some map exploration or time spent working with your units and things like that. And it can be kind of, in some way, it can be a little, like, grindy in some ways. And I think generally if it's a story-heavy game, that's fine because you get around that with... You get through a level and that's when you get the next big chunk of story and that's fine. That's how Fire Emblem generally does it. Uh, Fire Emblem Echoes this year actually had a ton of creative solutions to this that I talked about when that came out. But here, because Mario Plus Rabbids is not super story-heavy, like there's not enough going on story-wise between the battles um, to warrant that, it, it really they do need those puzzles and the explorations just so you have a little change of pace between battles. Especially when the game gets tough, you don't just kind of want to jump from one right into the next one. Mm-hmm. And those puzzles give you a nice little cool-down. The puzzles get very hard at a certain point, but they're all very fun. Like, the graphics are so nice. I think there's such good imagination in how they put all the worlds together. World 3, in particular, is this basically haunted, like, boo land, and it's just, it looks fantastic. It, it makes me want, if they ever make another Mario Party, Ubisoft should do it they're like really good at putting these sure. like mario collages together in a really fun way i mean it could be the mario and rabbits party because the rabbits started out as kind of a like mario party clone so be, it, it be, comes full circle i'd be fine with that the rabbits actually i think you know i don't know anything else about the rabbits other than what i saw in this game and they were a lot of fun here so maybe like they're more annoying on their own but with mario Probably. they are they are tempered because the the mario characters are pretty calm <laughs> right all, yeah all said but yeah, no, uh, I do like that puzzle and exploration stuff. It's really, like I said, a good change of pace. And like you can go back, because they, they have a lot of stuff that like in a Metroid sense is like walled off to you early on because you don't have an ability yet. And now I'm going back through, like I've done World 1 today, and go back and find all the stuff I didn't see before. Uh, and then you get to the presentation of the game, which is just all such a labor of love. You know, I think the game is a little visually bland at first, but it opens up really fast. And as I said, World 3 is great. World 4 is like a, a, a fight into hell where, like, they have Bowser's castle in the middle of, like, this... You have to go through this whole, like, lava cavern and all this shit. It's like the most badass version of Bowser's castle you'll ever see. And that's all great. Um, and then the writing, is from start to finish, is so funny. And, and it feels very true to, like, other Mario RPG games... Like Paper Mario, Mario and Luigi, Legend of the Seven Stars, all those things. But also looser and just a little more unhinged because you've got the rabbits in there. Uh, and I think it really like has the pulse of each of the characters just right. The best one in the whole game is Bowser Jr., who is sort of the primary antagonist for most of the game. Best use of Bowser Jr., I've ever seen in a Mario game. He is okay. so entertaining here. They, yeah, they, how high of a bar is that for you? Not very high. Okay. But like they have... Because they really gave him a character where like... The whole thing here is that Bowser is on vacation, and Bowser Jr. has had the run of the place, and it just so happens when Bowser Jr. has the run of the place, that's when this incident with the rabbits happens, okay. and so Bowser Jr. is just kind of causing chaos, but he keeps getting like phone calls from his dad, checking in on him, and he's having to make stories up, and he's constantly like, he has these funny expressions where like clearly he's just this insecure little kid inside who's acting out, that's how they've kind of cast him in this, and near the end of the game when like, he has taken things too far and things have gone to shit and now his dad has been transformed into a mega dragon. He's just asking Mario like, I'm sorry I was so mean to you guys. Can you please help my dad? He's going to be so mad at me. And it's really cute and funny. He's just like this dorky kid who's like doing bad shit while his dad is out of town. And now like the chickens have come home to roost. And he is hilarious and I love him. And nice. I would take a spin off about this Bowser Jr. It's great. So. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is that I enjoyed the whole game. All of it is really good. But when it shifts into a higher gear, you can feel it, like when the game is just on fire. All of World 3 is like that. I think World 3 is the highlight of the game. It's all great. But the World 3 boss, 
I don't know if you guys have seen any of the clips of this online, but the whole time you're like, there's some person you've heard about throughout this whole world through that you're going to face called Mr. Tom Fan. And then you finally find out Tom Fan is an anagram for Phantom. Very simple anagram. Okay. And the Phantom is this like thing Bowser Jr. has created with the evil rabid technology, whatever, that is this like Phantom of the Opera style opera singing rabid. Okay. And he, for that boss fight, sings you like a full opera song about the Mario universe. And it is hilarious and amazing. And if you don't own this game, you need to watch this on YouTube because it's fucking hilarious. And then the boss fight wrapped around all that because there's multiple parts to the song and the song kind of carries through the boss fight in some ways. The boss fight itself is so creative. It's this whole thing where you have to like take out these little power generators so you can get a hit off on the boss. And it is very challenging, but like the right level of challenging where it carries you through this big set piece, but not so much that you're going to have to see the set piece ten dozen times or anything. It is so funny. It is so true to the, the roots of the game's you know, gameplay bona fides. And it is just the kind of thing that you would never see in another Mario game. And it is like the way they, the lyrics that they write and have this opera guy sing are hilarious and if you're a Mario fan will just it's a it's a huge treat and that was the best part of the game and World 4 at the end of the game is really really good but could, didn't quite live up to that it's kind of sure. it's kind of like the second act thing in an action movie where you're like that was so good no matter what comes next you can't quite live up to uh-huh. it Mario plus Rabbids man this game should not have been as good as it was. Yeah, it's really just absurd that it exists at all, but it is yes. extra special absurd that it is actually really good. I mean, I was thinking about this. This would be up there only with Assassin's Creed 4 as like my favorite Ubisoft games I've ever played. And I don't play a ton of Ubisoft mm. games. Like I've never really been into other Assassin's Creed. I've tried both Far Cry 3 and 4 and they're not quite my thing, but like I really love this game and I just it's it's crazy that it exists and is this good. So, yeah. yeah. And you don't have to grade it on a curve. It's just a great game. So, that's awesome. Well, Sean. Yeah. You want to talk about something maybe even weirder? Sure. You want to talk some Twin Peaks? Let's talk about Twin Peaks. So, Sean, Twin Peaks The Return. The show we have been talking about, podcasting about incessantly for 13 yeah. weeks now and 18 hours of TV came to an end this Sunday night. It did. With part 17 and part 18, which are two fairly distinct episodes. This was not like a, a, a clean two-hour finale. Although 17 leads into 18 way more clearly than oh, most sure, Twin sure. Peaks episodes do. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. They, they deserve to be seen together, but like we can't just like gloss over that they're yeah, two Yeah, it's not episodes. quite like episode one and two, which, which were completely seamless. I mean, quite literally. Yes. Yeah, this one you have to, if you're watching it on like the Showtime app, you had to go and launch the right. other episode. Um... So, there is so much to talk about. Uh, we will go through our traditional point-by-point analysis with my, my notes I took. But I think I want to start this with a bigger discussion. Okay. Because there's so much to say just about, you know, I, I want to know what you thought of the ending, what it made you feel in general, how this kind of puts a bow on Twin Peaks. I have talked a lot about this on Twitter, and I wrote um, an essay that you can read on the site that was just basically some reflections on how the ending made me feel. More about Part 18 than 17, but both of them together. Uh, and I think it's it's perfect. I think it's a challenging ending, but I think it. Uh, I really had no doubt from the moment it went to black that like that was right. Mm-hmm. And I have not talked to you about it yet, so Sean, I want you to start us off. 
Do you agree? Yeah. Disagree? What did you oh, think? Oh, I absolutely agree that I think it's it's an incredible ending, and it is something where it is kind of because I think it's one of the things you read. It's just like I think it's the common sentiment about it is that there are kind of like two endings, or like there's an ending, and then there's the I think you used the word coda. Like it's just kind of like you have this extra bit of of you in the narrative, in like the more stricter narrative, kind of halfway through part seventeen, and then it transitions into this other phase of this more sort of like spiritual thematic kind of like meditative ending about not it's not a conclusion to the literal plot events or like i don't read it as being a conclusion to the literal plot events of twin peaks the return of the story of how cooper gets becomes himself again and gets back to twin peaks and defeats evil cooper that is resolved halfway through part 17 but like the real ending of twin peaks the return is this thematic meditation and this sort of like summary it's almost like a great essay or something of I, that you you get to this conclusive paragraph and the conclusive paragraph is this recontextualized and redigested and reformatted version of kind of, of what the thesis and the main argument and point and thrust of the story is and for something as sort of ephemeral as twin peaks the return or most of david lynch's work it can be a little bit hard to try to or it's, it's impossible to pin it down into one thing. And it's also just kind of hard to pin it down to anything concrete because it is so sort of like sensual and, and sensory and how it impacts you. But it does arrive at this, this ultimate conclusion that I think is incredibly affecting, incredibly powerful, that taps into that very fire walk with me. I can, in some places, quite literally that fire walk with me energy from that movie of tackling these issues of abuse and, and, and trauma, which are at the heart of the Twin Peaks story, but then also, I think tackling on this second component of it, which is time and and what and how time has affected this abuse and trauma story, and and that distance of time is kind of like to me the the main effect I got from that ending at the end. Yeah, I, you know, the other way I would phrase this is I think part seventeen is the climax, and part eighteen is the denouement. Yeah, part seventeen is where the story, such as it is, comes to some kind of close some kind of culmination yeah. and part 18 is where lynch and frost reflect on what did it mean yeah and the denouement for the great stories is to me the more important part you know it's yeah. why when people say oh return of the king is in too many endings to me it's like that's that's what that's the thing that gives lord of the rings is meaning yeah is the denouement and you know when we talk about persona 5 has like a 10 hour denouement and it mm-hmm. needs to because that's a big story, and you yeah. need to you need to think about what this meant. And to me, that's what part eighteen is. And so, you know, part seventeen is more artistically adventurous. It is more visually breathtaking. It has more, for lack of a better term, fan service in that you get all the characters sure, yeah. together, and it is more you know thrilling. But to me, part eighteen in a weird way moved me more because this was where it put everything in a certain emotional and thematic context. And it's why I've, you know, I, I see why people call the ending a cliffhanger. It's but not I, a fucking cliffhanger That's why, yes. It's so, so far away from being a cliffhanger, it's kind of unbelievable. I, and I agree. Like, I, again, I see why people use that word. I disagree strongly because to me, everything that happens in Part 18, but especially where they chose to close the series and what that closing scene is, like... It almost could, like, it's not subtle, is something I would say. Like, I don't think it's a subtle thematic ending. It's, this whole series is about time, it is about aging, it is about death, it is about how the world has changed in ways that feel unrecognizable to you, and the last scene is trying to go home and trying to have a reunion, finding that it is impossible, a character voicing, I am displaced from time, Cooper saying, what year is it, and then... 
Laura Palmer waking back up and screaming viscerally because that abuse, no matter what happens, cannot be erased. Yeah. To me, like, I don't know how you could put more of a final point, theme- not narratively, but thematically and emotionally, on the ideas this series was about. Yeah. You know, and I think 95% of the coverage I've seen about Twin Peaks, the finale, is so good, it has been inspiring to me that, like, I've seen so little of the annoying takes of, like, but we didn't learn exactly about X. That was yeah. left ambiguous, and I don't, I want it spoon fed, and for some reason I watched 18 hours of Twin Peaks. Uh-huh. Haven't seen, I've seen a little bit of that, but not enough to, like, annoy me super hard. But still, it's like, yeah, if, if, you know, I've seen a little bit of the, like, well, how do we piece this all together? And to me, it's just, it's like the end of a great piece of music or something. It's not that you can literally break down exactly what makes it perfect from, like, a narrative structural perspective. It's that it has the theme of this thing so clearly in mind. And it was, to me, now you look at it in retrospect, it's all building to that moment. It yeah. has to be building to that moment. Absolutely. I mean, it's also, like, looking at, like, Lynch's work, it also has a very... Like, that whole episode 18 has a very Mulholland Drive effect on me of, like, David Lynch has such a masterful command of, like, cinematic language and pacing and and that ability to use cinematic language and pacing to really affect you, I think, on a subconscious level to generate a very specific, like, personal emotional response to something. For, like, Mulholland Drive, it was used to, like, induce and replicate dream states. And I think for Part 18 is very much about sort of, like, affecting the audience and creating the sense of dissociation in the audience, which is so much about Twin Peaks The Return has been about dissociation because I think that is one of the things that aging does to you is you feel dissociated from the world and yourself. And that is something that very much, very directly trauma and abuse does to someone is they they feel dissociated from themselves and the world around them. And to me, that is like what part 18 does is it, it strips everything that you know from you. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know like why you're even here anymore in some ways, and yet you have no choice but to keep on marching forward with it. Yeah, and and all of that, like any interpretation you can have about Twin Peaks The Return, and we'll name some other ones, they, all roads, every possible road ends with that scream. Yeah, With Laura Palmer, the piercing scream, you know, someone in one of the articles I've read about this, you know, said probably the most... The most Twin Peaks sound effect, like the most iconic, yeah. is Cheryl Lee screaming. And yes, like that, I think that's true. Like in all the dissociation, uh, even the meta narratives and stuff, they all come to that point of just it breaks yeah. and the lights go off. And yeah, I it's not a cliffhanger. This is not. Did they shoot a secret season four and they haven't told us about it yet? Like this God, is, what would a season four even be? How could you? Possibly, like, we're not even in the same universe anymore. How do you even follow that up? You know, if if Lynch and Frost announced tomorrow they wanted to make it and Showtime was funding it, I'd be all in. I'd be all in for it. I just don't know what it would be. I wouldn't wait with bated breath for that because I just have no idea how you follow it up. It's not like Twin Peaks Season 2 where they set up a continuation for that story that they didn't get to do. This feels so conclusive to me. Absolutely. This, to me, this is such an ending. And, again, I see why some people want more. And as I said, I would not double guess, uh, double think, you know, what Lynch and Frost's instincts are if they had an idea for more. They're the master storytellers here, not me. Yeah. But, like, to me, like, this is absolutely an ending. And it's not just an ending to Twin Peaks The Return. It's an ending to the Twin Peaks universe. Yeah. Of the TV show and the movie and this. And it pretty conclusively to me closes the book on what I think... Will going forward be David Lynch's magnum opus? This is his Lord of the Rings. This is his Dark Tower. Yeah, this is his thing, 
And uh, not that he hasn't done many other wonderful things, but like this to me is like the, the, the thing in some ways he deserves to be known for the best is the larger Twin Peaks universe because yeah. the, the ground covered by all this is extraordinary and kind of encompasses everything else he has to say in his work. Like one of the things I was thinking about is part 17 and 18 and the specific ways these two episodes that are fairly different in structure are so in conversation with one another is you come back to the meta narrative, which he really likes in his later period work. Yeah. And so much of 17 and 18 to me feel like this little treatise on the idea of ending something. Sure. And the idea of reaching an ending. And there are all these little self-aware things that you can read in the emotional way, in the spiritual way, in the narrative way. But you can also read, I think, in the meta way. Like, we'll talk about a lot, the long sequence in part 17 where the climax has happened and all the ending exposition is going on. And Cooper's face is just superimposed over all of it. Yeah. And at one point he says, we are in a dream. Or something to that. Yeah. I have the exact yeah, quote later. Dream. Yeah, we live in a dream. And to me, like, one of the ways of reading that is that... That is Lynch telling you, don't get too comfortable with what has been a very neat climax. Uh And, you know, because that that whole climax to me, people are like, man, it really was convenient that Freddy was there. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the idea. Uh That Lynch is kind of, and Frost are talking about how stories come together and how we expect things to come together. And that that happening 30 minutes into the beginning of the two-hour finale should tell you that's not the end. This is going to be complicated. And that is part of, as I say, the meta narrative of them taking like, here's what the, the everything has come together, all roads here ending looks like, and here's how we complicate that. And so it's to me, it's as much about the idea of endings as it is an ending in and of itself. And that's one yeah. of the beautiful things about it. Absolutely. So any other kind of overall thoughts you want to go into before we maybe do some of the point by point stuff? I think we should just get into it. Okay. Yeah. There's so many. I think we just need to go through it. And then at the end, we can go back to the big picture stuff. Yeah, so uh, part 17, the subtitle here was The Past Dictates the Future. Quote from Both of the yeah. quotes actually here. Which, which that is going to take a much more literal bent in that episode than I thought at the beginning. Oh boy, Jesus, yeah. Uh, someone said it's basically David Lynch doing Back to the Future 2, and yeah. they're not wrong. Uh-huh. Um, all right, so we begin in South Dakota. We've got that establishing shot inside the hotel. We follow up on the scene from last week. Cole is looking at his gun. I couldn't do it, Albert. Couldn't do it. And he couldn't shoot Diane. And then we have this little exchange. Albert says, you've gone soft in your old age. Not where it counts, counts, buddy. Which I love that for like the big like conclusion, like the, the two-part finale of like Twin Peaks as a whole, David Lynch chooses to start it out with an old man erection joke. And that's like, that is real art there. I just love how it's something to talk about how David Lynch has viewed his own body in Twin Peaks because yeah. Gordon Cole is a much bigger part of the story here. The way he shoots himself is very unglamorous. And I think even he's very aware of what a leering old man he looks like in uh-huh. some shots. You know, like with the long thing with uh, the woman he had in his room. Yeah, the weird French back. woman, yeah. Yeah, like, and then here, like, you know, <laughs> that's funny and charming. I don't think it's supposed to be, like, though that you're, you know, taking it too seriously. It's, no. it's... It totally feels in character for this old man uh-huh. kind of clinging on to these last vestiges of his masculinity. Uh-huh. And it's funny, but no. Then we have this speech from uh, Cole that very much sets up the events of the finale. It kind of contextualizes everything, all the little webs of story we've had, and then sets us into the final events with kind of clarity. And he says, For 25 years I've kept something from you, Albert. Before he disappeared, Major Briggs shared with me and Cooper his discovery of an entity, an extreme negative force called an olden times Jow Day. And I had to look up the captions for this. J-O-W-D-A-Y is how they okay. spell it. 
Um, over time, it's become Judy. Major Briggs, Cooper, and I put together a plan that could lead us to Judy, and then something happened to Major Briggs, and something happened to Cooper. Philip Jeffries, who doesn't really exist anymore, at least not in the normal sense, told me that's such a great line. Yeah. Told me a long time ago he was onto this entity, and he disappeared. Now, the last thing Cooper told me was, if I disappear like the others, do everything you can to find me. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. And now this thing of two Coopers. And recently a paid informant named Ray Monroe sent a cryptic message indicating that the Cooper we met at prison is looking for coordinates. Coordinates from a certain Major Briggs. Ooh, yeah, there's a lot, lot There's on. a lot in there. So we we sort of have a sense of who Judy is. That I think that was last episode that, that Dark Coop um, hears from Teapot Jeffries. <laughs> you know, the, he needs to go look for Judy. Um, and then also we find out that Ray was a secret plant by the FBI. Yes. yes. Um, or he's an informant. Or he's an informant, plant, whatever. Yeah. yeah, they call him a paid informant here, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it puts a lot of pieces together. Like, And again, I love how Lynch and Frost write exposition in this. Uh-huh. It's so... I would say it's like a teachable moment for other people having to write exposition, except I don't think anyone else could do it in quite this off-kilter sense. Because... When they do their expository moments, it doesn't take the mystique away from things. Mm-hmm. And it really just opens up other interpretive avenues. Like, it's something I have not considered much, but I want us to talk about, is reading these last three episodes kind of through this lens of, like, there is a strong negative force, like, maybe beyond Bob, this Judy thing. Yeah. And it is out there in the world. And whatever Cooper is doing is some, you know, attempt to defeat this thing, right? Yeah. And again, I have not, I don't really care too much about the linear narrative of all this, but it is a way to read all the things that happen, right? Um, and I love that they can put that all together, where now everything we've seen is contextualized, and yet so many more mysterious avenues are opened. That's an amazing thing to be able to do as a writer. Yeah, I think, like, and one of the big things they do is, like, I think there's, there's two main things. It's like, one, they write um, exposition in these kinds of scenes where it's like, especially like we have had a bunch in this room, very specifically with, with David Lynch as Gordon Cole delivering these stories. And one of the things they do is that they're telling stories when they expose it, is that it's framed like that. Of like, like I've, 25 years ago, like, you know, the Major Briggs and, and Cooper and I, blah, 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 and it's, it's him framing it as him telling a story to these people, not just him relaying information. And then also, I, there's this incredible resistance to, I think the only time it really happens is sort of in, like, the dream sequence from the whole, like, Monica Bellucci thing from a couple of episodes ago. But generally, when these expository scenes happen... There's no flashbacks. There's no cutting to anything. Like it is just you holding on the actor telling the story, which I think there's a extreme over reliance generally in like more modern cinematic language of when you have a scene like this, you are cutting to some sort of flashback structure, providing some sort of like visual information backing up what is being said, which can be good a lot of the time. But there's something to be said about leaving all that to the imagination and not having to cut to some other footage showing like those characters having this dialogue and instead you're just sitting with this character relaying that information to you and part of it is the pace that twin peaks builds for itself that it it moves slowly scenes linger you're used to sitting with characters and talking the acting is all on a pitch that makes that you know engaging the other thing here from a writing standpoint i would point out is i love how this subtly transitions in the last line to become a character moment because at the end Cole says this plan Albert I couldn't tell you about and I'm sorry and Albert good guy professional yeah. says I understand and Cole says I know you do Albert and I'm still sorry and it's just that little exchange between friends and this yeah. is the last major moment 
that Albert gets, that, that Cole and Albert get together. And just, I think, when you wrap things back up into character, that is applicable to any kind of story. Yeah. No matter how weird or not weird, you know? So, yeah, all of that is great. I mean, the the other part of that whole story that I really love is that it's very clear now that Gordon Cole knows that, like, something's going on with Philip Jeffries, which just made me imagine the scene of, like, Gordon Cole, like, meeting Teapot Jeffries and, like, how that seems like, Philip, is that you? You'll, yes, it is, Gordon. What the hell happened? Because <laughs> he would, like... You know, he would take it such in, like, in his Missoula, Montana frame, you know? Yeah. Of, like, he would kind of take it in stride in a weird way. But like, I don't want to offend you, but you're a big damn teapot. <laughs> I want that on the DVD. Yeah. Deleted scene. <laughs> Just a mini story with yeah. them. Anyway, uh, then the phone rings, and it's uh, the agent from Las Vegas. They have found Douglas Jones... But they have lost him. Yeah. And then we get the great Albert line. Is my watch stopped or is that one of the Marx Brothers? <laughs> There's one last yeah. withering line from dear old Albert. Uh, then they explain the whole thing. Uh, and then Bushnell, Bushnell Mullins comes in. He's got that message for Gordon Cole. The message is, I am headed for Sheriff Truman's. It is 2.53 in Las Vegas. And that adds up to a 10, the number of completion. Yeah. Just get those numbers in there one there last time. And the number... T- there have, I've, I've gotten into a little bit reading online. There's a lot of people into the numerology of Twin yeah. Peaks. And it's actually kind of fascinating because it doesn't just reduce the show to numbers. There are some people who do it in very interesting ways. Like the number 10 does recur in this final episode in a lot of interesting ways. Yeah. I would also point out how the number 8 has repeated throughout and then becomes this infinity symbol later on. But I do love that that to the bitter end, Lynch is devoted to... Obscure numerology. Uh-huh. It's great. Anyway, uh, with the last line is, is Cole asks who this is, and Bushnell introduces himself and says, I'm Dougie's boss. Thank you, Mr. Mullins. Thank you very much. And that, that makes, makes two, two of us. us. Which is such a good line. <laughs> so great. And then he hangs up, turns to Albert and Tammy. Dougie is Cooper? How the hell is this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is so great. Um, and then Tammy has gotten all the files and recounts all of Douglas Jones's exploits: the car explosion, the organized crime, the electrocution, and um, the attempted assassination. assassination. Yep, all of that. And Albert looks at Cooper or uh, Cole and says, "That's strange, even for Cooper." And Cole says, "A blue rose case, most definitely." <laughs> I love it. It's so much like this is very much an extension of episode sixteen, where there's just such. It's so satisfying, yeah. to see all this come together. Um, then we go to the sheriff's department, and we uh, this whole section is a lot of fast cutting between a lot of different things. Um, in the holding cells, you have Billy with the bleeding face, douchebag cop Chad is starting to try something out. Um, you have Evil Cooper driving down the road with the trademark shot and the eerie black and white shaking footage with the ominous scratching on the soundtrack, all of that stuff. At the Great Northern, Ben Horn has a call. This is I love how we wrap this up. He gets yeah. a call from Wyoming about Jerry. And this is the end of the Jerry story. Um, Jerry has been arrested because he was yelling about how his binoculars killed somebody. Ben makes arrangements for Jerry to get back. And apparently Jerry was completely naked. And also from Ben's body language, it does not sound like this is the first time. Yeah. And I just, I love the really small detail that it's from fucking Wyoming. Which like, that, that puts into context where that Dick Horn scene happened from last episode because we didn't have like a specific like location card for that one and I love the idea that over the course of like us checking in on Jerry Horn every couple of episodes he somehow went from fucking Washington State to motherfucking Wyoming like that's a distance man that's it's, a that is 
That man traveled. Marijuana is a powerful thing. I just, you know, people talk about, like, oh, there were unresolved plots. And, but, but, like, the Jerry Horn thing, like, started in episode one, continued to now. And it did get a resolution, which is that he went on this weird journey. He was witness to a lot of things. We were witness to a lot of things with him. And here it is wrapped up. And it yeah. seems like, as a preview for things to come, this is all part of a cycle. Jerry has done this before. Yeah. Ben has done this before. And they will almost certainly do it again. I love it. Yeah. All right, back to kind of this mon. All these things going back together. Um, Evil Coop goes onto the side of the road, and uh, he goes to that place near Jack Rabbit's palace that the uh, the, the sheriff's department people went a few yep. episodes back. And uh, so he's approaching um, that. There's this little pool of liquid that we saw before, but didn't learn anything about. And there's that little tree that's like dead next to it, and he approaches it. Uh, there's all this, you know, weird imagery. The static sputters. He goes back and forth. The frame jitters, and then we get the portal, and uh, he disappears. And then we get one of the weirdest images in Twin Peaks, which is all we're in the theater from Part Eight. Yep, remember this, Sean? Yes, the Fireman's Theater. The Fireman's Theater, and Briggs's head, Colonel Major Briggs's head, is floating, disembodied, like it was in Episode Three in the weird wherever Cooper was, and it's yes. like floating in the background. Yes. Um, and uh, in a little, like, caged box, Evil Cooper's head is also floating. Um, on the screen are the trees that we were just in, and then a shot of the Palmer house. The fireman is there, the giant, in this really, like, askew shot. And he moves his hand, and there's this intense whoosh, and then the images advance. Yeah, and it's the world's biggest, most elaborate iPhone, basically. Very, pretty much. Uh, the image moves and blurs. Uh, we get more foliage, and then we're in another room with all these bells, like more of like the teapot things. We don't get any more of that. Yeah. There's this one shot of like this room with like an endless, like a factory line of those like teapot bells. And then um, Cooper's head disappears from the floating box. The box approaches the screen and the gold pipe system. And it's sucked up like, the, like Laura was in yeah. episode 8. And then the device hums and moves and it deposits Cooper into the image. And then in the real world, in color, Cooper appears in that same place. And it is the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department. Yeah. Did I do a good job describing that scene, Sean? Basically, yeah. Because it is like we like took a step back into episode 8. Because we have not seen that like very specific setting in that like weird golden apparatus since episode 8. And I do... There's something about the aesthetic of that theater. And particularly the weird CGI gold like tuba looking thing that spins around. That makes it look like, like it's as if David Lynch had made an FMV game in the 90s and it got lost <laughs> to time. Just like the weird, like, like big, kind of like clumsy image of like these two floating heads that's like, like just, it, it's, it feels kind of cheap, but on like, like very intentionally. Like oh, yeah. it's not this very like elegant effect of like, of some of the ethereal. There's no like smoke or anything. It's just like, he just took that cutout of like his head from a gif and just put it there and then this like really cheap gold cgi thing and it really has i don't know what it is but it has this very 90s fmv game aesthetic to me just like executed at an insanely high like aesthetic level it's it's fucking fascinating yeah and yeah i mean we know they can do better effects they've done them in or or more polished effects we've seen that in other episodes like throughout part eight in this episode later on the stuff with the recreations of firewalk with me yeah. i mean that's pretty impressive stuff so yeah it's very much a choice but uh, yeah, I the, every the biggest challenge in note taking Twin Peaks is describing this stuff. Uh -huh. But it is a good way to like build those muscles of like descriptive language use. Anyway, um, so yeah, he he appears there. Now we get a lot of these fast cuts where it just describes some of the things that happen. Um, 
the woman in the cell kind of wakes up and is terrified. Cooper is at the sheriff's department and says, what is this? Um, begins walking and Andy is there getting, what else, a picnic basket out of his car. Which makes me want the Yogi Bear reboot with Andy. Yeah. What have I got in my picnic basket? And uh, we're a lot of fast cuts. We're inside the woman and her freakout is intensifying. Um, Billy passes out. The, the dirty cop Chad is getting something out of his shoe. Andy is telling uh, Cooper that everyone's going to be so happy to see him. Cooper is playing along as well as evil Cooper can. He yeah. still seems very scary to me. But, you know, it's Andy's friend. He hasn't seen him in forever. It's been um, a long time. He could have grown that hair out. Yep. Cooper comes in. Lucy is super happy to see him. And then Andy introduces him to Truman. Frank Truman. They shake hands. Truman invites him into the office. I wrote here, this is tense, because it is. Because yeah. also the editing style here gets really different. Like, Lynch knows we're heading towards the climax, because as I said, it's a lot of rapid cuts between all the geography and everything happening in the sheriff's station, which is very different for Twin Peaks. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, as Andy and Lucy stand there after Frank and Cooper leave, Andy seems to have this realization, and we cut to his vision from the White Lodge of him having to help Lucy down the hall. Yeah. So he is, he is like awakening to something here that he needs to do. Meanwhile, Chad is using the key to get out of his cell. He escapes and gets a gun and bullets. And uh, in Truman's office, Andy uh, gets Cooper a seat, and then Frank offers him a cup of coffee, and Cooper denies it. Which I just wanted to scream at the TV. That's how you know it's not him. Uh-huh. But this is Frank Truman. Yeah. He wouldn't know that. So. Another important detail of like one of the things that is happening in these scenes is that every time it cuts to Nido, the, the eyeless woman, uh, she is like becoming more and more agitated as even yep. Cooper gets like his proximity to her gets closer and closer. Yeah, which is one of those things that like adds to the tension is that you can tell that she is sensing that he is there. Yes, yeah, something we don't quite know. We never really find out what his. Like specific goal is here Other than that he's looking for her But what he's going to do with her we're not sure But it's interesting Um, This little standoff between Robert Forster And Kyle MacLachlan here is so good Where uh, Frank leans back in his chair and says Cooper and he smacks his lips and says Cooper and Cooper says In the flesh and it just reminded me of like a great Western standoff, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, um, there's this. We're getting all these rapid cuts. Andy says, he like, points to Lucy and says, "Very important, very important." And we don't see any more than that. It's kind of weird. Meanwhile, Billy rips some part of his face off. Yeah, it was pretty disturbing. Yes, Chad re-enters with the gun. Andy comes in looking for Hawk, and Chad gets him at gunpoint. He's about to shoot. Freddy comes into play. His magical hand punches the door open, knocks Chad out. And Andy, slightly confused, but, you know, he's learned to roll with this shit, comes up and handcuffs Chad. So that all comes together. That's nice. And then the phone rings at Lucy's desk, and she answers it. We don't hear anything, but she goes, who? And we know, like, that's the real Cooper. Yeah. Right? And then uh, more conversation between Frank and Cooper. What brings you back to Twin Peaks, Agent Cooper? Unfinished Unfinished business. business. And then Lucy rings in. And Truman answers and hears that it's Coop. And he realizes something is going on here. And just as he does, Cooper also realizes. Shoots first, but misses. Asterisk, we'll get back to that. Because Lucy shoots Cooper in the back. Yeah. So Lucy comes in gun-toting, shoots. Yeah, with like a gigantic revolver. Yes. Like almost like comically huge, like for her frame. Yes. And uh, caps Evil Cooper in the back. And Evil Cooper is for the moment vanquished. But the sh- so going back to it, he misses. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they do there? Where the bullet goes through Frank's hat, but like the hat does like a red room animation yeah. where like it goes up and down like it's a Photoshop thing. I don't really know how to read that. It's very bizarre. It's- yeah, because it's not because when they cut back to him, there's not a hole in the hat or anything no. like that. Yeah, no. So it feels like 
like Lucy got to him at a point where like his spiritual weird evil power got like drained for a second and that stopped his real world gun. Sure. I don't know. It's but it's it's an effect. It's a yeah. thing. Uh, and then this is so great. I think this one's dead, Agent Cooper. Frank says on the phone. And Cooper. Now we we get some cuts to him. He's in the car with the Mitchums and everyone. And says, "Don't touch him. Stay away from the body." Andy is bringing everyone upstairs. And as Andy comes into the frame with Lucy, Lucy turns to him and says, "Andy, I understand cellular phones now." Which is the longest, or it's it's the punchline to one of the longest setups in joke history. Because it's from a deleted scene in Firewalk with Me. Yep. Which is so great. I love it. I love that, like, either Lynch and Frost remembered the deleted scenes or, like, they rewatched them before making the new series. And they're like, I like that joke, Mark. Let's use that. Yeah. Because that's, like, her first thing in Twin Peaks The Return is the recall of that joke. Yeah. So, fantastic. Uh, Hawk gets there, looks at Cooper in shock. Um, what the hell? Agent Cooper said, Don't touch that body. That but is that- Agent Cooper. No, it's not. Everyone's confused. James is tearing up because we all would, let's be honest. And he goes out in the hall and then the room darkens and the dirty bearded men come in to revive Cooper. Basically the same ritual from episode 8. There's the blinking lights, the smoke rising, the strange music. But now we have all these witnesses. And I love the way Robert Forster plays this whole scene. Mm -hmm. Because he's sitting at his desk the whole time. He never gets up. He did not have to stand for this sequence. And he's looking at everything with like... Like, I don't know, he's seeing, like, two dogs fucking out the window. Like, sure. just, like, something slightly weird is going on outside, but not this weird. And I would love to have been in the room. What was David Lynch's direction to all-time great character actor Robert Forster? Yeah. Because it's perfect. Like, that's uh-huh. the other thing. Like, it, it feels in character that when people come in contact with these strange otherworldly dimensions, they only react so much on Twin Peaks, you know? But it's all perfect. Anyway... All very weird. And then Cooper's car roars in. Basically a big action movie sequence where it roars in. He rushes into the station. Comes into the frame. Andy, where is he? He's disturbed but not surprised to see that they're like the dirty bearded men are washing blood all over the doppelganger's face. Cooper hesitates. He's waiting for something. And then after the dirty men leave, Cooper's evil Cooper's stomach opens. And this giant black ball bursts out and whooshes into the air. And there's these strange shots of the room refracting on itself as the ball, which has Bob, Killer Bob's face in it, floats in the air, comes towards the real Cooper. And then Freddy, dude, yep. the green hand, comes in to confront it. Are you Freddy? Cooper asks. That's right. And this is my destiny. And then he's like, the ball moves to Freddy. And the only way to describe this is that he has a fist fight with the embodiment of all evil. Yes, that is trying to like maul him to death. Yes, because he keeps like, there's all these very strange like... He's got tilted shots and shaking and quick cutting and the image is, you know, bifurcating on itself and all these things. And Freddy is getting all bloodied, but he's having to punch the ball over and over. He's fighting it. Um, the third time, he finally punches it into the ground, makes a hole, and then the hole lights on fire. And then the ball rises up again, and it gets even crazier. Um, Cooper calls for Freddy to get up. Uh, Bob does say a line, I think from the original series, catch you with my death bag. Yeah. Um, so we, Frank Silva gets a little posthumous dialogue here. And then one more punch and the ball shatters to pieces, which rise into the ceiling and disappear. Did I do it? You did it, Freddy, Cooper says in a very Cooper way. Yeah. He's very proud of Freddy. And the scene clears up. Cooper approaches his evil double. Puts the ring on the double's finger and backs away. Smoke rises out of the body. And then the body disappears slowly. And then one of the Mitchums says, That's one for the grandkids. 
This is like the Mitchum brothers always here to give like the understatement for yes. the scene. So let's take a break. Yeah. Sean, that scene. Yeah. When they announced they were making 18 new hours of Twin Peaks, did you think it would climax with a British kid we've only known for a few hours having a fist fight with the embodiment of evil? Having a fist fight with his like gloved Hulk hand. Yes. Like very specifically. No, I did not. I must admit, I, somehow I didn't see that one coming. It should have been obvious. I think they very much set it up. I mean, that was like episode four of Twin Peaks season one. I think it was very clearly setting this up. But um, <laughs> somehow I didn't catch it. It, it works. That's all I yeah, can say. It's, it's nuts. Here's the thing. You know, I saw one critic um, who I respect, but I, I, uh, I have not. I think his, his writing on Twin Peaks has been very shallow this season. I won't name anyone names. But, and saying like... In any other show, we would just say that's a terrible thing. That you introduce a character a few hours before the end and then they defeat the bad guy. And to me, it's like, Lynch wants you to ask that question. Yeah. Because, yeah. that's But that's the point. Is that it's like, if you think Lynch and Frost are unaware that that's a convenient way to wrap things up, I don't think you've really been paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it is so self-aware that we meet Freddy, what, in episode 13, 14, something like that. And then a few episodes later, like, he is put in the exact right position that he is there at the time. And the thing is, you can't just isolate that because everything here comes together so perfectly, right? Yeah. Like, Dougie gets out of his coma at the exact right moment and everything is in place for Cooper to get to Twin Peaks the moment he needs to. And right after this scene, Gordon Cole and Tammy and Albert get there at the moment they need to. And everything has been put in place for all the, you know, Nido has been locked up in that cell so that she is there when Cooper arrives so she can, you know, become Diane again. Spoilers. But like, all of this stuff is there together. And when I talk about, I think the meta narrative is important to consider. The whole idea that this is a very self-consciously convenient ending, that's operating on a couple different levels to me. One of which is that Twin Peaks The Return has been a really highly structured narrative. Like it has introduced a lot of dominoes and it has generally knocked every one of them down in one yeah. way or another. It is constantly following up on things in a very dense novelistic structure. And I think the closer we get to the end, this is a thought I often had of like, are they like earnestly 100% doing a novelistic structure or are they doing a weird sly commentary on it? And by the time you get here, I think they're doing a weird sly commentary, especially because from here on out, the point is going to be to start making you question how much of an ending this was and how much of a climax this was. And that, no, of course it's not that clean. You can't get a weird British kid with a green glove on his hand to punch trauma away. That's not how it works. Right. And I think, you know, so again, this is a fantastic sequence and it's so satisfying. But I do think you're supposed to be doubling back on yourself and questioning your own satisfaction. Is that a fair way to say that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Because it is something that, like I like the way you put it, that like you can't have like this like absurd like... Kind of like weird superhero character almost coming out of nowhere and defeat the like like he defeats Bob or whatever, but like that doesn't actually solve any of the issues. That doesn't solve any of the problems. Like it sort of like deals with this like very specific narrative threat and villain, but like the the bigger issues of of trauma and abuse persist past that. Yeah, and like the whole thing about Freddy, I think Freddy is a great character because he is so absurd. Like, he's not just a superhero, the entire special effect is a one latex glove. Yeah, I mean, and a really good sound effect. Yeah, and that's like. It's got to be the cheapest thing they did in all 18 episodes, uh-huh. you know? It's a, it's a really cheap effect and a story he sits down and tells James in that way we talked about storytelling earlier, where it's exposition but also storytelling and character building. And that's it. And that, you know, from the moment you meet Freddy, you know 
this is going to be very convenient in how this all works out. And it's so ridiculous, you can't take it 100% seriously. Yeah. You know? And I love that. It's, it's, it's an interesting part of all this. And again, I don't think you can just dismiss it. I think it demands for some level of critical engagement. Yeah. Because because there's also like there's kind of two ways you can take that that tact of of that you have the meta narrative aspect of it, but then you also have like the diegetic like literal in narrative element of of sort of like fate or the fireman or like like however you're interpreting that like moving these pieces because that's what you know Thray says is like this is my fate like this is because that's how that character has been set up is through the most bizarre circumstances possible he has been given this ability. And put in this, like, told to go to Twin Peaks. And once he gets to Twin Peaks, he goes through an absurd series of events that nobody could predict, anticipate, or possibly set up in any earthly manner of, you know, at the bar where James encounters, like, the biggest asshole in the world. Or just that, let's go back a step, that he would work at the same jobs as James, that he would befriend James, that James would be having this love affair with this woman named Renee, and that Renee would have the biggest asshole boyfriend on the planet before you even get into the bar. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and then once you get into the bar, that James says hi to this lady who has the biggest asshole boyfriend in the world, who punches James out, and then puts Freddy in a position where he has to, like, physically defend his friend, and in so doing, gets locked up in the jail cell at the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Station, so that he's still there by the time that all this shit goes down. And there is, I think there have been a couple... And that Chad would be a dirty cop who would get himself locked up and escape and would get a gun and try to take out Andy and all this stuff would happen that would facilitate his own escape from that cell to get upstairs. Yeah. And so when you like put all of that together, I think there has been, particularly like episode eight, I thought had it like really strong. There's almost this like Judeo-Christian sort of like God-like figure in the fireman. We had like the Laura Palmer in this almost like Christ-like configuration in episode eight being sent to earth for reasons. And then, and then this Judy figure feels like very much like biblical Satan, you know, like this pure evil. And, and I think there's lots of different ways you can take that of, of how... Twin Peaks The Return is playing with those things, but I think it is definitely very intentionally bringing in those ideas of fate and, and like, this, these weird, like, gods, entities, whatever, that that control this stuff or are participant to this stuff that we can't interact with, that we have no power over. The Judeo-Christian... push us around. Yeah, the Judeo-Christian themes, I think, are really important to consider on a couple of different levels, and we'll get to this later, but just that the entire... Like, the firemen sent Cooper forth with some of this purpose, right? Yeah. Like, Cooper is, like, one of the disciples or something on this earth. And the entire entirety of from here to the end of the series is this, like, resurrection journey that is failed. Like, yeah. like the, basically, the, 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 the show paints Laura as, like, this failed Christ child, you know? Um, or just thinking of, like, I like thinking of Judy as, like, the Satan embodiment. And then it becomes this very interesting thing on the show's presentation of gender where the name of this thing in olden times was Day, this, like, genderless term that becomes Judy. Right. You know, there's things, there's a lot of things to consider in all this. But, yeah, let's get back to the, the recap, I guess. Um, in the Red Room, the ring clatters down. We'll get back there later. <laughs> yes, yeah, we will. Very um, good shot. Yes. Uh, Cooper then kicks into action again, wasting no time, asks Frank for the Great Northern Room key. Um, Frank is very surprised he knew about this. Apparently Briggs told him Truman would have it. Um, and I can make a note here that I thought was interesting. I, th- I think the doubling of Agent Truman became especially... Prof- not, it's always been profound in like an emotional sense, but like thematically it really felt important here that there would be two Trumans, that Major Briggs would always have just said Truman, and it didn't really yeah. matter which one it is. And 
I don't know. There's just something really interesting about that because this is a series with so many doubles and doppelgangers. Right. Laura gets her own one later on. Cooper has obviously had doppelgangers. And here we have these two Trumans who are completely distinct men. We never saw Harry in this, but he is a a strong presence in the series. Um, and it's like, again, fate, if you think of it in those terms, like, okay, Harry couldn't be here Luckily, he had this awesome brother named Frank yeah. who could play that same role, but otherwise all the details were unchanged. I think it's interesting. Um, outside, more FBI vehicles pull up, and then we get the scene where Cooper looks at Nido, the eyeless woman, and he's surprised. And then we get, as he, as he looks surprised, we get a long, slow fade in which Cooper's old face is superimposed over everything. I said old face just because... I don't mean that as like a derogatory thing. I just yeah. mean that it's... it's it. it I don't know if it's a repetition of the shot from the very beginning of the series, but it looks like one. Like one of the very early black and white images of Cooper yeah. from the first scene. And it's, it draws attention to like his age, his wrinkles, those things. He's, it's, he's full on in the shot and just kind of staring ahead and waiting. And for the next like 10 minutes of film, that superimposition is there. And it is one of the strangest stylistic choices I've ever seen, but it is also haunting and gorgeous. Yeah, because it's something that you don't usually see superimposition in film that much. Like, it is a technique that is used here and there, but it's used, like, usually for, like, very brief moments of, like, transition. And you, I just, I don't, can't think of a movie off the top of my head that does something like that, that just holds on, like, doesn't hold on a shot. It has this superimposition of this held shot while it cuts to well, all that, different scenes. That's what I was going to say is the thing here. Um, this this is not an this is an uncommon technique, but it's it's not unheard of. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago when we had all the superimpositions through the trees, uh, the movie Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. That's one that uses some very interesting superimpositions, uh, and it's obviously an avant-garde technique as right. well in a lot of different circumstances. Um, but like this specific thing, like even Lynch has used this throughout Twin Peaks: The Return. But as you say, it's usually on a shot by shot basis, like the whole journey through the 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 convenience station and the journey through the dark trees yeah. it's one long shot that gets melded over each other this is that shot of cooper is there over probably 30 to 40 shots you know yeah. over these next in such a way that like if the, you were not watching twin peaks the return i would have assumed that like something with my streaming thing got right. fucked up and it's like oh like this weird like it's, it's almost I feel like I've seen a couple of video games that have had a weird glitch sometimes where something will load the wrong way and there will be like an element of the image has been superimposed over everything and just stays that way until you reload the save and it like it was almost like that only but again like luckily it's David Lynch and Twin Peaks so it's like I have this confidence that like no this is definitely intentional right but it was I, there was like a weird thought of like if I was watching anything else, I would probably assume that something got fucked up. The closest thing I've seen to this is an experimental art project I saw in college that was these these two guys took Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and projected it backwards over right. itself with each versions at fifty percent luminosity, and at the midpoint obviously they reverse and it's it. If you've never seen The Shining that way, it's like the best way to watch The Shining, I have to say. It's fantastic. But it's a very like avant-garde tradition. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like, if you liked Twin Peaks The Return, it's like the best intro into avant-garde American traditions I've ever seen. In that it, it, at some point it uses like every technique in the avant-garde playbook, but it does it in a narrative form. So yeah. it's a little more inviting. Um, so if you've liked some of these things, I have a list of films I could recommend to you. But yeah, um, it's it's one of those things. But anyway, so that superimposition is there for the rest of this scene. 
I'll tell you when it ends, yeah. basically. Um, but then Bobby runs into the shot here, and Bobby says, you know, what the hell is going on? And um, Cooper has this great line. He says, Major Garland Briggs, Bobby, your father was well aware of what's going on here today. Uh, many years ago, information your father gathered brought him here together with director Gordon Cole, who is here right on time. And Gordon, like Cole gets, or Cooper gets really happy when he says that line. And at that exact moment on cue, Gordon, Tammy, and Albert all come into the scene and yeah. they exchange greetings. And uh, Cooper explains, that's what's brought us to where we are today. Now there are some things that will change. The past dictates the future. This is, of course, if you've seen the rest of the episode, setting up the idea that he is going to go back into the past and attempt to save Laura yeah. Palmer, depending on how literal we want to get with this. Um, so that's setting us up for all that. And yes, the past very literally will dictate the future in so many... Like, that line is so telling. It might as well be the thesis for all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Because the past, the, the scars, the trauma, all of that stuff will dictate the future. Then the, uh, the three pink ladies come in with their baskets of food. And one of them says, It's a good thing we made so many sandwiches. <laughs> and Cooper smiles. He turns to Frank and says, Frank, give my regards to Harry. Frank says, Sure will. And then Nido tries to, to run over to Cooper. And, and James and Freddie leave her over. And they, they touch hands. And then her face, in like one of those bad Photoshop effects, goes into smoke, like cracks apart, hisses, and becomes an image of the red room, which we fade into. And for a couple of shots here, I should say, we do not have the superimposition. Yeah. Um, and then there's this graphic mound of red flesh and black something. It looks very much like something out of Eraserhead or one of um, Lynch's paintings where he like cakes the paint on super high. Uh, and then we see Diane's face in there, although this is Diane with uh, uh, you know dyed red hair. And then on Nido's face, Cooper sees Diane and restored. And she's returned to reality and... Um, that's Diane. Yeah. And they kiss passionately. And we have a pan across Cooper's collected friends. The Mitchums are surprised. Gordon Cole looks very joyous. Um, so that's a scene. We'll go forward with this in a little mo- in a moment. But, I mean, I want to ask, like, what was your reaction? We see Diane here. And I also... Here's a question that I think is important. Does she actually physically transform into Laura Dern Diane? Or does Cooper see her that way and that's why we see her? Hmm. Or to the rest of the people in that room, does she still look like Nido? Because I think that's a reading of that scene. Sure. Like, I can see that. Like, I, I didn't quite read it that way. Because I think there's something in um, Gordon Cole's reaction that t- says to me that, like, he sees that it's Diane. Yeah, but Gordon Cole sees his... Gordon Cole could be seeing it, too. But the other thing is Gordon Cole sees his friend getting some action. He doesn't really care where it comes from. Uh, sure. You know, there's maybe part of that with that character. But yeah, like, it's a, it's a, it's a weird moment. Because it's, it's also something where... There, there's like there's so much in that kiss that is weird, but like it feels appropriate in the moment. But it's also like Cooper and Diane because like this is like Twin Peaks: The Return is the first time we've seen Diane, and the, the Diane we've been with for the whole series was like weird, evil Tulpa Diane that was being controlled or manipulated by evil Coop somehow. So there's no pre-existing romantic relationship between these characters. There's not, I think, a pre-existing expectation. Of romance between these characters, but there is, through their doppelgangers, there's a pre-existing relationship of sexual abuse there. And so, like, there's, which that, like, ends up becoming a much bigger thing in Part 18. But there I is, have things to say about that. Yeah, but, like, there's, it's a, it's, it is a moment that in some ways feels right, but also I think is setting you up to where it starts to feel wrong. Oh, absolutely. This is a turning point because... 
this is part of the climax. The hero gets his girlfriend back and they kiss passionately. But again, if you're not realizing something is up here, to yeah. me it's like a giant red flag. It's as red as the, the hair Diane now has, you know, that this is not quite right. Yeah, because it also especially like doesn't feel like something that Cooper would do, which again is something more to talk about in Part 18. But he's not a particularly romantic or sexual character in nature. He gets more that way in Season 2 of Twin Peaks, which is one of the like worst parts of Season 2 of Twin Peaks is his whole weird like romantic history and, and all that shit that, that never felt like it was well justified and I like I personally always have I, I had a hard time envisioning and I still have a hard time envisioning Dale Cooper as a person who has sex like that's just he's one of those characters that feels like exists outside <laughs> of those kinds of physical desires because of who he is I'll say this Cooper does not feel to me like the kind of guy who would under any circumstances have sex with his secretary exactly does yes. that make sense yeah. like Diane is not, I never got the sense that that was his relationship with Diane. And I think at this point you have to be asking yourself, is that Diane and is that Cooper? I mean, that's really yeah. something that starts to come up here. Uh, and if it is, what has happened to them? Um, they look at the clock, which at this point is stuttering back and forth between 2.52 and 2.53, the number of completion. Yes, the number of completion. So it can't <sighs> complete yet. Yeah. Cole looks over at them confused. Uh, Diane and Cooper embrace hands and then the superimposed Cooper in a deep slowed down voice that sounds a little like Dark Cooper says we live inside a dream and this is again where I get the very meta vibes because this is where it's all coming together you know and he says we live inside a dream and then good Cooper says or the the, the Cooper we have in the present says I hope I see all of you again every one of you and he looks up looks at Diane and then everything goes to black the superimposition solidifies and becomes the image for a moment. And then after a beat, we have Cooper and Diane and Cole walk like through the face. They walk towards the camera, pass through it. And then we're at, uh, some people were confused at this location. I believe it's the boiler room at the Great Northern. Yes, where it's, James, where, where James was in there. Um, I don't think we didn't really talk about this weird moment in that episode where James goes in to where the boiler is and then like sees the door and has this like weird ominous like like intense kind of anxious reaction to the door yeah and it, it wasn't something that i didn't necessarily even like expect it to come back up but it definitely right. it feels like this is where all the weird humming that um ben horn and his secretary like were hearing seems like it's like been leading us to this location Absolutely. that for whatever reason agent cooper's old room key is also the key to this weird door in the boiler room yes uh once we're in the boiler room the superimposition fades and now Cooper, Diane, and Cole are all there. As you say, he uses the 315 key to unlock it and says to them, Now listen, I'm going... 315, by the way. Not the number of completions. We have not completed yet. Now listen, I'm going through this door. Don't try to follow me, either of you. He embraces Diane, shakes hands with Cole. Cole says, Be thinking of you, Coop. And Coop uh, readies himself, then opens the door and looks back. See you at the curtain call. And in slow motion, the door closes. Two reactions here. Yeah. This was the moment where so much had happened. There was so much aesthetic power to all these images. There was such satisfaction seeing all these characters come together. And there was such overwhelming emotion at seeing Cooper kind of say his goodbyes here. I was like tearing up at this point. Like this mm-hmm. is a heavily emotional section. And I think that's completely by design. I think it is all earnest. I do think though it has this undercurrent of when you look back on it. on in, To some level, that's the ending of Twin Peaks, the return on a narrative level. Yeah. You know? And that is the big emotional kind of closing. And what happens after that is where we start getting the denouement 
And as a good denouement does, it complicates a lot of this. Yes, yeah. It, it, no matter how complex your emotional reaction was, it, it goes further than that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, Cooper, well, actually, before we move on, I want yeah, to back fine. up to the um, moment where, like, of where he, uh, Evil Cooper, I like, I kind of feel it's Evil Cooper because of how the voice effect sounds. But though, like, we live inside a dream line. Yes. Which calls back to um, the whole the Monica Bellucci scene of. We yeah. are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. It was something that at the time with that episode, I didn't make this connection. But there's something about when um, that, that superimposition of Cooper says we live inside the dream that immediately lit this connection to me of The Tempest, the Shakespeare play. And, and it's something of connecting that to the meta narrative we're talking, we're talking about of like there's a way to read some of this stuff as being a comment or sort of meta commentary on storytelling and on creators and on stories and endings. And, I, and it made me think of the, the most famous line. And like really the thing that is worth reading The Tempest for. Because The Tempest is secretly not that very good of a Shakespeare play. But there's the famous line um, about near the end of the play. Where Prospero, one of the main characters. Who's usually in Shakespeare sort of criticism. Is seen as a Shakespeare surrogate figure. Because he's a sort of wizard sorcerer kind of like creation figure. Um, and he has this line in this small speech he gives after he commands these spirits to put on a performance for these other characters um, that I'm just going to read here for us. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, ye all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. And that that speech is by far the most famous part and like the best written part of The Tempest and is generally read as being Shakespeare, because also The Tempest is generally read, even this is not technically true, but it's seen as being Shakespeare's last play because it's very convenient to do so for um, academic reasons. And so people like to read that as Shakespeare sort of like stepping into his play for a second and bowing out effectively and at like the curtain call in saying like this is what we do um as as writers and performers we create this world for you and at the end of the day we we with our insubstantial passion faded we leave not a rack behind we leave none of like the equipment none of like the stuff the set up we leave and and you know because we the actors and, and the performers and the writers are such stuff as dreams are made on that we are like dreams and we create this dream for you and there, I think there is, whether like David Lynch was doing that intentionally or not, I think that image and that sentiment is so fits with what is going on here. Absolutely. You know, and when David Lynch invokes the term or the idea or the atmosphere of a dream or a dream state, I think one of the things that's really important to understand is that it's not about, it can be, but it's not necessarily just about literal dreaming. Like the process of going to bed at night and having yeah. a dream in your head. It's about so many things. I mean, for one, film from day one has been linked you know, psychoanalytically because film comes into being at the same time as Freud's theories are being published. So psychoanalysis, um, or shortly thereafter. And so dream states and film are always tied. That is always the way people view film. And it is obviously also an extension of 
you know, in literary tradition, Shakespeare was not the first person to make the connection between dreams yeah, yeah. and storytelling, and he was far from the last. So it is all this idea of that there is an ephemerality to storytelling itself to the image that films are like captured dream states. And it's been something that has fascinated filmmakers for a hundred years and will fascinate them for another 600, you know? And so that's one thing that this is working on. Um, there is obviously the meta level of Cooper, this godlike Cooper saying, we live inside a dream. And that Cooper... Kyle MacLachlan looks like David Lynch. And Cooper yeah. has always been a doppelganger for David Lynch. And Kyle MacLachlan has based his performance off David Lynch. And so there's something about that. It's like this godlike face telling all these characters, remember, we live inside a dream. Yeah. And that this is ephemeral. And, this cl- and I think it's so important that that superimposition and that line comes over what is effectively the climax of the series. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things here. You know, there is the reading of that this is all literally a dream, but I think it's more complicated than that. Of course, Lynch also gets into, I think, the ways dream states and waking states intersect, which is something yeah. he's fascinated with. Um, you know, see Mulholland Drive again or Blue Velvet. Um, but yeah, so... Or Twin Peaks. Or, right. That kind of goes without saying, yeah. but yes. Um, so now we have the next scene with Cooper. He walks towards the camera in darkness. This shot actually was the first shot ever released from Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. From like the first teaser is is Cooper coming into the light of the camera. It's a great shot. Uh, and then from that same darkness emerges Mike, the one-armed man, who reads the famous poem. Yes. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds. Fire, Fire walk with, with me. me. And then the room lights up and we have rapid cutting between the two. And then they are walking, superimposed, down the long, dark hallway, through the dark trees and forest, through that door. And then those stairs, it's the same thing we saw um, the Dirty Bearded Man and other evil Cooper do a few episodes back. And it's kind of eerie to see that same location. Um, They make it up, they they get to the motel lot again. Although it's interesting, it's in color now, not black and white. Good Cooper gets there. Mike still leads. They go a slightly different direction than Dark Coop did through that geography, but they still get to... Um, Jeffrey's teacup and all that. Yeah. Although we see him from a different angle, which I like. There's this like extreme kind of tilted close up on him, billowing smoke. It's interesting. Uh, then Cooper and Mike approach, and uh, Cooper says, Philip. And Jeffrey's goes, Please be specific. And Cooper says, The date, February 23rd, 1989. I'll find it for you. It's slippery in here. It's good to see you again, Cooper. Say hello to Gordon if you see him. He'll remember the unofficial version. This is where you'll find Judy. And then we get a dramatic zoom in on Cooper. So, anything to say about all that? I still really just love every single shot with Teacup Jeffries. It's just amazing. It's the best shit. I say again, I think David Bowie would have thoroughly approved of this. Absolutely. Uh, It's beautiful. But yeah, um, so then uh, Jeffrey says another line here. There may be someone, dot, dot, dot. Did you ask me this? And then Mike shakes his head. And then symbols rise from the smoke. And I love how this is created. First, it's a diamond with like two little ears. And then those become another diamond. And then those soften into the number eight, which tilts to remind you that eight is also the number of infinity yeah. or the symbol of infinity. And then there's a little ball rolling around inside that. And Jeffries finally says, there it is. You can go in now, Cooper. Remember. And then Mike says in backwards talk, electricity. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first of a couple of times that he goes, electricity, in these last two episodes. Yes. Uh, Then the sputtering and the static starts and the image freaks out. 
We pause on Cooper with his eyes closed, zoom in on him as the color disappears on this still frame, and then a fade to black. We'll keep going in a second. Sean, uh, all right, yeah. so... Jeffrey's so much we can poke apart here, but in terms of symbolism, the number eight, also the number of infinity, this little ball rolling around inside it that we can presume maybe in some level, that's how he's like, he is finding the place for Cooper to go in time because he's going to send Cooper on this journey, yeah. right? So all of this is happening. This is, and I would urge you, if you have not yet gone back and rewatched the first scene of Twin Peaks The Return, which is Cooper and the fireman, and the fireman sending Cooper on yeah. his journey, it's really fascinating because... Boy, Lynch and Frost knew where this all was going mm-hmm. because that scene is like, this is the journey Cooper was sent on. And he's at a, a, a critical point in it now. Um, I think the most interesting and provocative thing to me here is the idea of this infinity and this little dot rolling around inside it and Cooper being sent in there. And the idea that, you know, one of the reasons eight is the symbol of infinity is it's a closed loop. Yeah. It has no beginning and it has no end. And that's, to me, basically the, the idea Twin Peaks presents in these last two hours about linearity and storytelling and, and trauma and all these things. That it has no beginning and it has no end. And there is no way to find that linear path forward. Yeah. Um, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. This, it's a strong image. And like, because also like the way it develops from like that weird Twin Peaks-y symbol to the, yeah. the like diamond thing to the eight to then the ball rolling in the eight. Yeah. All right, now we, uh, we whoosh in on a black and white image, the Palmer house, the night Laura is murdered. And we get a succession of scenes from Fire Walk With Me. In fact, the last 20 minutes or so of this episode is almost all stock footage repurposed in various ways. Sometimes with Kyle MacLachlan in there, there's one original scene of Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Cheryl Lee, I presume with some kind of CGI to make her look young, uh, as well, young as like yeah. the original Laura Palmer. I'm not saying she's old. <laughs> Older than she was 25 years ago. And that tends to be how time works. That does have tend out to be how time works. Also, all, it's all in black and white, too. All in black and white, yep. Get you there. That's all, like, flashbacks yeah. are. But I think it's an interesting thing. Although, it's the, interesting. When we get the stuff from the Twin Peaks pilot, that's in color because yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be a flashback. Or some, exactly. some, yeah, some like, yeah at some point it changes from being in black and white to being in color. Yeah, but we'll talk about that as it happens. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I just think it's a really interesting choice that, like, a good chunk of this finale is repurposed footage and that's very interesting there's like a weird part of me that feels like it's david lynch being like yeah this movie was really fucking good you assholes watch it yes. i was like sit down and watch like 15 minutes of this movie i made because it's really fucking good and it's a really good couple of scenes it absolutely it has is. one of oh. my favorite shots in it oh absolutely movie. so good all this stuff like it did make me want to go back and rewatch firewalk with me which now, in retrospect, as like the bridge between the two halves of Twin Peaks feels more important than ever. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, we'll we can talk about that later. But like, I will say this whole stretch where we have the recontextualized footage and all that is where I started to get the feeling David Lynch and Mark Frost they aren't just ending the return this miniseries. This is a finale to all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. I mean, know? it's the second where you realize that Dale Cooper literally traveled in time. Right. They, 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 as literal as you want to take it, but like, if you're taking it literally, he has traveled in time. They're like, okay, this is going to really go some places. Oh, I know. Once I realized where they were going with this, it was just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But yeah, so we get this whole scene where, um, where she gets on James's bike, the shot of them driving down the road, which now you look at that and like, that would be repurposed into like all the evil Cooper shots and stuff uh cooper materializes into the scene where laura and james have stopped in a clearing in the woods it's this whole scene where they the, the i know you love me scene um the whole uh, i do love you james let's get lost together 
There's so much good dialogue here. Um, there's this one moment where Laura wigs out for a second and she looks over at something off screen. In the original movie, we don't see what she sees and she just screams. Here, that spot is where they've put Cooper. Uh-huh. And I love... I, it just It's like, are we supposed to read that as Cooper was always there and like in the movie that's what she screamed at? Or did she really not see... Like, there's so many ways to read that, yeah. and I love it. Because, I mean, also remember, like, there are a couple of places in Fire Walk With Me where the future affects that movie where yes. she, she sees Annie, like, in her bed and stuff like that, and Annie tells her that, like, a good coop is still in the lodge or whatever. Yep. So it's like, there's already weird sort of time shit going on in that movie, and now they just, like, put even more weird time shit going on in it. I love it. Like, time is as malleable to David Lynch as anything else. Exactly. Uh, so we have the whole thing where, where she's, Laura is trying to explain that Bobby killed a guy, and James says, what are you talking about? Bobby didn't kill anybody. And then they go on to something else. Um, the whole speech, open your eyes, James, you don't even know me. There are things about me, even Donna doesn't know me. Your Laura disappeared. It's just me now. Which to me is like, that's the most iconic line from that yeah. movie. Um, also reminded me, right, Donna was neither seen nor referenced in The Return. Uh-huh. Which to me just says she went on and had a healthy life. <laughs> yeah, like, like that is like one of the characters that it makes perfect sense that she has nothing to do with any of this anymore because she seems like the kind of person that would have gotten the fuck out of Twin Peaks as soon as that's, possible. That's what I believe, yes. Uh, and, and the real explanation is Laura Flynn Boyle never wanted to come back. Yeah. And I, I, I guess, I mean, they did recast her for Firewalk with me and maybe, you know, Lynch felt he didn't want to use that actress again or something. But either way, narratively was not important. Um, so then we continue on to the next scene where James is driving Laura home. This is the scene where Laura gets off the bike and shouts, I love you, James. And part of what to me is so eerie about all this is that they've taken out all the music and other sound effects. Mm -hmm. So it's that raw footage. They probably went back to like the original negatives for some of this stuff, you know. And that line where she just screams it but without... Because that's where we get a big swell of the Angelo Badalamenti music yeah. in the film proper. And having that without the music is really eerie. Yeah. Yeah. So then we have Laura going into the forest towards her fate. We have a cut to Leo and Jacques Renault drinking and waiting with uh, the other girl. Whatever her name is. The... Uh, yeah, I don't Yeah, I forget her name. Um, and then Laura Palmer's theme begins, which has been used fairly sparingly throughout Twin Peaks The yeah. Return, all things considered. Uh, and as she stumbles through the woods, Cooper is there waiting for her. And this is where, like, I would love on the Blu-ray to just have, like, an explanation of kind of how they did this. Because it's not like a flawless effect or anything. Like, clearly she looks a little different than she does in the other scenes here. But it's pretty seamless that Laura comes up. I assume it's, like, the kind of de-aging CGI that they've done with, like, Robert Downey Jr. in right. Civil War or something like that. And so it's young Laura, and she says, Who are you? Do I know you? And Cooper stays silent through all this. He says, she says, Wait, I've seen you in a dream. In a dream. And then Cooper reaches out his hand, offering it to her. And she approaches slowly. This is the point in my notes where I wrote, Are they doing what I think they're doing? Which, it's a big if. Yeah. And then she arrives, reaches out, takes his hand, and grasps it. And that's it. We cut to... The bot now this is color footage from the pilot of Twin Peaks. Cut to the body wrapped in plastic. Um, oh, sorry, this is actually still black and white. Um, beginning of the series, the theme is still playing. Then we have some static crackling, and the, the plastic and the body disappear. Yeah. And then we cut back to Cooper and Laura, and we fade into color. This is where we fade into color, sorry. Um, I'm doing my notes and my memory, so I'm not here. Uh, so now we're in color, and Laura says, where are we going? And Cooper says, we're going home. And I actually forgot he said that. Now that I look at that line, boy, is that a loaded line. Yeah. We're going home. Leads her away. The camera pans up and fades to black. 
Now we cut to, and this is again color footage from the pilot of Twin Peaks. It's Josie Packard putting on her makeup. Uh, Pete and Catherine Martell are there. Pete's going fishing. It's, it's the wrapped in plastic scene from the pilot. Yeah. But it's different because Pete walks outside and goes down to the coast, casts his rod into the water. We don't get lonesome foghorn blows. Yeah. And we don't get him discovering the body. He just goes and fishes. And then we have in the Palmer house a wailing, an atmospheric hum, a whooshing. We're in the living room, but there's no human presence. This is clearly in the present day because there's the vodka and the cigarettes and the pills. The kind of miserable Sarah Palmer. Yeah. And then um, finally Sarah enters the shot, grabs the homecoming picture of Laura. And in Lynchian slow-mo and stuttering and with a sound repeating, she takes a bottle and stabs the picture over and over and over, breaking the glass. So much crazy sound. And then we cut to, back, to, cut to black. Yeah. Sound goes away. Back to the forest. So it's, I love how this is cut because the, the one like linear thing going on here is Cooper leading Laura through the forest. And then we're traveling through time to see how this action is reverberating Yeah, in different places. The past dictates the future, Jonathan. Yes. Um, they approach the spot we've seen twice before with the tiny pool and the little tree near Jackrabbit's palace that we saw in, in the present day scenes. And Cooper keeps looking back at Laura like he's making sure she's still there. And then the camera moves in on him. And then there's this little electrical creak. And then we pan down to his hand and she's gone. And then we hear this whoosh and the scream. Laura's scream. He looks around for her but the woods are empty. The camera moves very slowly. A little pan until it rests with a big tree in the middle. Sways back the other way a little bit. And then the world spins. Starts. And that is a Julie Cruz song from the original Twin Peaks. Um... And then something red is kind of superimposed, and then we start realizing it's Julie Cruz singing in front of red curtains as the superimposition. Finally, it settles. It's a long fade, basically, long dissolve. And uh, into just the performance, it is a new... I don't know if it's a new performance, but it's her on stage being filmed. Uh, You know, she looks older. She looks um, like this was shot today. Well, not today, but, you know, in this time period. And then, um, yeah, and the credits roll, and that's it should notice that in the in the credits of this episode we get in memory of Jack Nance. Yeah, because they used the stock footage for this one. Yep, and that's really good. We got a little Jack Nance thing. Because if you don't know, Jack Nance was one of David Lynch's best friends and um, was the protagonist of Eraserhead, then went on to be in every Lynch movie until Jack Nance died in the late 90s and was, of course, Pete Martell on the original Twin Peaks. So I'm glad... fish in the percolator. Great guy, great actor, and I'm so glad uh, Lynch got to do a little dedication to his friend there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Jack Nance was married to Catherine Coulson at one point. It's an interesting note. So, yeah. Sean, what did you make of the ending of this episode and all that beautiful, uh, mind-boggling material here? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it puts you into a weird, like, headspace of just, because it's especially, I think, one of the things that's really unsettling about it all is how quiet and Cooper is throughout all of this that he says almost nothing like he says basically you know we're going home that's kind of all he says but you're like but you have followed him into this world and you're kind of with him but you don't get access to what he's thinking or why he's doing what he's doing and and he's quiet in a way that's really uncharacteristic for that character in a way that has been set up a little bit earlier in this episode of like leading up into these sequences but this is where you're starting to get more of that sense of like Cooper's not old like like good old cooper necessarily it's not like the effect we had from the previous episode where he wakes up and he knows like i am the fbi and it's just like this is like cooper somehow stepped out of old twin peaks and he definitely looks older now but like the essence of that character is so intact and you're losing that here Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The other thing to me about all of this material is that as, as weird as it is, in cinematic language, it's pretty clear what is being communicated and what's yeah. going on. That he is on a mission to save Laura Palmer and he gets her out of her destined path and the future starts changing and I even think that you can now start reading the Sarah Palmer stuff from the present day scenes in a slightly different light. That mm-hmm. like this force that she is living with, I think in part is due to some element of this like interference, you know? Sure. And because I think that cut is pretty deliberate. And, you know, that Cooper is on this mission, he's not sure if it's gonna work, and then she just disappears, setting up whatever's gonna happen in the finale. And all of it is I mean, it's it's so when I say like this feels like a finale to all of Twin Peaks, it's because they are going back to the original sin, the yeah. original inciting incident, the murder of Laura Palmer. You're going back as far as you can and trying to rewrite the very basic premise on which the entire show was founded. And that is such a profound and upsetting and interesting idea. And it is done with such artistry here. I just was a, just agape watching all of yeah. this. Because it definitely... This continues to be the case, but it goes to one of the most remarkable and I think powerful things that about Twin Peaks all along has been that Laura Palmer is not just a murder victim in the way that like that type of character is for, you know, 99% of all police procedurals. It's like, you know, it's this person who is killed and then they motivate this police investigation and that's kind of it. And you get in like like little windows into who they were and then the effect they had on the community they lived in, their family and their friends and everything. But it's not a big emphasis. And Twin Peaks was so much about discovering who this person was and like really understanding the effect that she had on the on the community of Twin Peaks and then the effect that her death has on that community. Because it's, you know, the first half of the pilot of Twin Peaks is just you going around to all the people in that town and seeing how the death of Laura Palmer has like ripped their lives apart before Cooper comes in and starts the like investigation proper. And and so a big element of Twin Peaks, I think, is this desire to not just treat Laura Palmer like a dead body, but as an actual character and to get at her and to save her in some way. In, in this and like the desire to save her is so powerful because I think it does get at a core of something that a lot of like the murder mystery genre by like the sheer like laws of actual physical reality cannot and then like refuse to try to address which is that the act of trying to catch a criminal and and like put them in jail and all this stuff while it is necessary and like good to like prevent future crime and as a punitive thing and all this kind of stuff it does nothing to actually resolve or fix the the crime that was committed and, and the sin that was committed that does not get washed away and the consequences of that do not get fixed the closest i've seen another tv show get to that theme is the first season of broadchurch yeah which i think is brilliant because it is a good you know procedural narrative but its primary theme to me is that the deeper you look at this and on the hunt for justice the more it will hurt yeah. And that's the entire theme of that show. It's why I was able to predict who the killer was one episode in, because it has to be the guy who will hurt the most. Uh-huh. And that's one of the things I love about Broadchurch is that it is, it's questioning that, you know, what is what does our desire for justice really mean? Uh, and you're right, Twin Peaks, in a, in a more oblique way, but still a very palpable way, is about that too. Yeah, and then here it's because of the sort of weird surrealist, magical realist, whatever, like manner that, that Twin Peaks can approach it. It can actually like try to sort of like tackle this question and have 
um, Cooper go back in time and try to save her and see what the consequences of that are. In a way that at first I thought, like, is Part 18 just going to be like a weird It's a Wonderful Life Twin Peaks edition and it definitely like there's maybe a, kind of is. there's a slight element of that but it does not go entirely no. that direction at all no we it don't it goes in like a much like deeper darker direction no we don't go and find like Donna and Shelly and Bobby and like how their lives would have actually been ruined if Laura had lived or something you know like <laughs> like it, the, all the themes we thought Twin Peaks were about it was actually about the exact opposite it's like no like, Laurel probably would have, like, it's maybe a good thing she got killed, because, like, let's be honest, like, all the shit she went through, she would have been a fucking terror on that community. No, it definitely did not go in that direction. Alright, um, so that's part 17. Yeah. Holy crap. Part 18, Sean. You ready for this? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, one thing to say, this was our last call for the theme song, so pour one out for that. And I did note, just while I was watching that theme song go one last time... You know, you see the same names in the opening credits each time. If Dwayne Dunham, who is David Lynch's editor on this, he edited all 18 episodes of this sucker. If he does not win the fucking editing Emmy, that will be the most ridiculous thing in the history of that organization. Because, like, for TV, that is just unheard of. The one guy coming in and wrangling 18 hours of this. Yeah, I mean, that is, it's funny because I had, like, the exact same thought because because it was the last episode, it was like, oh, I'm going to pay, like, actually pay attention to this again uh-huh. because it's like, you know, after the first couple of episodes, you just kind of start, like, tuning out the opening credits thing. And it was, like, reassessing. It's like, right, fuck. David Lynch directed all these episodes. David Lynch and Mark Frost wrote all these episodes and Dwayne Dunham edited all these episodes. Yes. This is 18 fucking hours of television. That is insane. Well, that is such a monumental undertaking by all of those people. 18 finished hours of TV for the editor. Think how many raw hours that is. Uh-huh. That's why I say, like, to me, like, that is such an obvious one. But you can go with all of them. Like, Peter Deming was the cinematographer. And, th- no, there was nothing else on TV this year that rose to the level of Peter Deming. Oh, yeah, I just, God, I, can, yeah. I can say that pretty easily. I mean, just um, any of, like, the scenes with, with Teapot... Teapot Jeffries, like that, just gets you there. I mean, he's yeah. not even talking about episode eight. Yeah, and then and Peter Deming and Dwayne Dunham have worked with uh, uh, David Lynch before. I think they both did. Uh, Mary Sweeney might have edited Mulholland Drive, but I know Peter Deming did Mulholland Drive and some of his other films. Um, the production designer on this was new for David Lynch. It's not Jack Frost. Not Jack, what's whatever his name is. The this, I don't think his name is Jack. Jack Frost is a snow demon. Yes, yeah, I'm no. thinking of Jack Fisk. Sorry, okay. that's Jack Fisk is the production designer. He's also the production designer for Terrence Malick. The production designer on The Return was Ruth DeJong, and also a think of all the locations on this fucking show and how much the production design went into it. Yeah. I just wanted to name some of the people as, as you were saying who did all 18 hours of this. It's monumental. Yeah, because, you know, know, like, I just went through the process of watching Breaking Bad, which was, like, you know, seasons of 12 episodes, and, like, you know, not to denigrate, like, the incredibly hard work all those people did, but it was, like, you know, there were, like, lots of directors that came to direct multiple episodes and everything, but it was, like, each episode had a different Right, well, and... and, Different editors, different... Like, like, they had, like, teams of people that cycled through and worked on different episodes and everything. Breaking Bad uses a pretty small crew, actually, but it still has at least... They have two editors who cycle, and they switch off episodes, and that's how Better Call Saul does it. They have one director of photography, but I do believe like uh, camera operators switch between episodes and stuff. And then obviously each episode is a different director and yeah, writer. So you're seeing like a lot of different right. names as you're watching through that show, which is great. That's a yeah. great way to do TV. But it just means you look at Twin Peaks and you're like, this is pretty singular, especially for 18 hours. Yeah, like that's a that's so much work. So yeah, I just and the one that struck me like 
it just there's something about it, as someone who also does editing like Dwayne Dunham I wanted to like give him a round of applause because this is such a well edited show yeah. and wrangling that much footage into this thing is incredible yeah so yeah anyway um, part 18 begins in the red room with evil Cooper's body with dead eyes on fire yeah, it's such a fantastic shot to open the episode with that would be a great album cover Yes, it yes. would. Yeah, just uh, like just that intense heavy metal. Like that oh, should yeah. be like the, the album cover for the next Nine Inch Nails album. Yes, it's absolutely. Evil Cooper on fire, staring straight into your eyes. Trent Reznor, I heard you wanted to talk to me. What <laughs> yeah. is it? Well, David, uh, I know you. You know you, you you featured my song Twin Peaks, and that was great. But uh, and I was wondering if in return I could use an image from your show on my next album. I love it. That's a great idea. What image do you want? Uh, I want Evil Cooper on fire. You've got it, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I want that. Anyway, um, so he's on fire. That's our last shot of Evil Cooper. Maybe talk about that later. Um, on And then on a black velvet chair, Mike places the little golden seed and the strand of Cooper's hair and says, Electricity! And then it pulses and crackles. The gold ball rises, rises and then pop, another Cooper is created. Mm-hmm. And he looks so happy. He's just like, oh, where am I? And then we have, um, we go back to actually the very first shot of Twin Peaks The Return, which is the red room floor spinning and then going up into the curtains. And then that cuts to the red door of the Jones house. And um, Janie E, uh, someone rings the door and Janie E comes up and it's Cooper, it's Dougie. And Sonny Jim runs up, Dad! And Dougie says in his Dougie way, home. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. Because whatever else happens... Whatever else happens to all of our other characters, Dougie Jones and Janie and Sonny Jim got a happy ending. Yes, what we've been asking for the whole time. Yes. Yeah. I thought this might be the last shot of the finale. It's the first shot, but still, it's perfect. And it is, I think, a really interesting counterpoint to everything that happens later. And I do have thoughts on it, because more than ever, that solidified my thought that Dougie Jones was the heart of this thing. Yeah, and that, in a kind of technical way, Dougie Jones is Dougie Jones at the end of this series. And so... I'm kind of mostly right. It's only a couple of shots, but the sense I got was that, like, the the Dougie that they made here was, like, a more kind of whole ambulatory version of the man our Dougie was. He's not going to take 15 minutes to walk, like, to the bathroom, but he still has that childlike wonder of of old Dougie. That was the the essence of Dougie Jones. Like, it, it makes me feel like this isn't just, like, an empty clone. It feels like Cooper took whatever part of himself that was yeah, and allowed it to be made into a full body. And now that family gets to live on. Yeah. Because I think there is a question here as we get more and more into the doppelganger stuff. Because I think, was it the line in the last episode or is it, is it later in this episode that, that uh, Cooper asks um, the, Diane, like, do you remember everything? And then she says yes. And so I think there's a question to how much do the doppelgangers remember about the other lives that are experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Or even who is the actual doppelganger in some right, of this. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, it becomes a big theme. All right, now we cut to uh, a, re- a little recap of the end of part 17, the same scene from the very end there. Last um, time on Twin Peaks The Return. It's the closest they've ever come to that. Because like, yeah. I think it's interesting that David Lynch issued recaps altogether. Probably someone at Showtime was trying to explain to him why they're important, and he's like, no, we're not using them. Yeah. And anyway, but we do get that scene repeated. And then uh, suddenly he's in the red room with Mike, who says, is it future or is, is it past? past? Um. And Cooper looks quizzical. Now, I did not go back and watch all of parts one and two. 
a lot of these scenes that come up, are they exact replays? I think they are. Like, I also didn't have time to go back in and rewatch the beginning of that. or Because I, I think it's also, like, some of it's from... Some of it's from yeah, part two. Yeah, from part two. But, yeah, I, it definitely... I had, like, deja vu to that. And, and like, because there's a scene with, like, Leland and uh-huh. stuff later that, that, s- that look like they're either the exact same shots or they are, like, directly, like... Mimicking those shots from the beginning. I'd, again, I'd have to look there, and I actually I did not have notes for the first two episodes, uh, so I couldn't go back to those. But like, it, it's felt to me like maybe there were some lines changed here and there, but the sequence of events, what happened, some things were cut out, but a lot of it was the same. Yeah. Like the whole scene where he kisses Laura and she shoofs off into the yeah, air, screams. That's not there. But this was interesting to me because Mike says, "Is it future or is it past?" And it throws all of this into chaos for me because from this point out. I don't know if I feel safe reading anything that happens in part 18 as a direct continuation of part 17. Sure. Like, I don't know if I feel safe saying the scenes we saw in part 2 of this were actually situated there chronologically. Like, all of this, like, and and again, with that idea of the closed loop of infinity, it really, I think, time becomes very malleable here. Yeah. So, I'm not going to go through these scenes in too much depth. We get the scene with Mike. We get um, the evolution of the arm, where he says, I am the arm and I sound like this... <laughs> is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Is it? And then we get old Laura whispering to Cooper. He says, huh? And then the screaming again. Oh, she does shake off into the air here. We do get some, yeah. we get some of that. We don't get... Because we don't get the kissing, I don't think, is what we didn't get. Anyway. Um, and then we get the confrontation with Leland, who just says, find Laura. Um, it reminded me that, like, I, I think, like, it's fine how much he's in there, but I kind of wish there was more Ray Wisen. Yeah, turn because he's so good. It'd I mean, be so, hard. It would be hard to find the spot for him, but it's like he's so fucking good. I know. It's like it's like ah, oh, god damn it! If only they could have found a way to get more of you in this. And I, you know what? I'm sure David Lynch agrees a hundred percent. But it's like, what in the story would you need Ray yeah. Wise for? It's just such a tough thing. And like, because you also don't want to dilute that performance at a certain yeah. point, right? Because um, you do get some good Twin Peaks Firewalk with me Ray Wise shots in this episode as well. Yes, you do. Anyway, um, so find Laura. And then the curtains again, feeling his way out as the curtains rustle. But this time he doesn't exit onto the highway, which is kind of what happened in part two. This time he exits in the place he entered 25 years ago. It's very clearly the same clearing from the season two finale. Yeah. Um, to the point where I'm like, how did they do that? Is this uh-huh. like, is, did they like put Kyle McLaughlin on a green screen and use images from like the season two like negatives or something because like that had that would have to be because it's like word for word or uh-huh. shot like image for image that's exactly what it looks like yeah so it's an interesting thing anyway um, but now when he comes out it's Diane is waiting there for him yeah Cooper approaches is it you is it really you and he nods yes it's really me Diane she touches his face is it really you he asks yeah, she says, and they smile warmly, and uh, behind them the red room curtains disappear and the clearing returns to normal. And now Cooper and Diane, with red hair again, are driving down a desert road. Looks like looks like Nevada or New Mexico to me, um, at least those are states I've driven through, and Nevada would make sense with the Las Vegas stuff. They're silent. Finally she looks over at him. When I say they're silent, that was my note for probably like three minutes of footage. Yeah. Like, I just have to say, we're going to have less things to say about Part 18 in terms of recap because so much of this episode is long shots of people driving. Yeah. And they're brilliant. Yeah. And they're involving. But in terms of descriptor, I don't know how much I can say right here with these. Anyway, finally she looks at him and says, you sure you want to do this? Uh, And she looks kind of apprehensive. And she says, you don't know what it's going to be like once we... And he says, I know that. We're at that point now. I can feel it. 
look, almost exactly 430 miles. And he pulls over. He's like saying there's something on the, you know, the dash. Yeah. Showing. They've done 430 miles. He's really amazed by it in a very Cooper way. And if you remember, the first thing the fireman tells him in part one is, remember the numbers 430 and the names Richard and Linda. Uh-huh. Here's 430, Richard and Linda. We'll get to them in a second. Or maybe we've already gotten to them. Who knows? Who knows? All right. And she is it says, future or is it past? She says, just think about it, Cooper. But with resolve, he gets out, walks down the road a bit. Um, there are power lines. We hear electrical crackling. There's this one like POV shot looking up at the power lines we keep cutting to. Um, he's looking for something like he's feeling it out. And then finally he comes back towards the car and says, this is the place, all right. Kiss me. And then he puts his arm around her and says, once we cross, it could all be different. They look at each other longingly, lovingly, but also fearfully. Kiss again. And she finally says, let's go. They both look forward, put the car in gear, move slowly, ominous music, things begin to blur. And then they're driving down the same highway at night and everything is black. So that's a scene. Yes. Uh, no, neither person reacts, at least not at first. We drive down the highway in the dark, classic Lynchian shot. And on a shot of the two of them, the scene fades to black. So that is, they have crossed over. Yeah. So many ways to read all of this. Like, did they exit out into their world and now they're crossing over to the reality where he saved Laura? Is that too literal a reading? Uh-huh. Did they exit out into some kind of nether world and now they're going back to the real world? Or is it the opposite? The thing I am most struck by with all of this is that through these scenes and through a lot of the later scenes, there is no other human presence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It looks like they have entered an apocalypse. Yeah, that, that, you're right. That There's no, like, random people walking around. They don't pass any other cars. Like, like whenever there is the presence of a human that is not uh, Cooper, Diane, or then later, you know, we get the uh, sort of reincarnation of Laura Palmer, however you want to understand that character. Like, every time there's a human presence that's not those three people, it's, like, particular. Yeah. You know, so it's like when they, they drive up to the motel and Cooper gets out and goes to, to you know, buy a room. You never see that interaction. You don't see a person there. You don't see people hanging out at the motel. You don't see people in any other rooms. It is, like, weirdly barren and desolate and very uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. And you don't, like, you can actually totally easily count on, like, two hands the number of actors in this episode. Yeah. Especially if you discount the Red Room stuff. Because it is... It is Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan. So those two. You have uh, Shelley, Laura Palmer later yeah. on. You have the woman who owns the house. We never see her husband. You have three jackasses at the diner. Yeah. And one waitress that Cooper harasses. Yeah. And there's like one cook in the background that gives him a weird look when he One cook in the background and one dead body. Do you know what number I just counted to? Ten. The number of completion. Probably not a coincidence. Like we can joke yeah. about it. That's probably completely intentional. Is the weird thing. So yes, like ten people total. Uh, it's got by far the the smallest cast crawl in the in the closing credits. Well, maybe part eight, but yeah, part eight though does have a lot of like extras. No, and yeah, stuff. Like, part eight has more. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so very eerie so far. Uh, now we get a big scene. So we fade in at the motel, as you were saying. They pull up. Cooper gets out. Um, he walks. I think it's interesting that, that he walks very clearly down the row of numbered doors towards the office. Diane stays in the car looking at him. Um, we stay with her POV for the whole time. We get this one brief shot where from behind one of the little pillars uh, emerges another Diane. That's all we see of it. Yeah. So and, and, and the Diane in the car doesn't like really react to that. She doesn't say anything. She just kind of sees it. Yeah. Yeah. 
maybe we can theorize about that later, but I don't know if I have any thoughts. Uh, Cooper walks back down the row of doors to door number seven, looks at Diane knowingly, and she finally gets out and joins him. So they go inside the motel. Diane switches on the lights. Cooper says, turn off the light, because, look, Lynch doesn't like that much light. It's just, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. And uh, she says, what do we do now? And he says, you come over here to me. And she does. They kiss. And this is where I wrote my notes. I'm starting to get the feeling something is up with all this. Uh-huh, yeah. And that is before the platters is the My Prayer Begins, which is the song from episode 8 for the murder montage. Yeah. Uh, which plays over their sex scene, which feels intentional. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, Diane Coop do what any two people in motels do. They, they fuck. fuck. Uh-huh. But here, here's the thing, though. His line, you come over here to me, and then his entire visage throughout the sex scene is Dark Coop. Uh-huh. I mean, did you get the same feeling watching yeah. it? I mean, because it's definitely something where... Because, again, it is something that sort of, like, started gradually in the latter part of Part 17, and then has gotten more severe in Part 18 of, like, Coop is weirdly sort of, like, taciturn. He's not, like... Like, he has moments where he's a bit enthusiastic, but he's not, like, you know, the bottle of energy that he normally is, and he's not, just like, super optimistic at bouncing off the walls. He seems more reserved... And then, yeah, you get to this point where I think they kind of turn and, and highlight um, a character similarity between, you know, Classic Cooper and Dark Cooper that I had not noticed, which is that they both um, command people constantly. And, like, that's their main way of interacting with people a lot of the time is that Cooper is telling Harry, you know, what to do to follow the investigation. He's telling, like, what, you know, Leo, like, what to do in, like, in investigation or interrogation. Like, Cooper is a very commanding figure who commands people to do things for him as an FBI agent because he's in that position of authority. And you do what he says because you believe in him and because he's this figure of, you know, like, heroism. And that's something you saw a lot when he woke up in Part 16 is that he's just, like, immediately, like, telling, like, Bushnell, like, you do this, like, Janie, you go around, get the car, you get better, but, and he, like, takes command of the situation and is commanding people to do things, and you see it as something very positive because he's a positive force. But Evil Cooper is the exact same way. Like, Evil Cooper's main way of interacting people is punching them in the face, shooting them, or telling them what to do. And he just tells them what to do. And, and they will just do it because he's... Because if you don't, he's going to punch you in the face or shoot you mainly. And <laughs> so that, like, presence, that very authoritative, commanding presence that both those characters have, I had not read, like, made that connection until this scene where you have ostensibly, you know, you know old-school classic Cooper here, but he is... He's giving those commands, but like what he is asking Diane to do in the manner, like his tone of voice and his body language is not classic Cooper. It is not positive. And I think a lot of this episode is because I don't think it's not supposed to, I like, I personally don't read it and I don't think you're supposed to read it as like he is actually evil Cooper. But I think like what Cooper is for most of part 18 is like this weird middle ground and this weird blend of both those versions of that he has both those character traits and he's. Not, like, you know, aggressively evil, and he's not just murdering people, and, and he's, you know, not just doing evil shit all the time, but he's also not this paragon of virtue either, and he's somewhere in between, and that's, like, a really uncomfortable space for that character to be in. It's the darkest and most terrifying thing about the finale to me. Yeah. Is, and I'd, I'd theorized about this a little bit when we had the scene with uh, Teapot Jeffries in whatever episode that was with, with Evil Coop, and... And Jeffrey says, is that you, Cooper? And he, like, can't tell the difference. Yeah. And it was something I had kind of feared from the beginning, that either we were going to get a clear confrontation between those two, 
or we were going to get a set of scenes or themes where the line between them gets blurred or converges entirely, which is a really sad thing to think about because Cooper is such this paragon of virtue. We never want to think of him as imperfect. Yeah. But people are. And David Lynch isn't really interested in always making you feel good with Twin Peaks The Return. Sometimes yeah. he is. Sometimes he very much is, like with Big Ed and Norma and Nadine and all that. But, but he only makes you feel good so that way it feels bad when he wants you to feel bad. Yeah. And that's the thing is that the Cooper we get here in part 18, it is some kind of convergence. It is some kind of imperfect middle ground. And to me what that becomes and what shines this whole different light on all of the return that makes me fascinated to watch it again but also a little scared is that you know, so much of this series was about misogyny, right? Yeah. And, and this critical, I think, examination of, of all these ways you know, evil masculinity permeates this world, uh, particularly against women. But the thing is, the site of that conflict is fought in some sense on the body of Kyle MacLachlan. It is fought on his face because one of them is evil and wicked and beating up. And the first thing we see him do is brutally murder a young woman. Yeah. And he rapes Diane and he does all these terrible, terrible things, uh, often primarily at women. And he just takes women as his own and all this stuff. And then you have Good Cooper, Dale Cooper, who is like the opposite in so many ways, is an upstanding guy, is a vision of positive masculinity. And Dougie is someone who kind of embodies some of those things too because he's childlike and innocent, right? Yeah. But then you get this conclusion where those two Kyle McLaughlins aren't two anymore. They're one. There's only one Kyle McLaughlin in this finale. Other than like the first shot of yeah. know, Cooper burning. And then and then you get Dougie. So it's sort of right. like you get to see the other two versions. Yeah. And, and to like because Dougie is like the actual pure one because he right. is like this child in so many ways. And so you get like those two images to set you up so that you see the like real Cooper. Like like the actual real Cooper in some ways, the one that is not this like, you know, hyperbolic, you know, television figure but what who feels like more like an actual person with like weird actual person shit going on or again i I, there's so little of part 18 i want to read too literally like Uh because it is also like maybe it's neither of them maybe it's just again the it's it's almost you know starring kyle mclaughlin end of every episode it's not almost as much about the particulars of the character he's playing as that again this this examination of the different spectrums of masculinity is being fought out on his face and on his body. Yeah. And in this episode, it's one body. And that is where you see part of the horror of all this. And this is my interpretation of the sex scene that follows, where we have the My Prayer song, you know, recalling the dirty bearded men in this horrible murder montage. You have the sex scene where it's very long and it's, you know, Laura Dern is on top riding Cooper and he has completely the dark Cooper disengaged visage on. Yeah, he is not reacting like physically or emotionally in any way to this. And she is, she does not look like she's enjoying it. She's crying at a certain point and she is covering up his face because she cannot physically look at it. There's a ton of ways you can read this scene, including, you know, maybe that's not how he actually looks in the moment, but that's all she can see is one thing you can sure. think about. Because this is the same body that raped her, even if it's not the same man. And I think David Lynch would say maybe it is the same man, you know. And to me, like, what that says and what this does in terms of, again, talking about this as a denouement and a coda is that it's all these little series of atmospherics that thematically resolve different threads from the series. And this is where that thread of misogyny and masculinity comes together for me is Kyle MacLachlan plays both the best and worst versions of masculinity on this show, very self-consciously. But in this moment, to Diane, and it's her POV we are in for this whole scene, yeah. 
Does that really matter? Because on that spectrum of masculinity, you have the man who raped her and took her identity, and you have the man who was good to her and loved her, whether that was platonic or not, and you have the best possible version of masculinity and you have the worst possible version of masculinity, and it's all there for her on this one face. And no matter how good the good is, the bad cannot be ignored. Yeah. And that is what she has to look at. That is what women have to look at in masculinity and see. And you have to just cover it up and kind of cry. And to me, like, I don't, I don't, there are so many ways to read, like, narratively where that scene takes place in time, what is going on with it. But to me, like, the themes of that are so damning and so powerful, it left me sick to my stomach in the way I think Lynch probably wanted me to be. Yeah, and it's something that, because I think you can both look at, at like, masculinity in general, but I think you can also just look at it, like, in a more specific sense. of Because there's part of me, like, because I had this urge, um, like, kind of around the time of, like, the weird world transition happens, they go to another universe, of, like, part of me felt like it's, like, it was, like, they're moving into, and especially the way that Cooper changes, is it feels like they're moving into the real world, like, they're moving out of, like, this world of fantasy and television in some way, and Cooper becomes more embodied as a recognizable, complicated, flawed, weird individual human being, as opposed uh-huh. to this, this larger-than-life character, and it, like, made me, reminded me of something that I didn't talk about on the podcast because it seemed, like, too broad and, like, off-topic at the time. But it feels really relevant to this. There's, like, billions of examples of this. I mean, I think, like, probably actually the biggest, most public example recently has been Bill Cosby of being this, like, person that, this man who seems, like, before, you know, it became as public as it was, was, like, this, like, really nice older guy who's funny and, you know, is, like, this icon for, like, African-American co- comedians and stuff like that. And, and also know, a family yeah, comedian. family comedian and, like, star of, like, the Cosby show and this family sitcom um, show and everything. And then you find out that it's, like, oh, actually, he's, like, a serial rapist and, and sexual abuser. And that's, like, uh, holy shit. And that, like, destroys your image of that person. Or much more recently, if you're someone who... Um, follows Polygon closely or like particularly like the Polygon video content there was a one of the video producers and then also like a sort of an online or, or like on video personality for some of the videos that I like to watch with Polygon was Nick Robinson who seen who projected this image of being this like very sort of like it's called a soft boy of being like this very sort of like you know nerdy like non-threatening like very nice like like progressive version of masculinity and then over the course of a couple of weeks it started coming out that like this sort of like you know it felt like all these um small little accusations in the background about him abusing his position of power to coerce women to perform sexual favors and do all this stuff like there were these small accusations that then built up and built up and built up until one night on twitter there's like one offhand comment then just exploded this whole range of like all these different women in games journalism and and in the fan community talking about their experiences and their stories with this guy, Nick Robinson, who then eventually Polygon responded and he has since been let go from Polygon. And like that, as someone who followed like some of that video content, enjoyed some of that video content, mostly because he co-starred with Griffin McElroy, which is, who's a much funnier guy. But like, you know, I had this weird sort of like fan relationship with him that then when all those stories came out, like I felt like really hurt in this way of like, fuck, like you are not this like, funny person that just gets to be a funny person that doesn't have any like the actual reality of like the consequences of things that this person commits 
on their own time in their private life like that invaded like part of his personal responsibilities but that i'm not exposed to i can't like compartmentalize that i can't just ignore these things that you've done and enjoy the like the, the comedy videos you put up on youtube i can't fucking do that it's like that that weird image of of you know like celebrity or something of you just enjoy and and consume what this person produces or like who this person is as they project it into the world which like some people who are like huge fans of their content like had their whole identity wrapped up in what these people produce and like produced fan art and all this stuff and were so wrapped up in that and then to have that 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 model and that vision be sullied and destroyed and become real and become something that's like fuck people suck like people fucking suck and like lots of people are not terrible but there are more than enough that really are that it makes it very hard to have this faith in any individual person especially if that person has like you know has committed these kinds of acts in the past that makes it impossible that if nick robinson ever like two or three five years from now comes back up and is making more videos on the internet I can't go back to that. Like, I can't follow that guy, even if yeah. he, he rescinds all that stuff and seems like he's fine. In the way that, like, with, with Diane's relationship with Cooper, that she can't put that behind her, even if there's this sort of projection of, there were two versions of this person. There's the person I loved and loved me and respected me and was good, and then there's the version of the person that was not those things and abused me and raped me. And in the real world, people are both those things. Yes. If, and you are, is- if you are going to be abused murdered or raped by someone that is significantly more likely to be someone you know and someone you probably care about and definitely someone who cares about you and it just so happens that those two things are not contradictory like love and and possessive and aggressive and violent action those are not like opposites on a spectrum those are often the same thing yes and it's why David Lynch's use of film language is so important. And to me, some of this stuff goes back to the very beginning of his career. Because exploring that subconscious space and that dream space and where things don't have to be literal but can mean more meaningful things. What I thought of during this scene, for instance, is the scene in Blue Velvet, the Mr. Sandman scene. Yeah. Well, one of the two. The, the, the one where Frank, get, Frank Booth gets... Um, Jeffrey Beaumont, the comic clocking character, out of the car and is putting on the lipstick and is, you know, candy colored Sandman, candy colored yeah. Sandman, and is playing that song and he sings along with the Roy Orbison track and says, In dreams I'm you, in dreams you're mine. And it's this horrible, you know, rapist fuck, Frank Booth, looking at nice, sweet, little, you know, all American boy Jeffrey Beaumont and saying, We're the same. And Blue Velvet, I think. Everyone knows Blue Velvet is a dark movie. I don't know if everyone reckons with just how dark a movie Blue right, Velvet yeah. is at, at its heart in terms of, I think, what it's saying about Americana and about these, these personalities. While never reducing anything to a simple binary, like Jeffrey's also a complete piece of shit, but he's saying, you have all of this in you too. And you can be all of this too. And so when David Lynch uses doppelgangers and stuff, this is why it frustrates me when I see on Twitter or something like Twin Peaks getting down to like, well, maybe this doppelganger was this, and like these yeah. numbers mean this. It's like, that's not the point, because it's exactly what you were just talking about. It is a way to, in the, in the subconscious dream space of film, to express these ideas that are so immensely hard to grapple with in our waking life. Yeah. Like you said, like, you know, the, the filmmakers I think of, like, I can't watch a Woody Allen movie anymore. Right, yeah. Dude molested his daughter. Like, you know, I... I've never been able to watch Roman Polanski. He's a rapist. I don't know why we give him Oscars and stuff. Right. That, I think, kind of disqualifies you. And it's things like that. Like, 
you know, people can do something you love and something you hate and, and that duality is hard to grapple with. And I think one of the things Lynch understands about human nature here is that, you know, can't forgive the bad because there's good there too. Yeah. And that's so much about what this this last scene is. And I mean, it, and it really goes back to the heart of Twin Peaks because it's one of the, especially with Fire Walk With Me, it's like one of yeah. the core elements of this whole series is that, you know, Leland Palmer is both those things. Like, he is the loving father and he is also, you know, the incestuous abuser. Like, he, yeah. he's like in the, the guise of Bob, like they use, like it's particularly like really effectively in Fire Walk With Me, they use Bob as that sort of like, you know, again, dissociative figure of, of that, like, you put this off on this other image, but in the scene Firewalk With Me, where, like, where Laura Palmer is raped, those two, like, Bob and Leland Palmer are the same figure, and, and they are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And, like, those two those two things exi- can and do exist in the same people. Yeah. All right. Uh, the next morning, Cooper gets, uh, Diana's left, we don't see Laura Dern again, and Cooper has a note, for, I assume from her, but who knows, and it says, Dear Richard, he notes the name Richard, when you read this, I'll be gone. Please don't try to find me. I don't recognize you anymore. Whatever it was we had together is over. Linda. And Cooper repeats the names. Richard, Linda. To me, Comic Lachlan plays it like he's trying to remember, like, what's the meaning of that. Yeah. And if you, again, if you go back to episode one, uh, the fireman warns him, of, warns him of those names, Richard and Linda. Now... Million ways you can kind of get into this. Yeah, is you know notably Richard is also the name of Evil Cooper's son with yes. Audrey Dick Horn. Dick Horn, which is the closest we come to any kind of reference to Audrey in these last two episodes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we'll get to that. Um, but you know, I I guess to me, like I, I have not gone into the full theorizing space of what this all symbolizes, other than it's kind of a tacit confirmation that these are different people in this dimension than they were in ours or something, yeah. you know? Again, like, to me, it just goes down to... It's like, because it's, it's the whole process of this finale feels like it steps in dissociation. It steps yeah. in you, in removing you from your, like, foundation in self and in, and in like, place. Uh-huh. And so, like, it does that both in time, it does that in setting, because we also, until we get to, like, very specifically Odessa, Texas, we have no fucking clue where we are. We could be anywhere. Yeah. Right, like, like you said, like we theorized, it's like maybe you're kind of like in Nevada or something in that scene, driving up to the electrical pylons. It's like just based on the the, the sort of location, the, the the visual of it. But then once you're into like this motel area, it's like where the fuck are they? I have no idea. Well, and really, where the fuck are we? Because the next scene is he exits the motel, but it's not the one we saw. In yeah, the exactly. Scene. It's a different motel because the first one is like this one story hotel motel, and then this next one is like two stories. So it's very like clearly not it's, the same. Motel. It's flagrantly like throwing continuity away. Yeah. And so, yeah, and then so then having also removing the names, which is going to be a, a, a thing, a recurring thing once we uh, see Laura Palmer's reincarnation or whatever you want to see it as, like like you you are removed from that sense of self as well. You you yeah. lose the sort of like label by which you can identify who these people are, and so we don't know is this Cooper, is this Evil Cooper, is this Dougie, is this Richard? Like who who knows who these people are anymore? Yes, absolutely. So now he's in a completely different motel. It reminded me a little bit of the apartment complex in part one where um, Major Briggs's body is found. Yeah. I'd have to look to see if it's the same set. Wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Because also the first motel reminded me a lot of where Evil Cooper went in and killed the one lady. Like, yeah. Like that scene. And so, where he gets his like crazy briefcase with his little tiny uh, like surface tablet in there. Right. Um, goes to his car. Looks back. He seems confused by all of this too. It's a different car this time. It's like an FBI um, mobile, yeah. It's like it's all yeah, black. That's what they call stuff. them, FBI mobiles. Well, I don't know, FBI town car. What? 
this is an FBI anyway. car. All right. Uh, anyway, he drives off. I noted there were lots of clouds on the horizon. Still no human presence. Now we're in Odessa, Texas. Um, he sees a diner that says eat at Judy's and gets a sense like maybe I should go here. Um, from its, and I should note, like all the Judy stuff, he's going to go find Judy and that never becomes like concrete in this yeah. last episode, which I think is fascinating. I mean, he never, nobody says the word Judy at no. all. Like, you, all you see is that sign is the only yeah. direct reference to it. Yeah. So I'll just describe this scene really quick. I mean, this is the scene where Cooper comes in. There's a waitress named Christy. That's in the captions. I don't think we learned that elsewhere. Serves him coffee. Cooper is asking about another waitress that works here. Um, this is like, there is something, as someone who is like, I've not been a waiter, but as someone who's like worked in service positions as like cashiers and stuff, there is something I had this visceral reaction to when he asked, is there another waitress here? And like, obviously the, the, the interpretation for the waitress is like, oh, this guy doesn't want to, me serving him. Fuck you, asshole. I had like right. this really visceral response to that. Yeah. Which I think is important and intended. Yes. Um, uh, there's these three like cow cowboys is how I describe them in another booth. They start harassing Christy. Cooper shouts to leave her alone. The cowboys come over to him and one of them pulls a gun. Cooper grabs it, kicks the guy in the balls, shoots another in the foot, puts the gun on the third guy and says, put your gun on the ground. I don't have a gun. Put your gun on the ground. He does. (laughs) So again, gun violence. Recurring theme in Twin Peaks: The Return. Yeah. It's also, a- that, like um, Evil Cooper, multiple times over the series has done the like disarm someone and then punch them yep. move, and so like I feel like that being the introduction to this like bit of violence is very intentional. This is where I started noting in my notes all of this. Like I wrote, um, this seems almost like an eerie fusion of good and bad Coop, or almost like a renewed Evil Cooper, renewed after all those years decaying in our real world. Again, and I've seen some people read it that way. Uh, again, I, I like the kind of fusion angle yeah. that this is a different, maybe, character entirely. Um, so, gets their guns. One thing I will say, like, it's, it's he never approaches a denouement moment about the gun violence. Or the closest I think you get is with the Mitchum brothers saying, like, people are strung out, man. You yeah. know, or whatever that people line People are really is. stressed out these days. People are really stressed yeah. out these days. But, like... It's presentation of guns as crucial to Americana as coffee and apple pie is not a mistake. No, yeah. It is a critique. Anyway, um, so Cooper wanders in a circle. He's pointing the gun in all directions. Christie's freaked out. Tells her, again in that commanding way, write the address on a piece of paper. Write the address of the other waitress on a piece of paper. Um, and then he, he, he moves the fries in the, in the fryer. <laughs> He's just like, where do you put this? What? Yeah. Like, where do you hang this up? Yeah, and so he hangs it up, and then he takes each of the guns, agonizingly slowly, and puts each in the frying oil, and just boils some guns. And then the great line, I don't know if the oil's hot enough to set off those bullets, but I'd move away. Yeah. This is like, I don't fully understand why you would have to fry. I get that like it destroys the gun but it's such a like flagrantly dangerous fucking thing to do it's like do you just just like take them with you to your car or something you don't need to like this is crazy yeah no I I loved all the jokes online afterwards though about Cooper Fry's guns now yeah. it's pretty great uh, Cooper pulls up to a slightly worn house we hear some of that low atmosphere coming again and then on a Pole, like an electricity pole, we see the number six, which was in Andy's vision, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. It so was. That's interesting. Um, and I will note the number six, seven, and eight are all dwellings in recent episodes. Yeah. So, if you want to get into your numerology, uh, Cooper approaches and then knocks. A woman comes up apprehensively, and it is Cheryl Lee. Who is it? FBI. Did you find him? I don't know what that is about. We never learned. Yeah. Uh, and she says, Laura. And she says, Oh, you didn't find him. Laura. You got the wrong house, mister. You're saying you're not Laura Palmer? 
Laura who? No, I'm not her. What's your name? Carrie Page. So we're meeting Carrie Page here. She tries to shut him out. Um, Cooper tries again, says your father's name was Leland. Your mother's name is Sarah. She seems kind of affected by the name Sarah. She asks what's going on and says it's difficult to explain. As strange as it sounds, I think you're a girl named Laura Palmer. I want to take you to your mother's home, your home at one time. It's very important. And then I love her dialogue here. Um, Listen, normally somebody like you comes around and I tell them to fuck off. This door would be slammed in their face. Right now, I got to get the hell out of Dodge anyway. It's a long story. So riding with the FBI just might save my ass. Where are we going? Twin Peaks, Washington. D.C.? No, state. A little like... That's that's a very good line there. Um, So she invites him in while she prepares to leave. And in the room is a dead man... Hole in the head. His stomach is blown out. Very similar to Evil Coop in last yeah. episode. Um, and this is it. We don't really get another reference to that. Yeah. Like nobody. Like like she doesn't say anything about it. Coop doesn't say anything about it. Or or Richard, whoever this person is. Yeah. It's just there is just a fucking dead body decaying there with a bullet wound in the head with like flies buzzing around him. Two other notes here that I liked details in the scene. One is there's a little horse on the mantle in front of a blue plate. And someone pointed this out on Twitter. There's that dream sequence in Firewalk with yeah. me where Laura sees a ha- horse in her house. And now she has a little sculpture on her mantelpiece. Yeah. I like that little piece of continuity. It's almost like, like Blade runner in a way. Boy, very Blade runner because that horse looks so much like the, yeah, the, uni- the unicorn. The, the really crude unicorn in Blade. I think they fixed that in the final edit of Blade Runner, but I remember in like the 1991 director's cut, it's just like a horse and they put like a thing on its head. Yeah. Probably hurt the horse, <laughs> all that. Anyway, uh, and then the other detail I liked here is there's a little line where she, he says, or she, the, the phone starts to ring and no one ever answers it. That's never explained. But she asks Cooper, Washington, is that like up north? Do I need a coat? And he says, well, take a coat if you've got one. She says, all right, listen, I don't have any food here. I'll get us some food on the way. All right, let's go. It's, it's an interesting start to the road trip. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, we get a, a long... I'm not going to describe these shot by shot or anything. We get a long series of driving scenes. And by yeah. long, I mean like 15 minutes. Yeah. And... There's a part where, like, she gets paranoid because there's another car near them, but it just pulls around. That's the closest thing in all of this we get to other human contact. The whole world seems so devoid of life. Um, there's uh, this this part where they pull up to a gas station, and yeah. there's a very long shot. It's a fucking amazing shot. It's amazing. I love that shot. Yeah. When I say long shot here, I don't mean it is long in duration, but I mean in terms of distance. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, like, up on a hill almost. And then the gas station down there, there's, like... And there's light radiating out from the center of it. You're right. It's an amazing shot, the way it uses light. And that's kind of it. This is what we see there. Um, But nothing really happens. Um, There is, at one point, Laura has this little monologue, and I loved it. She says, Odessa, I tried to keep a clean house, keep everything organized. It's a long way. In those days, I was too young to know any better. And just the way Cheryl Lee says that, the pauses, the photography, and most importantly, the atmosphere, which... God, David Lynch is better than anyone else at capturing the feeling of a, a Midwestern American road trip. Yeah, just like the long, empty, like, yes. especially like this, like at night, mm-hmm. where the darkness of the, like, because most of the frame is just completely black, black for huge stretches of this but sequence. But I have, I have felt the feelings they get out of these images on my own road trips to Iowa and other yeah. places. Uh, if you've never seen David Lynch's The Straight Story, Tonally, it's very different than Twin Peaks, but it's all about the road. It is a story about, it's in the state of Iowa, and it is, I think, one of the best movies ever made about the American Midwest, and absolutely, I think, a thematic 
counterpoint to some of this stuff because it's about the goodness in people, not just the darkness. Yeah. Um, which this also has a lot of the goodness in people, just not this episode so much. Anyway, there's just there's such a sadness to all of this too, though. Like that basic question of like, what if Laura had lived? And then here she is. I mean, I know she's named Carrie Page here, but the idea that you know, what if she had grown up and maybe she would have been just as broken and downtrodden as everyone else. Yeah. And it's, and you know, probably because she was abused and she was broken and all these things. And it's very sad to consider. Finally, anyway, we do get to Twin Peaks. They pull past the Double R Cafe. Very few signs of life. Again, we never see a person anywhere in the town. Um, which Twin Peaks, having been in the return, a pretty lively place. Mm-hmm. Seems, like particularly the, the diner. Oh, yeah. yeah. It seems very unlikely. Um, Cooper asks if she recognizes anything. She doesn't. They finally pull off... Um, uh, the road and like put the car in park and they look at the house it's house 708 the palmer house number seven and eight again there you go um and she does not recognize it and this whole time i wonder what your reaction was but i was waiting for like okay it would kind of make sense if the ending to this is this reunion between sarah and laura but are they going to do it like i was really unsure what this scene was going to be yeah but we get there and this is the this last scene of the show um cooper gets out and laura follows and they approach the house apprehensively uh, and here Cooper gives her his hand and beckons like he did for young Laura in the forest. I noted here that, you know, he strikes me here as kind of like he's a shepherd bringing her home and he's kind of on the last legs of this journey and he looks old and tired and kind of broken, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, anyway, they approach the white front door going up the long steps. Cooper knocks. They both kind of mentally prepare themselves. No answer. Knocks again. And then finally someone comes up. It's a woman uh, and she says... Um, well, Cooper says, FBI, I'm Special Agent Dale Cooper. Is Sarah Palmer here? And she says, who? Sarah Palmer. No, there's no one here by that name. Do you know Sarah Palmer? No. Is this your house? Do you own this house? Or do you rent this house? I love the dialogue here. And she says, yes, we own this house. Who did you buy it from? And then the woman whispers to, I assume, her husband, uh, asking the name of the seller. And she says, Mrs. Chalfont. Do you happen to know who she bought it from? And I love the idea of like being woken up in the middle of the night and being asked <laughs> yeah. this series of questions. Uh, and they, she's asked again. They don't know. Cooper and Laura seem very deflated. Finally, she asks, what is your name? Alice Tremond. Okay. Sorry to bother you so late at night. That's okay. Good night. Good night. And I wrote, well, that was disappointing for everyone. <laughs> and it is because it's amazing how many opportunities Lynch and Frost build into the writing. They're like, this will be the revelation. Uh-huh. This will be the revelation. This, it never comes Everyone is disappointed. Mrs. Tremont never gets anything out of it. Cooper never gets anything out of it. Laura never gets anything out of it. We never get anything out of it other than, I guess you can't go home again. Yeah. And once, once, that, that line, once they said goodnight to each other, I thought, this is the last scene. Like, I, wasn't, I didn't even check, like, and, like, check how much time was left. It was yeah. just, I knew like, this thematically is so appropriate. I mean, it, there was just such a sense of finality. Like, once you see the Laura Palmer house, like, like that again and yeah. especially because in the previous episode you had seen some of those scenes and like from Fire Walk With Me they used that house really fantastically of the scene like of her on the lawn like going and getting on yeah. his bike and everything that it definitely you have the sense of like we are coming to a close and then yeah you're right like once you have that that whole weird exchange where like Cooper seems extremely extremely confused by everything that's going on here and then just like decides like okay there's, we're not getting anywhere good night good night yeah, I definitely felt it was coming. Because it's so much, It's this is supposed to be like, this feels like the climax we're building up to. Like, oh, they took the long journey, a lot of weird things have happened, but they're finally getting home. 
this is where Laura will wake up and things will go back to normal. But Dougie should have taught us. That's not how Lynch rolls. Yeah. Because we had this exact setup like a billion times on Twin Peaks The Return already. Uh And for it to be the ending, it's very appropriate that we're not actually going to get it. Like whatever this journey was, the destination wasn't there. There is no ending. Like that's, this is kind of how I closed my piece on on the show. There is no point to the ending and that's kind of the point of the ending, you know? Right. And I mean, there is a little more to go, but like just seeing that and that, there was nothing there. It's just like, oh, crap. Now, some people would say there might be something there because three important details. Uh, Mrs. Chalfont, Mrs. Tremont, those are names from Firewalk with me. Yeah. Something to do with the person who gives Laura the picture and all that. Yeah, the weird old lady. I don't think it changes my interpretation of that at all. No. I, I don't think that really matters. Uh, and then just an interesting production detail that I did like is that um, the woman in this scene yeah. is the woman who in real life owns the house. Which... That was like a weird thought that had occurred to me in the middle of that scene that I think is largely because the way that that woman acts is not like an actor. And, and so not like a Lynch actor yeah, either. And so there's just something so common about like her and, and the way she, she was talking that I had this weird thought because also I had that thought earlier of like, are we in the real world? Is that what has happened here? Or like, have we like totally broken it? And then... That detail of that, that is actually like, you know, straight up, that is the woman who actually owns the Laura Palmer house in real life is like, okay, shit. Like, that is definitely intentional. Yeah, no, that, there's a lot of implications there, we'll yeah. say. Uh, also interesting to note, they shot this in October of 2015. We're almost two years from the shooting of this scene. Like, I, I guess the shooting of the show moved on to like April. So this last scene was shot pretty early in production. Yeah. But um, Kyle McLaughlin was talking about that, that they shot this months before a lot of the rest of the show. I would love to... I've seen a couple interviews with Kyle McLaughlin. I would love a specific interview asking, like, what was the production sequence? Like, Uh when did you shoot all the Dark Coop stuff? Like, South Dakota, was that different from, like, what was the location stuff? Like, how many days were you on set? Because Kyle McLaughlin is in every episode and he's in more than anything else. But there's a lot without him. So yeah, like, exactly. Like, like he's in he's in the show a lot, but the sections he's in are like very specific sections. So like all the yeah. stuff with the sheriff office and stuff, he doesn't need to be there in, other than the one scene in part 17. Yeah, so I would just love to know like, yeah. Because he doesn't even interact with a lot of the rest of the, the returning cast yeah. until that last episode. So anyway, I'm going to get off on a tangent. But yeah, so Cooper and Laura descend the steps again. In the street, Cooper stops. He seems totally lost, almost like Dougie again. He turns back around and looks at the house. So does Laura. He walks back a step or two, and then he starts feeling for something, like feeling energy. And he says, what year is this? What year is this? The last line of Twin Peaks. What year is this? Laura thinks. She looks at the house, too. And then we hear a faint shout. It's Sarah Palmer yelling, Laura. Uh, In my notes, and I think I misstated this in my review, too. I thought that was Leland. Yelling Sarah yeah, no, it's, or it's, Laura. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely Sarah, Sarah. But yeah. it's just my first watch through, I, I got that wrong. Um, and then Laura's... It's definitely, it is a line. I don't remember exactly where it's from. It might be from the pilot. But it's definitely, yeah. it definitely is a line that is from Old Twin Peaks. Yes, yes. It's Laura. A re- yeah. Uh, and then Laura screams, the piercing scream. And I love this last, like, one, two, three. Lights in the house go out. The image cuts to black. And the scream echoes out and yeah. fades. Because it's like the, the lights in the house go out. It's also just like this like really intense effect of the sound effect. It's like... Yeah. And, and the house just like... And it, it, it is the most Fire Walk With Me shit that David Lynch has done since Fire Walk With Me. Is that like scream cut like reverse shot to the house. The house like just like an electric explosion and the lights go out in the house and then cut to black. Is the exact it's, kind of like 
horror sensibility that he had in Firewalk with me. It looks like existence itself blinks away. Yeah. You know, like and it's, and it's but it, and it's also just like that house, which is the seat of the sort of of, of incest and the abuse of like that that generated Twin Peaks in the first place, is such a villainous force in the show. Yeah. And like of like and especially like once you start getting into more of like in in original Twin Peaks, once you kind of get the sense of like oh Leland Palmer is not good here because that's where he murders Maddie and everything. That house is such a dangerous, unsettling presence. Um, that yeah, ending with that shot of the house and the house being made monstrous in that moment is actually the perfect shot to end the show with. Yeah, there is one last image, kind of. Um, there's actually a pretty long stay on black, kind of like the Sopranos ending, and then finally music fades in. Beautiful new Angelo Badalamenti theme, um, and then this this shot. I think it's from episode one, but it could be new of Laura whispering in Cooper's ear. Yeah, it's also from. Um, Part 17 where they like go back right, through right. the events. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like very... it's they, They've turned the brightness like way down yeah. on it. And uh, it, it's playing... It almost looks like a still, but it is moving very slowly. Cooper looks very kind of confused. Um, the credits roll over it. And kind of one last mystery. We never heard what she whispered, what Cooper yeah. heard. Because that's all... Because that is the one that like when he hears it, he goes, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. The last thing for us to think about. And then um, after the credits, the image fades. And the Lynch Frost logo and the Showtime logo for this time play silently, which I think was a good choice. Yeah. And that, my friends, is Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. So uh, we, we kind of did some talk on this ending at the top of the show. We're back around to it. We, yeah. we mentioned a few different readings of it, but... Just in, like, when people say this ending is, like, unsatisfying or, like, not structured or something and, like, it didn't, you know, follow a certain path. To me, it's like, again, the logic of ending back at the start, the the place of the original sin where the incest and the murder happened, that house, and having it go back to that primal scream and coming back to those themes of displacement and dissociation and what year is it, complete confusion and... That you you can like literally you can never go home again yeah. after these things have happened. That this whole show was about the notion of returning, and it ends on an attempt to return, and all that you can hear there is the scream. To me, it's like that ending left me shaken. It left me sitting in the dark for like ten minutes just thinking. But at no point did I think anything else other than they did it. That was perfect. Yeah. Because there's also, there's another component to the ending, which is, I think, like, Cooper's role in it of, because because this is also, I think, one of the most interesting things about Twin Peaks The Return is that we got Cooper back in part 16, but he's only really like Cooper Cooper for that episode. Like, you get little glimpses of it in part 17, but he's such a small part of the big, like, wrap-up of the Dark Cooper story and everything like that. He has a couple of lines, but he's not actually active in that. It's all, like, the other characters are the ones that are actually acting in that moment. Um, not acting as, like, actors, but acting as, as actors in the story, not as yes. actors as the profession. Um, that you don't, like, like that part 16, that was our big nostalgia Dale Cooper moment and that was the only big nostalgia Dale Cooper moment really like that was because as soon as he comes back in part 17 he's immediately you know making out with Diane which is not something you associate with Cooper at all and and you have this so you start that weird displacement and dissociation of the audience with that character 
But then it's only until this section of part 18 that you see that with Cooper himself. And that, like, a big, like, I mean, that's what they kind of, like, said was the Showtime said was, like, this is what Twin Peaks The Return is about, is about Dale Cooper trying to return to Twin Peaks and trying to return to that place and to, to that pass and to, to... I still think it's the most apt plot summary of this show. It, it absolutely is. And it is, like you're saying, it's something where he can't return there because it's 25 years later. Like, this isn't a week has passed. This is 25 years and 25 years that he was gone. And so this whole story has been a very long... For, like, one way you can read the story is as a massive fish-out-of-water story of this man who is like the embodiment of a certain kind of pop culture from the early 90s. He would like created a whole kind of pop culture from the early 90s along with Twin Peaks, who is then removed from time for 25 years and then plopped back out from like 1991 or 1992 back into 2017 America. And, and he's utterly dysfunctional. And he's like literally completely dysfunctional for almost the entire series as Dougie, uh, Dougie Jones. And then when he regains his faculties as Cooper, he's effective for a brief moment when he's regained those faculties. But then he's immediately lost in that world. And like, and literally like he transitions into this like brave new world of 2017 America where there are cowboys and diners with, with pistols and all this shit. And, you know, you go out and, and sleep with some woman named Linda in a motel and have no idea where you are, what you're trying to do. And he's lost in that world and he doesn't know how to be himself in that world. And he feels corrupted by that world and made like real by that world and by that age and by that distance and that time. And to me, that's such a huge part of this whole show has been that effect of time. And then you see it in all the returning cast members that, you know, 25 years is a long time and people change over 25 years, both in who they are and how they look and their situation in life and the world around you changes in those 25 years. And it's such a stark look at that difference from again, like the early nineties is such a different place than where we are now in terms of politics, in terms of like geography, in terms of like makeup of the country in both like an ethnic sense. And then just like a sheer population density sense is more intense than it was like gentrification and stuff like that, which I feel like there's like a weird element of that with the way that the demographics and like population density of Twin Peaks as the town has changed. It's just the world is a very different and in a lot of ways, I think, like, more disturbing and kind of chaotic world to live in now, especially, like, in Trump's America, but even ignoring the Trump's America part of it, you know. Which like, they had no idea of yeah. when they made this, yeah. Like, climate change is a very, like, real present threat. Terrorism is a very, like, this is a post-9-11 world, and terrorism is a very real and present threat. And gun violence in America, which has always been a thing, is a more present and, like, like frightening component of this world. And just, like, our ability to connect with the world is so numerous through technology and through the internet that it is, I think it's hard to be salient in this world now in the way that like back in the nineties, whether that's entirely true or not, there's this cultural perception of like, it's a simpler time is that it's somewhat an easier time. And for like Dale Cooper can live in the nineties. He can't live in 2017. Like you can't be that anymore. Like what it means to be like this, like classic American, like coffee and, and apple pie kind of guy does not mean the same thing now as it used to. I think David Lynch and Mark Frost in Twin Peaks The Return had their finger on the emotional pulse of America so powerfully. You know, it's one thing, not an easy thing, but it's an easier thing to have your pulse on the politics of the time, on the trends of the time, 
it's a different thing to have your finger on the emotional pulse of the time. Yeah. And it's why, um, you know, I drew a lot of comparisons with the Twin Peaks finale to the finale of The Leftovers. That's a very different thing. Obviously, The Leftovers, in its whole run, produced not that many more than 18 episodes. And it's only, you know, aired over three or four years. This is not a 25-year project, right? Right. But The Leftovers is a very powerful show. Had a very similar last episode, where the last episode was a denouement, kind of unconnected to a lot of other things. And... You know, also a show that I think very much was about, like, The Leftovers was was about, you know, a world where people are so on edge and hurt and broken and they can't even quite pinpoint the source of all that anguish. And that does feel like we are living in a world hurt and broken and on edge. And I think Twin Peaks The Return absolutely feels like it has its finger on that same pulse. And it, you know, gets to explore it in more corners and things like that. But I actually think I'm surprised at how much these two shows work as great companion pieces to each other. And definitely, to me, the best two seasons of TV this year. Um, but yeah, it's... it's The other thing that I think is a big theme here is that, you know, and you were talking about, is not just, you know, time has displaced Dale Cooper, but time ravages. Mm-hmm. And time ravages all. And I would... Uh, I'm going to recommend some different pieces that I read over the over the weekend on a great Twin Peaks writing. One of those was Matt Zollerseitz's essay on this. Yeah. And he wrote a lot about aging and how much the show was about death and aging. You know, just that, you know, uh, David Lynch focused on old faces and he had close-ups and he wasn't afraid to show the wrinkles and the age and all that. And so much of the show was devoted to actors who were either being presented posthumously in archival footage or shot their stuff and then died well before the show could air, like Miguel Ferrer and Catherine Coulson and... There's kind of, I, I can't pinpoint a lot of other things like that where it, it captures so much of the transience of life in its own physical being because it's not afraid to be about aging and about, you know, mortality and all these things. Yeah. Um, you know, because we have a whole slew of these shows coming back for revivals, right? We've had a bunch yeah. of this over the last few years. I absolutely loved the Gilmore Girls revival last year on Netflix. It's really good, but it's not a show that particularly gets into that nine years have passed since the end of the original Gilmore Girls and, you know, Rory, the Alexis Bledel character, doesn't feel like she's really nine years older. Um, and you can get away with that on Gilmore Girls, I think, because it's a, it's a lighthearted show. Stars Hollow is kind of like a fantasy American town. That's fine. But, like, you know, Twin Peaks is, I think, very rare in this series of revivals to be so much about the time that has passed. Yeah. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, The X-Files doesn't get into, like, probably, like, you know, Mulder is old and sad now or I something. I mean, there's little bits of that, but it's yeah. definitely, it was not the main through line of, the, of that season 10 thing. Right, because what, from what you told me, mostly X-Files season 10 was, let's do more X-Files. Yeah, and that's that's when it was best, when it's like, let's yeah. do more X-Files and kind of address how things have changed for these characters and how, like, the nature of, like, the world does change how they approach the cases, but it is much yeah. more about, like, let's have fun, new, weird, or, sci-fi, horror or when stories. Or when 24 came back for that thing with uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Live Another Day, it wasn't that much later. It was, like, six years later. But they didn't get to it. Like, there were drones, but they didn't get into any of it that, like, you know, we should probably view Jack Bauer very differently in, like, an Obama era than <laughs> we did in the Bush era. Yeah. And they didn't really get into that. And I, it's fine. It was just fun, silly 24, and I can disconnect that enough that I enjoyed it. But, like, really, I do think Twin Peaks is unique in, in time is such a factor in its being. Yeah. And it's also just something that, like, that sheer time gap of that 25 years also means that you get something with Twin Peaks The Return that is so rare for TV shows, movies, whatever, which is that, like, the majority of the cast are older people. Like, they're, yeah. they're all, like, 
40 and up, basically. Uh, and you have, like, obviously you have a lot of, like, the newer characters that, that there are, like, younger people there as well. But there's such a focus on older people, older men and older women. And, like, and not hiding away from um, their age. Like, I think it is that Matt Zollerside's piece talks a little bit about how, like, David Lynch shoots his own face, right? And that, like, yeah. uh, and, like highlights his age instead of trying to find, you know, cinematic techniques to hide how much he's aged. It's, like... And I think that's true of a lot of the characters of that you you highlight like it's like yeah no like you know Kyle MacLachlan does not is not like baby faced the way he was in 1990 right. right like he's an older guy now and and that's an important part of the texture of that show is that so many of the characters are old and you just never see that because obviously it's it, particularly for women like acting is a young person's game because you want like the youngest most attractive people is like whatever bullshit reasoning the producers use. But it is, like, it's just something you so rarely see, and it's, like, weirdly refreshing and also, I think, like, ripe thematically to deal with those kinds of issues that lots of shows are just not equipped with. All right, so let's address a couple of little holdover things from the end of the show and then go into our final overall thoughts. Okay. Um, were you surprised or bothered by the fact that Audrey makes zero appearance in the last episode? I was surprised by it at first, but I'm not bothered by it. Uh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. It, that, I think that, like I expected because of how Part 16 ended that it was going to be something that was continued. But I think like in retrospect, now that like knowing that it isn't, I think where we left that, we know what happened to that character, and we know where like she is in like an emotional sense at the very least. Right. Even if like there are like weird like nitpicks about like oh is she like technically in the red room blah 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 blah, but we know. I mean, that is also the episode where Diane, we find out that Diane is a tall and that she was raped by uh-huh. Cooper. And that's also, um, because isn't that, that is also the episode where we are, we are confirmed that Richard Horn is Evil Cooper's son. Yes. Like, that is, within that episode, that is all the information you need to understand what has happened to Audrey. I agree. And, and I wrote a little bit about this in like a little postscript to my blog post because I didn't know where else to put it. But, it, and, and that's why, that's why I know it doesn't bother me because it doesn't factor into my analysis of the ending yeah. is that, you know, when I think back on it in reflection, like, okay, what else did I need from the Audrey story to make sense of it personally? And the answer is nothing. Yeah. Like, need. Like, would I have? Would I take more Sherilyn Fenn in the role and all that? Sure. But like, I do think it's it's worth that critical self examination of like, you know, is that a? If I'm disappointed in that, is that a me problem or is that a show problem? And to me, especially if you think of the way Twin Peaks tells stories and how it chose to resolve on this very atmospheric emotional note, it's like. I feel like every the Audrey story did fit in thematically, ultimately. And I think the themes it was helping to build out on the tapestry were very heavily addressed in the yeah. last two episodes. So the particulars of that as a narrative, do we know all of them? No. Does it particularly matter to me? Not really. No. I mean, there are, there are a huge number of like weird, small niggling threads that like like even for like more major characters like we don't know what happened to becky for instance like yeah. quite literally although now i feel like we're supposed to kind of assume it's she's the dead. worst yeah, yeah she's yeah dead. i think like especially because that last shot was that lingering lingering shot on their trailer yeah she's definitely dead but yeah like but we don't like revisit that like we don't revisit in these last two episodes every single minor character that popped mm-hmm. up in the show we we revisit all the ones that are present at the sheriff's office and that's kind of about it and but then also even ignoring like all those like sort of more major subplots, there's a, like a hundred weird random stories that have happened of like you know we never found out what happened to like the crazy puking J horror woman in the the fucking car when Bobby like saw had right. a gunshot come into the diner like we never saw that like we never like 
you know, we don't revisit Nadine. We don't see, like, what happens to any of, like, the random, like, yuppie people in the Twin Peaks um, bar that, like, talk about all the crazy shit that's been going on in their lives, right? The, the woman scratching her armpit. Yeah, like, we don't, like, like a huge part of the feel and texture and, like, consistency of the show has been this weird narrative chaos of all these other side stories that we just, like, randomly pop in on and that are not supposed to be building to in the main big like sort of clockwork narrative it is something that adds to the texture and the overall feel of it that gives you the sense of the chaos and density of this like dangerous world that all these people live in and just this like slow compelling sense of like armageddon approaching on the horizon yeah i mean if you're someone who watches stories because you need to follow a plot and you need to know where every plot goes you know word for word just don't watch The Return. It's, 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 this, this isn't the show for you. And I, I saw at least, again, one critic I respect like listing, like, here's all the things that didn't get resolved. It's like, well, one, I think every single one of those things got resolved in one form or another. Yeah. But also, like, that's not the point. Like, this is so much a show about the emotional and thematic tapestry of what's going on. And it's so clear to me how all of these little different pieces feed into that. Like, yeah. the Becky and Stephen and Bobby and Shelly story. Does it get, like, the ending where, like, Bobby and Shelley realize their daughter is dead and they hold the funeral and then Bobby recommits himself to his police work and Shelley like decides to make a change in her life and blah 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 blah. No, but that's n- that was never going to happen. Yeah. That was if you if you watched 1 hour of this show you knew that was never going to be the kind of storytelling there was. But do I think all the themes and ideas that that storyline brought up over the course of the scenes we saw were paid off in yeah. in a thematic sense? Yes, absolutely I think they were. Mhm. And same with Audrey and the same with anything else that was uh, quote-unquote unresolved. Yeah, because, I mean, it's something we've talked about, like, I think literally every single episode we've talked about this show is how there are... I mean, it is that, like, mosaic or tapestry style of storytelling of that, like, every single scene, every single thread, like, whether or not that thread is contributing to, like, the main image of the tapestry, it might be just, like, you know, this corner thread that's just, like, like, this one red thread that's on the border... That's still important. Like, that's still there. It's not contributing to, like, the story of what is being told in the middle, but it's giving you this larger sense of, of what it is. I love... Uh, I have talked so much on here about how I view this show in relation to David Lynch's painting. And um, Matt Zoller cites... I had, I, I had not seen him make that comparison before when I was talking about those things, but I noticed in his finale review he talked about that a lot. And mm-hmm. I was happy to see that because I was someone else talking... Because I had not seen a lot of other people... And I, I don't think yeah. a lot of people have seen Lynch's painting, so I get it. But he was talking about that, and he had this great analogy in his yeah. piece about... Like, a, what if a painter, like, you know, once a day had this, like, big, like, 18 mosaic panel or something, and it was all taped over, and then one day at a time, you would take one piece of tape off the square, and you would see one square, and then you would see another square, and by the end of all of it, you would see the whole mosaic, and you would see the whole painting. No matter what came of that, you would find it fascinating. And the way I would extend that is when you look at a painting, like a whole, like a single image painting... You don't look at it and say, well, there's a guy walking down that trail, but I don't see where he goes. Uh-huh. I don't see what he's pushing in that cart. I don't know who his you know, wife or lover is, and I don't know what he makes of this world, and I don't know where his journey ultimately takes him. That's not a complaint you make about a painting, right? Yeah. And I get that a, a film is a different medium, but it does have that same quality to me, especially when you consider the idea of like the closed loop of infinity and those sorts of ideas. That that's what this is in the end, is now that we've seen all 18 hours, we've seen the full painting... And we've seen the beginning and we've seen the middle and the end and we see all the images in there. And I don't need to connect from point A to B, the very beginning to the very end, and have everything take from there to the end for yeah. that to have meaning. 
all those images feed off and feed into one another in there in a very painterly way in this series, in a way that I have not really seen in any other kind of form of storytelling to this degree. Maybe yeah. in some cases, like Krzysztof Kisowski's The Decalogue, I actually think is a pretty good comparison if you're going to make one. Very stylistically different, but still something you could compare this to. But like other than that, I mean... Uh, that's you know that's I think one particular way to think of it if you're if you're having trouble maybe with the linearity or lack of it here yeah absolutely so Twin Peaks the Return Twin Peaks the Return what do we say to wrap this up Sean there's a couple of things of like going back to that last moment because like that last moment is the thing that sticks out like it is such a fucking mic drop of an ending is that it is because we we talked about like you know some like the the um, Cooper side of things and how and like aging and all that, but there's also there's that component of the ending of that I think like uh, Dave Lynch is making that argument that no matter how much time has passed, like the effects in, of trauma and abuse in these things on the individual, but I think also like in society and for him, I think like in a spiritual sense in the world does not fade and it does not go away that energy doesn't disappear yeah and so like whether or not you know like because i think you can totally read that ending as like that woman that's uh, played by shirley that's not laura palmer at all she has actually nothing to do with laura palmer she just kind of looks like laura palmer that's a totally fair reading of it but being in that spot and having like and being connected to that energy of that place and of that house and what happened there is enough to affect her and like and and to she's like this you know vehicle through which Laura Palmer gets to express this just angst and frustration and anger and terror at the world that destroyed her and so that to me it's such a powerful intense ending that also it like brings me back to um episode 8 which is such the like you know key to so much of what this this season of television has been we want to avoid saying linchpin I have I have avoided it the whole time. I have almost said that so many times about episode. Eight. I'm glad you finally fucking broke it's, it. Look, it's broke not it. it's not consciously. It was consciously in that moment. It's yeah. mostly not a pun. It's just a word you use yeah. in describing this. But it's such a bad pun that I, I don't want to do it. So it is the key to unlocking this series in so many ways. And it you know that that episode is about the nuclear bomb, and it is about that like trauma. On like that, that both of the, it's it's is like a real trauma in on Japan, obviously because we dropped two bombs on them. It's like a trauma on the world itself. We but, can never put that back in the yeah, bottle. You can never put that back in the bottle. And like what those bombs represent and what they did is was is and was world changing. But it also makes me think about um, one of like the more mysterious elements of Twin Peaks: The Return that we haven't fully talked about is the presence of Nido, who is revealed to be Diane. And I'm not as interested in that specific trans, uh, you know, transformation as I am in that character herself. Now that we know what it is that she becomes and like why she's important in that kind of more literal plot sense, I think there's also like the presence of that character is that like one like she's played by a Japanese woman. And the name Naito is that, like, I don't know if it's supposed to specifically mean something in Japanese. The closest is, like, it can be used to mean, like, way of the self in some ways, of, like, this Buddhist kind of word. It's not 100% exact, but, like, if if you're trying to translate that into Japanese, that's what I would do. But it does follow Japanese syllables. And it's, like, it's, it's very clearly a Japanese name and Japanese expression. And it's a, like, horrifically deformed Japanese woman. And that's, I think, like, you cannot ignore that like now that we know like that that the mystery is gone and you can just like address that character for what that character is in the show like 
that's what that character is is a horrifically disfigured Japanese person and that's and like when you connect that with the atomic bomb and the effects that that atomic bomb has not just on like when it drops and what it does like like you know completely destroys the people that it drops on it has an effect that lingers and destroys the people and like all forms of life in that area and areas near that area where the fallout drifts because of wind and that destroys lives for decades and decades after and that like the effect of that nuclear radiation remains for decades and like like for realistically hundreds if not thousands of years depending on what is used in the half-life of you know the uranium uh so like that to me is like the perfect metaphor in many ways for what the argument of Twin Peaks The Return is and it does go all the way back to that for like Lynch I think that like original sin of modern America which is making that nuclear bomb that then that we live in fear of every day and will until we're all gone exactly I mean North Korea just tested a hydrogen bomb exactly this doesn't go away yeah yeah um I think it's, yeah That's, I think it's a great point to end the critical discussion on uh, I'm sure we will talk about Twin Peaks The Return in the future. Do you want to offer some final wrap-up thoughts to end the episode? It was just... It's a, such a remarkable piece of work of just storytelling and filmmaking in general. That... It is a big M masterpiece. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It is. I, I said this, I and it, it just feels right to say it. This is the greatest season of TV I've ever witnessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, like, without a doubt. Like, And that's not putting down anything else. That's not even me... Like, I've seen some people thinking that the Twin Peaks... Fans are like snobs about this. No, TV is amazing right now. There's so much good TV out there. This is just, to me, on a different level of artistic yeah. expression and how much it has to offer the audience. And, you know, because this is David Lynch, a, a, a great artist, not just at, the I think, the height of his powers, but, you know, he's 70. He's, he's, near, he's nearer to the end of his life than he is to the beginning, yeah. no matter where. Again, I hope he lives another 30 years and he lives to be 100. And he could because he's so cool. Yeah. But like, you know, and this is a guy with, I think, wisdom and and expertise to offer. And this cast of thousands that is all so great. And this group of artists, you know, we Mark Frost, Dwayne Dunham, Peter Denham, uh, Angelo Badalamenti, Ruth DeJong, all the people we noted. You yeah. know, it, it's, it really is. There's just never been anything like it that I have seen. I, you know, this is a major American film artist coming to TV and I think doing the best thing he's ever done. I think Twin Peaks The Return is his maybe most important, pivotal, wonderful, culminatory work. Absolutely. And, boy, I was excited for this 13 weeks ago. I thought it was going to be cool. I liked the idea. I don't think in my wildest dreams I thought it would be this life-changing. Yeah, it's just one of those, like, it's like a miracle production in so many ways. It just that you, nothing like this has ever happened before in the history of television. It, there's a very good chance it will never happen again. Like, who knows? I hope... Yeah, that Showtime just was like, yes, auteur experimental avant-garde guy David Lynch, have 18 hours worth of TV. That's not cheap, but have it. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, remember, if you could go back, it would be hilarious to go back to some of the episodes of this podcast we recorded when it, they were like the first sort of talks about the Twin Peaks revival were around and we're like, there's no way it gets made. Like, there's no yeah, fucking no. way this show ever gets made and there's all this sort of like, as if weird, it was Let's, like every single week it was a new bit of news about like, oh, the episode count has changed, the directors have changed. When this was announced, it was announced to be nine episodes. Yeah. Can you believe that? Like, this could not have fit in nine episodes. Oh, God, no. But yeah, and, and and David Lynch dropped out for a while, and they were gonna just take the script and make it with someone else, which is sacrilegious, I think. 
because I don't know how. I would have felt so bad for those directors. Oh like, God, how would be the their fault? Fuck, but... would you direct these scripts if you're not one of the guys who wrote it? Yeah. No, it. I'm so glad we got it though. I'm so glad we got here, and I am above all else glad we got to talk about every second of it on the podcast. Yeah, it has been a real joy. And it, it's been like, it's been a, I think like a creative, it kind of like taxing endeavor in some ways because it is such a challenging show oh. and it really asks you to bring your A game every single episode. Yeah, let's, uh, let me just say really quickly, what was the final count on my notes? It will take a second yeah, for a And word. this is again, the important details of the first couple of episodes you did not have notes for. No, I only have notes for episode 5 to 18. So yeah. 1 through 4 I did not have notes on, but this reached, at the end, it reached... Uh, let's see, 65 pages and 34,000 words. Yeah. Is my notes on Twin Peaks The Return, parts 5 through 18. It's a lot of... It's like, it is a demanding creative work that asks a lot of its audience, which is rare in any medium at some point. That it's, it's... And, and like it's, it's, it's been such a joy to be able to tackle it there is a part of me that is like deeply relieved that like I'm released from it for some time because it's like it has so dominated my like critical faculties for like basically two to three months now it's you know, like I, I need part of my life back again I need to be able to relax again Jonathan I agree and I'll admit I am excited to I'm very excited to watch this again on Blu-ray when that comes out but I'm also excited to watch it on Blu-ray without having to take notes or discuss it and just kind of bathe in it. Yeah. Because um, that's going to be a different experience for me. Really quickly, great finale takes. I had so much good writing on the finale. Um, Sonia Soraya at Variety. I yeah. loved that piece. I retweeted that. Emily Stevens at the AV Club, who did great work all season. I think her finale piece was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Matt Zoller cites at Vulture. We quoted that one already. And someone I had not seen before, but I saw this online and I thought it was good. Sean Collins at Rolling Stone. I tweeted that one out too, and I thought that was a good take as well. And I'm sure there are more. Those are just the four that struck yeah. me the hardest. Um, Film Crit Hulk started doing recaps for, I forget which site he was on, because there was someone else that did recaps for about the first half of the season, and then he had to come on because okay. they had to leave for a bit. His stuff has been really good too. Okay. Uh, and if you want to read mine, that is up at jonathanlack.com. Yeah. We will be back next week with lots of thoughts on Destiny 2. All Destiny 2 all the time. We're going to have another Doctor Who episode. We've got Let's Plays up the ass. So, lots of stuff coming. But for now, let's just celebrate the end of a, a great American work of art. What year is it?